He's a hero, if you will, a hero whose dreams have turned to nightmares, who walks in step with tragedy and death, but still he perseveres, for such is the haunting fate of Spider-Man. There's no more room for second-guessing, I must think of tomorrow. I made mistakes I can't undo I can't replace the life I knew I've got to start out new And time will show me the way I'm gonna let time show me the way Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff live in studio. That's not that's not what those words mean, Jonathan. No, but we are together. This episode is not live. You are hearing a recording of it. But for the first time in a couple of months, uh, longer than you've even been hearing on the show, because we did a bunch of pre-recorded ones when I was moving, we are in the same room. We are in Sean's basement again. Yeah, back together in the basement at last. It feels very comforting to me. I'm looking at your Persona shelf again. I have not seen your... It's not really a shelf. It's a shrine. I have not seen your Persona shrine in several months. I see your 12th Dr. Sonic screwdriver over there. Some of the posters are up. It just feels good. I'm looking at your King Kong poster. It's a good poster. It's a good poster, and I just feel at home. You know, I think the remote recordings have been going pretty well. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's been nice, that we, because when we do remote recordings, every podcast is a two-laptop podcast. It is. So you just know they're going to be gold every time. <laughs> exactly. But uh, this is a one-laptop podcast, just me and Sean, back in the basement talking. I am home for uh, Thanksgiving break. I have not moved back. I didn't fail that quickly. That's <laughs> <laughs> my new life in Iowa. Man, this Iowa thing's not working out. I got that fucking ticket from a cop in Illinois. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> you, fled, you fled the law. If I get out of the Midwest, I, I'm not liable for Midwest tickets, right? I think that's how it works, yeah. Okay, sounds good. Uh, no, but I'm back in Colorado for a couple of days, so we're recording this. Um, and we have a crazy outline tonight because it was, it was the, this is how it always happens. Last week, Sean, we finished recording, and before we signed off together, we, we were talking like, hey, what are we going to talk about next week? And you're like, oh, there's going to be Doctor Who. And I said, are you going to be done with Red Dead? And you're like, I'm not going to be done with Red Dead. And I'm like, I'm sure something will come up. And then a lot of stuff came up. Yeah, a lot of stuff happened. So, among other things, we are talking about the death of Stan Lee, which is extremely sad, but also an opportunity to look back at this amazing life and the amazing work it created. So we will give the man his due as much as we can, and that's going to be yeah. one topic. We're going to do a topic where we just do a bit of a little video game roundup, because we've both played some Hitman 2. We've, uh, uh, I've played Pokemon Let's Go on the Nintendo Switch and some other little things, so we'll talk about those. We've got a new episode of Doctor Who, which, who boy. Ho, 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 this, this one, Jonathan. We'll get there later. Yeah, we will save that for the end, as usual. We've got a couple pieces of news. I'm also going to talk about, uh, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, the new Harry Potter movie, and the worst Harry Potter movie. Hmm. By, uh. By a mile and a half, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Sean, any pieces of stuff before we get started? Um, not. Re- I mean, you know, Red Dead Two. I'm still playing. I'm still liking. Well, I'll talk a little bit more in specifics when we get to the video game roundup, but not a huge amount to add to that. Um, 
and then Hitman Two. Also, we will get we will get to that. One thing I did do, just like a, just to sort of drop this here because I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, yesterday, as we're recording this, was my dad's birthday, and for his birthday, he wanted to watch this movie called Black Forty Seven. With Forty Seven, mean it's like eighteen forty seven. It's the year, not like Forty Seven Ronin or something. Um, and it's a it's an Irish movie set in Ireland about Ireland. Um, with mostly Irish actors. I don't think all, not all the actors are Irish, but it is about the um, Irish potato famine of the, the mid 19th century. And it is about, uh, it's, it's such a good fucking plot and it's a very entertaining movie. And I recommend people, it's not like a like great movie or anything like that. It's not like, Oh, everyone needs to see this movie. But if you, especially if you have any Irish heritage at all, there's like a certain amount of like, Oh, right. Like this, it's a period of history. You don't, that people don't zoom in on very much and like the injustices committed against the Irish during that period by the, the British Imperials. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really entertaining movie that is basically about a um, Irish soldier who was in the British Imperial army who uh, defects from the army and comes back home to Ireland to discover, you know, that the famine has been going on. I mean, he knew, he knew the famine was going on. That's why he came home, found out that basically his entire family is dead um, all his relatives are dead. All of his friends are dying if they are not already dead because Ireland was in a really bad spot um, and, and one that where Britain could have helped and Britain did not help um, and just you know was constantly making the problem worse. And upon discovering this, he decides, fuck this shit. Fuck all these imperial racist motherfuckers. I'm just going to take this dope kukri, like big kukri knife he has from serving in India. I'm just going to kill all these fucking people. And so it's this revenge movie of this Irish guy going through and murdering all these British motherfuckers. And then on the other side of the movie, you have a like grizzled old Hugo Weaving who plays a British soldier who served with uh, Finney, the main Irish character. And they pull him out because he's going to be executed because he was a cop that, that killed a suspect or whatever. And so he was going to be hanged and they pull him out right before he's going to be hanged to be like, you served with this guy and so we need you to catch him. And so it's grizzled old Hugo Weaving chasing down this Irish guy who's murdering all these British people. And it's fucking great. This sounds awesome. How have I never heard of this? Because it's an Irish movie. So it's like it okay. doesn't get, you know, that kind of big publicity. We watched it off of our, like, cable service. You could just watch it off of, like, I don't know which channel it was. But we could just do it on demand. But I would recommend people, if you want just, like, a good... A good like revenge movie that that deals with that subject matter. Um, that it has a lot of um, subtitled Irish dialogue that's spoken in Irish, and that's really cool. And there's some good action scenes with like muskets. You know that like it's like once you fire that one musket shot, it's like oh shit, we now like I can't fire again. Or or there's a lot of like you know how unreliable muskets were. So there's a lot of good like perfectly timed to misfires that like escalate the fight scenes well it's you know it doesn't have a huge budget or anything like that and you can definitely feel the budget straining sometimes to portray the you know this version of historical ireland but it's it's a really fun movie and it's a good time and, and you leave it being like fuck those fucking british pieces of shit motherfuckers um which is a good feeling to have you've got irish heritage i've got scottish heritage so we just both instinctively fuck yeah. the british motherfuckers it, and it's one thing that it did it's something that I wish Red Dead Redemption 2 did a little bit more of is like kind of go after it a little bit sh sharper because there's Red Dead 2 definitely feels like it it is, you know, about this this band of misfits that have been oppressed by different, you know, forces in America, one of which being an Irishman named Sean. And and like there's some like like Red Dead 2 wants to tackle some of that subject matter and occasionally I think it does it well. It does it better with some with like Sadie has had a couple of good moments that I think does that decently. 
but it's something I wish that, that Red Dead 2 was sharper about it because it, it definitely seems like that's in its like crosshairs, but it's kind of goes around it um, more often than not, at least at the part where I am in the game. And, and watching this movie made it feel like, fucking it, like, this is what Red Dead should be doing. I should be going around and just fucking murdering all these bastards. We should just get like a little film festival together of movies about Irish people rebelling against the British, like yeah. this... Steve McQueen's Hunger, the one mm-hmm. where Michael Fassbender is in the IRA doing a hunger strike. Yeah. And just, like, people just going to their graves hating the British. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, you it's, could really do a lot with that. Yeah, it is just, it's a good genre, it's a good historical topic, because fuck those guys. Fuck those guys. Anyway, uh, I don't know if we have any British listeners, honestly. I think we have some. We have I more mean, in Japan. You're not, I mean, on, like, for this moment in history, fuck us. Like, we're Americans. Like, yes. we are the Britain of now. But in terms of... We are Historically the... speaking, they're the imperialist, colonialist pieces of shit. Yes, we, uh, we're, their, we're their little brother who, who got even better at it. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. All right. Um, Sean, my thing I have to talk about is also movie-related, and it is something I just got to show you a little bit of. Mm-hmm. It is uh, Toei, which releases Dragon Ball in Japan, uh, and around the world, I guess, uh, has started releasing the original Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z movies on Blu-ray in Japan. These new, they did new remasters of all 17 original films. So this would be the 13 DBZ movies, the three Dragon Ball movies, and then the 10th anniversary film called The Path to Power over here, I think. That's, that's usually packaged with Dragon Ball. It was really kind of the GT movie. Because oh, right, yeah. he's in like the blue dogie and all that. But anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. The original 17 movies, they're doing them on eight Blu-ray volumes. So two per volume, except one of them has three films. And they're releasing them in batches November, uh, December, and January to get them all out around the new Dragon Ball Super movie, the Broly film. And I picked up one of these because uh, these remasters had been percolating like apparently they went up on Japanese iTunes and Japanese Netflix a couple months ago hmm. uh, with like the restored picture although not the restored sound which was weird they saved that for the Blu-rays and I guess they didn't have them ready in time and so it like I'd been hearing like through the ether that like hey there's some really good remasters of these Dragon Ball movies out there and uh, Funimation has been doing some theatrical screenings I think they did the first Broly movie last month and then I think they did Fusion Reborn again, movie 12, Yeah, uh, this month. And and those were the Toei remasters as well. Those were not the Funimation masters. It was the English dub, but on the, the Toei remaster. So Toei's finally getting these out on Blu-ray in Japan. And I picked up the first volume. I had that sent here. And good God, it is one of the best things I've ever seen. Like, well, we can talk a little bit about the Dragon Ball movies themselves because they're an acquired taste, let's say. <laughs> but the animation in them is gorgeous. We've always known that. This was like, these were made during the original run, and it was where the animators got to go and spread their legs a little bit and yeah. not have to make an episode in one week. They had like six months to make a movie, and they did a really good job with the animation. And so what they've done, like, if you've seen, like, any of the Studio Ghibli movies on Blu-ray, and those remasters were done in Japan by Ghibli and then distributed throughout the world, it looks like that. It looks like they took actual film and restored it, and it has grain and texture, but it is also just crystal clear, the colors are bold, it's gorgeous. I... I didn't know Dragon Ball could look this good. Like, I think intellectually I did. Like, these movies were hand-animated. They were made on 35mm. They could. But I, I had never seen, like, the Dragon Box versions of the movies. So my thing I'm going off of is, like, the old Funimation discs that were yeah. in 
um, the 4x3 open mat version, and they were basically off of digibetas and looked very poor. Like, they're fine. You could watch the movies and enjoy them, but they looked pretty poor, and we've never gotten good remastered versions of those. So, like, the jump here is insane. Also, in the audio, if you've ever heard Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball GT, any of the, like, pre-2000s Dragon Ball stuff, you know that the sound can come across as pretty muffled and limited, let's yeah. say. Especially if you... With some of the international masters Toei put out there, like to Funimation and stuff, they like oh God. I was watching Dragon Ball Movie One a couple weeks ago, the one I think we call it Curse of the Blood Rubies. Yeah, and the audio on Funimation's disc for that, I don't know what happened. It sounds like it was they played the original audio through a string of tin cans and then recorded that, and it's you can barely understand what's being said. Um, the audio in this is so crystal clear, it sounds like Masako Nozawa is in the room shouting Kamehameha in your ear, and it's awesome. Yeah, and it is just like a really peculiar sensation, because as we said, you, you showed me some scenes um, before we started recording, and I'm just so used to, you know, not just with Dragon Ball, but any anime of that period, there's, you know, was such, like, huge deterioration of the audio quality. Um, and that they have just like never really gone back and done much with. So if you watch Gundam or Dragon Ball or anything Sailor Moon from that period, it's just it sounds like you said like it sounds like it's being played through tin can. It's just like there's a lot of background noise. The the voices are muffled and kind of unclear. And they, and while we're used to hearing these voice actors give these performances now, obviously their voices have changed a lot in like the thirty years or whatever it's been. Uh, so it, it was very striking to me, like, holy fucking shit, that's Piccolo from, like, the late 80s, that's, that's Goku from the late 80s, just, like, right there, you know, unfiltered, just, like, really crisp, pure audio quality, and that was really cool. Yeah, and we were playing it, you had a, you have a nice sound bar, and we were playing it on there, this is mono, Sean, uh-huh. this is not even stereo, and it sounded unbelievably good, like, just every effect, every piece of music, It's so cool. Uh, The disc I have, so volume one is DBZ Movies 1 and 2. They're releasing this kind of weird, they did this with the Dragon Ball, or Dragon Box versions too on DVD back in the day, where the Dragon Ball movies, 1, 2, 3, are on the last volume, and they started with DBZ. I think they do that because DBZ is more popular, but it's still kind of weird. You have to wait until volume 8 to get the first three chronological movies. So I don't know why they did that, but um, so it's movies one and two, which are two of my favorites. The the first three in particular, Dragon Ball Z movies, I really love, and then like the last three or four minus Bio Broly are very good. Yeah, um, and then the ones in the middle, eh, they go up and down. I like Cooler. I don't like Broly. You know. Yeah. Um, like the Lord Slug movie. Yeah, it's not so good. Not so good. The Android one, no story. What's even by the Dragon Ball movie standards? But the animation is cool. They're in the ice. Yes. Trunks is there. You like got. Trunks. You get some good Super Saiyans. Yeah. You no, know, you like. I like. I like the Bojack movie because you. Get, Bojack's great. Yeah, you get Super Saiyan two, Young Gohan, and then yeah. that's the the same. The only other time you get that other than the Cell stuff. It's very good. So anyway, uh, this volume, I just, it's so cool. I mean, for our like. English-speaking listeners, I should do my due diligence and tell you, these discs do not have subtitles. They're for the Japanese market. They're for Japanese audiences. There are no English subtitles on here. Um, So your mileage may vary with that. If you are like, I really don't feel comfortable with that, obviously don't waste your money on it. Um, But I will say this. I speak a little bit of Japanese, and I know Dragon Ball very well, and I'm 100% fine with it this way, in part because the movies have very little in the way of story, and sometimes very little in the way of dialogue. Uh-huh. Like, I think the first Broly movie, and maybe like movie 13, the one with Trunks and the sword. Oh yeah, Tapion. Tapion, yeah. yeah. That one's got a lot of story. Other than that, like, there's a guy, he shows up, he's strong, they fight him. 
They win. Yeah, the, the villain speaks entirely in anime cliche, so it's like even if you don't understand any Japanese at all, you if, if you think you know what the character's saying, you know what the character's saying. You're going to hear the word Sekai a lot yes. because they're talking about taking over the world. Yes. You yeah. know. Um, anyway, so like I don't think it's a big deal, and I, I plan on buying the rest of these because I also, because I got a first printing of Volume 1, they sent it with a box that's empty that you can put the other volumes in when you get nice. them all. And it's a display. And, and I should say, you, you can kind of see this on the disc art here. I don't have the case with me. It's back in Iowa. I just brought the disc. But uh, the case art is all drawn by Tadayoshi Yamamuro, who's the current... Uh, he's like the character designer on Dragon Ball, going back to like Z, but he's now known for Super because he was the lead uh, character designer on Super. So it's original illustrations by him, and the box has like an illustration of Cooler and Broly, and it looks very cool. So now I feel like I need to fill that box. That's why they do it. That's, That's why, why they, they do give it. You the box. Funimation used to do that all the time. I don't know if you remember that. Like you would buy like Cell Games Volume One, and you would also get a box for like the other eight volumes of the Cell Games. Yeah, it's like here's your DVD, and here's a void where we know you want all those other DVDs to go. Yes, so you know, and the Blu-rays are about forty dollars a pop. Um, we're actually very strong against the yen right now, so they're actually less than that. Um, it, when you put in shipping, it kind of comes back to forty. But uh, now is the time to buy if you want stuff off Amazon Japan for whatever reason. The exchange yeah. rate is favorable towards us, but uh, it's really cool. I have a I have a soft place in my heart for the movies, and this is definitely the like watching these two is the most I've ever enjoyed watching a Dragon Ball movie because it is that big theatrical cinematic animation and sound, and that's what the, the appeal of these is, right? Yes. Like you don't watch these because you're like I want to see the story and character development. No, it's like I just want this like quick shot in the arm of Dragon Ball. Like, yes. like I I you know don't have the time to set aside watching a big chunk of the show. I but I just have this fucking craving. Give me some Dragon Ball. Just give it to me. Yeah. I don't care. Like, I don't give a shit. Just, like, I want to see someone go Super Saiyan. I want to see something cool happen. I want a dumb joke where Gohan is hot. Like, that's just give me that and I'm good. Yes, and I'm excited to get the other Blu-rays. And Because I'm actually on a project right now where I'm watching through all the original Dragon Ball movies in advance of uh, the Broly film, which is the 20th theatrical Dragon Ball release, which is crazy. Um, and so I'm just trying to watch them all, and I'm like, now I have a great new way to do it. So yep. these are really cool. I'm really happy with them. I should also note they're in widescreen 16.9. That might be odd to American viewers because they've always been out over here in 4.3. It's a little weird. They are cropped, but not the way like Funimation has cropped like DBZ the show for widescreen for Blu-ray. Right. The movies were made to be seen in theaters in widescreen. They just animated above the top and bottom because that's, frankly, actually, that's how you shoot regular film, too, on 35mm, is you shoot a 4x3 frame, and if you're doing 16.9 widescreen, it's not cropping, it's masking, which is you mask the image to where you wanted it to be shown. So, like, you noticed this while we were watching, and I'm sure, like, the framing looks totally natural, it's yeah. very good, it's not cramped. There's a couple shots here and there, um, just because I know the 4x3 versions, I could see maybe there were things missing, but it was composed for this aspect ratio, so this is the... Way they were, I hate to say this, this is like an old Funimation phrase from back in the day. It's the way it was meant to be seen, roughly. Right. That's how Funimation marketed their widescreen cropping of DBZ back in the day. That was not the way that was meant to be seen. No, yeah, there are way too many tight close-ups on people's faces where, like, the top of their eyes are gone. Because yes. it's, it was supposed to be 4x3, not 69. Yeah, so, but this is correct for the movies. It's very good. And there are inklings that Funimation will release these on Blu-ray over here. 
I have no idea when. Obviously, Toei is amenable to them using them because they did these theatrical releases. But I don't, I don't know where that would fit in Funimation's schedule. I would imagine we wouldn't hear anything about that if they do do it until maybe Comic Con next year yeah. or something. Like it would, they would have to wait for an event to announce that because it would yeah. be such a big thing. I don't think they would do this, but it would be, it would be really cool if they just did a full redub of those movies with like the Kai and Super cast and stuff, and just like get everything equal. They badly need it. Yeah, it would, it, that would be very nice. Yeah, I mean, some of the scripts are also, like, just... It's not just the dubbing, but, like, the scripts are so out of how they do it now, you mm-hmm. know? Um, it, would, it would definitely be cool. And, that would, and it, would be, it would fit with the very nice new presentation of it. You know, put your best yeah. foot forward. So, I mean, I'm sure the cast would be really happy about that. Of course, yeah. It's just whether they have the the money to do it. But yeah, so I hope Funimation puts these out. And you can hold out for that if you want. But uh, I'm just going to get these straight from the source. And just put that fucking early Dragon Ball animation in my veins. I love it. It's so good. And uh, Dragon Ball is cool. Yeah. So anyway... You know, before we move on, the one thing I want to say about the Dragon Ball movies... Because, you know, because I feel like we go... If, because we never talk about them very directly on here, but I feel like we reference them. We're going to do a whole episode later this year about yeah. it. Yeah, but I do just want to say, like, one thing I do love about the Dragon Ball movies, and I was reminded of it watching it, like, some of the scenes with you, Jonathan, is there are those... They do the thing of, oh, we take whatever just happened in the anime, and we just do a redone version of that story. So it's like, here, if we just did in the anime, like, the, the Saiyan stuff, or we had, like, you know, Goku and Piccolo teaming up, we have Goku and Piccolo team up in the Dead Zone movie because they teamed up against Raditz. If we have, you know, the Kaioken stuff with the Kamehameha and the Spirit Bomb with Vegeta, we do it with the weird robot guy from the second movie. And then, like, the Tree of Might is the one that's like, this is just the Saiyan stuff. You just did the Saiyan stuff. And, and the, the cooler one's like, you just did Frieza. But the one thing I do appreciate about that is you get these things of, like, when you watch the show, Kaioken is relevant exactly twice in Dragon Ball Z when he's fighting Nappa and Vegeta and then very briefly when he's fighting Frieza and it's like oh god even Kaioken 20 doesn't work and that's the only time Kaioken comes up obviously in Dragon Ball Super they've brought Kaioken back and that's very cool um, but it's the same thing with like the spirit bomb only comes up occasionally Super Saiyan 2 young Gohan is only only fights Cell and you never see him again the thing I do love about those movies is even if you're repeating shit at least like you're, you're repeating shit that like you never see again when you're watching Dragon Ball Z so it's like okay cool like, I will take this little brief glimpse of Super Saiyan 3 Goku I can get from the last movie because you only get a little bit of him in the show before we move on to something else. And it's even better in the original Dragon Ball movies, the three for the original series, where they basically did the story arcs again. It was much more of a one-to-one, but with the weirdest <laughs> twists. So Dragon Ball Movie 2, which is called Sleeping Princess in Devil's Castle... Is it is a very slim part of the original manga. It's where Goku and Krillin want to get Master Roshi to train them, and so they have to go get a Pichi Pichi Garu yeah. uh, to to show to Master Roshi. And in the manga and anime, they go get lunch, yeah. and that's where lunch is introduced. Lunch the character, not lunch the like. Well, let's go out to get lunch. Yes. I know a good sandwich place. Yes, lunch the character. In this movie, the movie is they go to find a Pichi Pichi Garu and they wind up in a castle run by an evil vampire who kidnaps Bulma and is going to do a blood sacrifice with Bulma to blot out the sun forever. And that, and Lunch comes in as like a freeding freedom fighter trying to like save everyone and steal this giant fucking diamond. And that is the plot. And that's not even the craziest one because movie three goes even crazier where like Chaozu is the leader of an empire right, yeah. that is supposed to be China basically and Tenshinhan is trying to assassinate him and it, 
it's nuts. It's fucking nuts, and I love it. They're made by crazy people. Yeah. So, and I think a lot of uh, English fans have not seen those ones because they're a lot more no. obscure. Yeah. Like I have the only the first time I watched them was when I did my full Japanese watch through because I think I had seen the Blood Ruby one um, in English because that was at my blockbuster. But the other two I did hadn't even known existed. I think until I met you. Yeah. They're they're crazy. Yeah. They they fucking are. All right. So anyway, that's Dragon Ball. Sean, my other piece of stuff. It's Fantastic Beasts. The Crimes of Grindelwald. I'm going to spoil the shit out of this movie, so just... There are timestamps in our show notes. Skip past if for some reason you want to be spo- You don't want to be spoiled on this. It's terrible. The plot makes no sense. I could spoil the whole thing and you still wouldn't know what's going on. But there you go. This is the new Harry Potter movie. It's the 10th theatrical Harry Potter release. Because there were 8 original movies. Fantastic Beasts 1 and now this one. Sean... Um, I like Harry Potter. Yes, yes, you do. Is that a, is that a fair way to say it? That is a very fair way to say it, yes. Yeah, in fact, I might say I love it. I might say, in fact, if you've lost me, I don't know who you have left. <laughs> because I really like Harry Potter. Yes, It's yeah, kind of my exactly. thing. This is the worst Harry Potter movie. This movie is fucking incoherent. It is two hours of endless, overwhelming amounts of plot... That has no story. There's a lot of plot. There's no story. There's no beginning, middle, end. There's no like first, third, second, third act. There's no goal the characters are trying to reach. There's nothing that is accomplished at the end of the movie. It's just plot and exposition and setup for other sequels that will get down the line. It is it is better than the movie I'm about to reference because it is competently made and acted. Okay. But it is the Amazing Spider-Man Two of Harry Potter. Oh yeah. fuck, dude! Wow, that's a that's a bomb. That's a big that's a big bomb to drop on this yeah, conversation. It is because I I am so I would actually kind of love for I don't want you to go have to see the movie because I don't want no. you to suffer. I haven't even seen I, the first one. No, but I would kind of be fascinated to have this conversation with you because we love breaking down just kind of like what are plot mechanics? How do they work? How do you tell a good story? Uh-huh. And this is like such a fascinating example of how not to do it. And. It's, it's amazing to me on every level. So I'm going to recap some things for you real quick, Sean. Okay. All right? The first movie in this... So this is the spin-off series. It's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. It's set in like the 1920s. The first movie from a couple years ago was set in New York in like 1925 or something. And the whole plot of that one, which was pretty simple and charming, is that Newt Scamander, who is... In the original Harry Potter books, he's the author of the textbook Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And he's like a famous magi-zoologist. So that's his whole thing. And he comes to New York and he has this cool suitcase that he has all his monsters in. And a couple of the monsters get out and he has to go find the monsters. And meanwhile, Colin Farrell is this auror for the like American Ministry of Magic. And he's up to some weird shit and they're trying to find that out. And it's a fun movie. And he makes some friends in America. Uh, he becomes friends with Catherine Waterston. And she's cool. And uh, he meets this muggle named Jacob Kowalski, and that's a great American name. It's the kind of American name only a British person would assign to an American. And, uh, you know, it's very fun. And there's monsters and stuff. And then in the last five minutes of that movie, you find out Colin Farrell wasn't Colin Farrell. He was actually Johnny Depp in Whiteface, which is to say Johnny Depp's already white. But he's just completely like pay like like they took white clown makeup and put it all over him and then bleached his hair and he looks ridiculous. He looks like a dying, bloated, 
albino whale. It's, it's, it's look at a picture of him. You, oh, I mean, I saw the fucking trailer for this movie because he's yeah. all over it. So, yes. so it's not some like like because we because we talked about this when you watched Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them about that twist at the yeah. end. And I didn't. And I think I had to Google him and see what he looked like. I know very well what he looks like now because I've seen that trailer yeah. a bunch. I'm not exaggerating. He looks stupid. Oh yes. Anyway, yeah. so Johnny Depp and he is playing Gellert Grindelwald, who. Kind of means nothing to you if you were just watching that movie cold. But in the books, he's part of the extended Harry Potter lore. I'll give you the five-second version of this, Sean. It's mostly in the last book. There is a subplot, and this is not in the Deathly Hallows movie. It's like the one thing they cut. And I like to say the Fantastic Beast series is J.K. Rowling's revenge for them cutting this subplot. Because now she's making them make a whole new series about it. But in Deathly Hallows, the book, Harry, um, while he's on his journey goes through all of these like clippings and like he talks to people and he pieces together some of Dumbledore's backstory. And in Dumbledore's backstory, Gellert Grindelwald is sort of like the proto Lord Voldemort. He is like, like Voldemort is the much more extreme Grindelwald. Grindelwald was the guy who like in the 1920s and 30s went out there and had like, it wasn't we should go kill all the muggles. It wasn't we should just go kill all the mudbloods as they call them, the, the like magic people who have muggle parents. But he was saying wizards should be in charge. We should come out of hiding. We should like, we should be the leaders of everything because we will know what to do better than the humans. That's Grindelwald's whole thing. And Dumbledore rose to fame by dueling and defeating Grindelwald. Okay, so to put this into terms, I understand. Yeah. By referencing Naruto for me... Grindelwald is Uchiha Madara and then uh, Dumbledore is the first Okage that sounds right yes that that is right yeah I know yeah. that's right for sure and then then Voldemort is I guess is Sasuke in that metaphor and, and Harry is, is Naruto, Naruto. Yeah. yes believe yeah. it and yes and, and Sakura is Hermione in a okay. lot of ways Sakura is Hermione who's Ron um fuck you know Naruto's so good it doesn't even need a Ron I know nothing about Naruto, so this is this is good for me. Yeah. All right. Um, but anyway, uh, where was I? So that's like the thing we know going into Deathly Hallows. In Deathly Hallows, Harry learns not only did Dumbledore defeat Grindelwald, he as a boy knew Grindelwald very well. They lived on the same block together for a summer. Uh, Dumbledore was having to stay home with his sister um, who had been horribly abused by some muggles, and his father, Dumbledore's father, was in Azkaban for attacking the muggles who attacked his sister. So Dumbledore is like kind of troubled at this point. He's got a big ego because he was the best student at Hogwarts. He's brilliant. And he and Grindelwald hatch this plot where they start believing, like, no, wizards should run things. These muggles are awful. Look at what they've done. We need to be in charge. And they start to like. Like, they even create this sigil of the Deathly Hallows, which is what Grindelwald starts using as his sigil. And they come up with this slogan, that it's all for the greater good, and that becomes Grindelwald's slogan. And then, in uh, at the end of their whole relationship, there was a fight between Dumbledore Grindelwald and Dumbledore's brother, Aberforth. Um, and, and Aberforth, who you see in the Deathly Hallows movie, briefly. He's a bigger character in the book. Um, <clears throat> and they all start fighting, and in that fight... A spell goes astray and Dumbledore's sister is killed and they don't know who did it. And Dumbledore is so scarred by that he commits himself like he will never run for a position of power. He will only ever work at Hogwarts. He will dedicate himself entirely to trying to bring up the young generation correctly. And he will like walk the straight and narrow because of that. And it also leads him later to defeat Grindelwald because he's the only one powerful enough to do it. It's a really cool story. Yeah, and it's, it's just like Naruto. It is. And if you told me, like if I told you, Sean, that's a story in the Harry Potter books, 
It would be cool if they made a movie based on that, right? Yeah, because I can definitely see why you would cut it from the the Deathly Hallows movies because it's like interesting but not immediately relevant right. to the plot. You like they already made two movies out of that one book. It's like a lot of the Lord of the Rings lore, yeah. like that's in the book but you don't need in the movie. Yeah, you don't need how like Melkor turned into Morgoth or whatever in in Return of the King. That movie's very long already. Exactly. So they could have made that movie. They didn't. What they did is they started with this Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them series about Newt Scamander, who has nothing to do with Grindelwald, Dumbledore, or any of this other stuff. Yeah, I did notice he didn't pop up in that. No, because he has nothing to do with it. And so that first movie, he doesn't need to have anything to do with it, because you don't see he's Grindelwald until the very end. It's a little annoying, but whatever. The movie, you know, the first 120 minutes of it was fine, right? Yeah. This sequel is called The Crimes of Grindelwald. Again. Well, the sequel is called Fantastic Beasts and the Crimes of Grindelwald. How do they connect Fantastic it's Beasts? Fantastic Beasts colon. Okay. It's the weirdest title. Yeah. Yeah, they, they really fucked up when they decided, well, we're going to yeah. use Fantastic Beasts as like the default for this new spinoff or whatever. So this movie, because there's really no story to continue with Newt after the first movie. Unless you like had him, and I actually think this would be fun, go to like another city... He encounters another magical civilization and has another adventure with fun monsters. You could do that. It would be like a weird um, Zatoichi kind of thing where he's just wandering around going to different villages encountering some weird problem. Yeah. And he solves it, but you know, he can't stay. He has to move on to the next village even though everybody wants him to stay. That could be good, but they didn't decide to do that. They decide for this sequel, the only plot thread that is of real import to like the world of J.K. Rowling's text that we have to continue is Grindelwald. So for this sequel, it starts Grindelwald, who was captured at the end of the first one. He breaks out of prison. The scene's actually kind of cool. That's one thing. This movie has a horrible script. The directing, like David Yates, who you know from the Harry Potter movies yeah. you've seen, he's really trying on this one. Like, there are a lot of scenes where I'm like, this is so well directed, and there's nothing going on. But, you know, God bless him for trying. Like, he could have just... T- and this is the difference between this and, like, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is Amazing Spider-Man 2 is also poorly directed. Yes. You know, and acted and everything else. Um, This movie is good on the production merits. Just got that script. Um, Anyway, so he breaks out of prison, and he's out there in the world doing something. So we have to follow up on the Grindelwald thing. But now we have Newt Scamander. And we also introduced an entire cast around Newt Scamander. So in this movie, we have to get Newt back on the board. We have to get Newt's three friends from New York back on the board. So we're at four. We're going to introduce young Dumbledore, because we have to have Dumbledore in there for the Grindelwald stuff, right? Exactly. So that's Jude Law as the young Dumbledore. Uh, we introduce more people in Newt's orbit, including Newt's brother, and Newt's what's, love... Is, what's Newt's brother's name? Theseus. Okay, that doesn't fall. I was hoping it would be another like weird little lizard. Me too, me too. Like, it's like here's Chameleon Scamander yeah. or something. So we're at five so far main characters. Newt's old love interest, who was referenced in the first movie, not seen, and is now engaged to his brother, Lita Lestrange, who is a connection to the Lestranges, who are an evil family in Harry Potter, the, the Harry Potter books. So you have, okay, we're at five, six, seven. Uh-huh. All right. Dumbledore. We have Grindelwald. Yes. I forgot him. Yeah. Grindelwald's minions. Let's just throw two on for, for fun. Right. We also have returning a character who died in the first one, but apparently didn't. Credence, who is this, like, boy... Who Grindelwald as Colin Farrell was like manipulating in the first movie. And he's played by Ezra Miller, the Flash in the Justice League movies. Okay, yeah. And he's in this. And also, in a bit of controversy, deservedly, he has like taken up with Nagini, the snake from from the Voldemort story in Harry Potter, who is actually an Indonesian woman who gets locked in the body of a snake later in the story. 
We're not even going to get into that can of worms today. I don't have time. You don't have time. Go read about it. Smarter people than me have written about why that's bad. Yeah. It's obvious. Okay. So we have at least 12 main speaking characters and no time to service all of them. It's a two-hour movie. Yes. And and there there seems to be a clear split. Yes. There is the Fantastic Beasts cast yes. and the Crimes of Grindelwald cast. Is that yes. fair to say? Yes, there is. So, like, this movie starts, and when you see Newt, he is trying to, like, he's with his brother, and he's trying, like, they have, like, stopped him from traveling abroad because of the mayhem he caused in New York, so he's in London, like, trying to get his magical passport back, and you're like, okay, that's where Newt is. But then Dumbledore comes to Newt and is like, Newt, I can't move against Grindelwald, for reasons we'll learn later in the movie. It's basically because we know that this all ends with Dumbledore capturing Grindelwald, but we can't get there yet because they want to make more movies. Right. So Dumbledore's like, Newt, there's more movies left. I can't fight him yet. I need you to go to Paris and find Credence, the Ezra Miller guy, because Grindelwald is looking for him. And Newt's like, why is Grindelwald looking for him? And Dumbledore's like, I don't know. I probably do know. I'm not going to tell you. I'm Dumbledore. I'm kind of manipulative. I'm kind of sociopathic in this movie. I'm just not going to tell you. And we're all, and the audience is going to be very, very confused about why he's looking for Credence or why Credence is important. But Newt has to go to Paris to look for Credence. And Newt is like, I don't want to do that, but I'll do that. And then Newt goes home and is like, you know what, I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? And then two of Newt's friends from New York show up and they're like, hey, Newt, we're going to Paris to look for Tina, the other person in our group of friends. What? And, and do you want to come to Paris to look for Tina with us? And, and Tina's your love interest, so you want to go to Paris. And he's like, you know, Dumbledore wanted me to go to Paris, so I guess I can go to Paris now. And they all go to Paris together. Okay, so hold up. So Newt was in London when he met with Dumbledore. Yes, and then his friends who are from New York come to London come to, to London to go talk to Newt to say we need to go to Paris because it t- and it does it end up being an entire coincidence that this Tina lady is in Paris which is where Dumbledore wants him to go she is also looking for credence so okay, at the very so at least, least that she is an auror she is like a magical law enforcement officer she is looking for the guy yes okay so that at least but still why didn't Dumbledore just say oh and we sent Tina also why don't know. we go like, that feels like that would cut out all that shit. It would, but then you wouldn't have these other two side characters that they're trying to work in all of them. Okay. So, and I'm cutting out a couple pieces of character motivation, but you can go read the Wikipedia summary if you want okay. to see all of it. Okay. So, they all go to Paris. Queenie, who's one of the girls, and Jacob are like, they're, they were in love, now they're estranged, the whole thing, whatever. It doesn't make sense. Uh, they go to Paris. They start investigating. Newt is really only looking for Tina... I think he thinks Tina will lead him to Credence, but it's not really clear what's going on. Newt has, like, no discernible motivation in this entire movie, which is part of the problem. Your protagonist should have discernible motivation. I agree, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what's going on there. Credence, meanwhile, is looking for his real family because he was an orphan in the first movie. And now he's trying to find out his family. And apparently, and I had to piece this together later because I will tell you, I am a smart viewer who knows, who knows a lot about movies. And knows more about Harry Potter. Yeah. You know, I, if I could get a PhD in Harry Potter, I would, and it wouldn't take me four years. Yeah. To sit me down right now. I'll do the comps. I'll write a dissertation. I, I know it off the top of my head. I turned to my brother multiple times in this movie, Sean, and said, do you know what's going on? And he's like, no, I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, okay. And one of those scenes was where Credence is meeting with a little elf woman. And I'm not... She is literally an elf in the movie. I don't mean right. like... yeah. Is she a slave like all the other elves? No. Elves... Do they do house elves, elves or elves? There's in, house... Ooh, that's how do they good, pluralize it? V-E-S. Okay. Yeah, it's house elf with an F, but then when you pluralize... It's the Tolkien spelling. Okay, it's the Tolkien yeah. method, not like the like Keebler method. No, no. So, anyway, 
and there's a scene, and Credence is trying to, like, he, like, has his birth certificate from the orphanage, and he's trying to find his parents. It's very confusing, and I didn't really know why. What I pieced together, because they say this, but they say it so fast you miss it, is that Grindelwald apparently wants Credence because Credence is connected to an ancient wizarding family, and he thinks that for some reason he will be a good propaganda tool if he can prove that he's like the last of this particular pure blood line. And I don't really Maybe know... he's just a big fan of Credence Clearwater. It's like, we yeah. need to give... Wait, you said that, that Credence's character died in the first movie. Yes. So there was, he, he was revived in this one. Well, he is, I'm cutting out a lot. He's also an Obscurus, which is a magical creature born of loneliness. I'm simplifying it. And a piece of the Harry obs- Potter's fucking dumb. And, and a piece of the Obscurus survived, and that's how blah blah blah. He, I don't know. Okay, Let's, but yes, it was a Was he in? Was there any sort of Clearwater involved? No. Okay, because I was hoping there would just be a full-on Creedence Clearwater revival in this movie. That'd that's be, just what I was getting at. That'd be very good. There is not, sadly. Uh, they they honestly, I'm piecing together the Obscurus thing for you. They do not explain how he's back okay. in this movie because um, the whole climax of the first movie is him getting destroyed. So anyway, uh, so they go. So Credence is looking for his family. Greed, uh, Grindelwald thinks he's important because of this pure blood connection. It doesn't really make sense. At some point, without anyone doing the formal exposition for this, the characters start assuming that that family must be the Lestranges, um, yeah. and Lita Lestrange, who is Newt's old love interest and his brother's current love interest, is a Lestrange, and she gets involved somehow because she's trying to prove it. It's very weird. A bunch of stuff happens. There's monsters and explosions and shit. It makes no sense. Eventually they go to the Magical Hall of Records, because that's what kind of movie this is, to look for Credence's like, birth information. Although, Harry Potter is like that thing that sci-fi does, that, that one episode of Doctor Who made fun of, where you just put space in front of everything, only you put magical in front of everything. It is a little bit, yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, <laughs> so they're going to look for the birth certificate. I don't know. Lita Lestrange, though, at this point, like she has had a secret this whole movie. We don't know what the secret is. Then she does this big... Oh, I, I forgot. I'll get back to her. In the middle of the movie, they also just stop the plot for 20 minutes and have a 20-minute flashback to Newt and Lita's time at Hogwarts. Which, like, it's kind of the most interesting part of the movie because it's fucking Hogwarts and it's like Dumbledore's there and there's a young Professor McGonagall and that's kind of fun. But, I mean, my God, the pacing of this thing. It feels like the kind of thing you would see as DVD deleted scenes and go like... Right, that's why they cut it. It had nothing to do with the story. Yeah, but is it, it's, I like, I like, I'm glad that they put it in here, but I think it was right for them to cut it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, there's that whole thing. Lita Lestrange is very sad because she has a dark family backstory. We finally find out what the dark family backstory is, and it's that Credence is not her... There's a whole thing with, like, she has a half-brother. who's. They go... Like, Sean, I, I, I can't stress this enough. How much of this movie is focused on the Lestrange family line... Who fucked who in the family to make who? There is a weird half-brother out there trying to kill Credence because Credence was the, like, illegitimate love child of the actual father of the Lestrange family line. And they want to kill him because, I, I don't know, it's like like blood feud kind of thing. So that's all going on. Okay, so, Lestrange, so they are also, in my Naruto metaphor, they are very like the Uchiha as well. Yeah. Okay. So... Lita Lestrange, her dark story is that when she came to America, as, no, to England as a child from America, one way or the other, I don't know. This should all be British. That's what Harry Potter is. I don't get it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they're coming one way or another. It looks like they're on the Titanic. I don't think they're literally supposed to be, but it's that kind of thing. And they were with, so she is a Lestrange, the proper daughter. This was like the illegitimate love child they were trying to get out of the country. And she had the baby with her and then their nanny. So it was like the nanny who was the elf woman. 
Lita and the baby, and the baby wouldn't stop crying. This is the backstory of Broly in the original Dragon Ball movie. By the way. Yes, the baby wouldn't stop crying, so Lita exchanged him with another baby? Lita is like five years old at this point. So like, okay. and, and she exchanged him with another baby, but then the ship goes down and the other baby dies, and they're left with... And Credence is the baby that they exchanged. So she thinks the actual Lestrange heir died on the ship, and this baby she got from some rando on the ship, that's who Credence is. And they're all sad, and Credence is sad, because like, oh, so we're never going to know who my family is. So that's where this all ends up. And at this point, the movie's got about 20 minutes to go, and yeah, I'm wondering... I, I couldn't help but notice that fucking none of that had to do with Grindelwald, really. I mean, it seems like there's a vague connection... Peripherally, with, yes. Yeah, peripherally with it. And Jack, all shit to do with Newt. Yeah, you're correct, yes. Wow. Yes. It's a lot of wheel spinning for that, and then nothing happens... And then they all, they're kind of already here because he's holding this at the, the Hall of Records. Grindelwald is going to have a big rally. And this is the best scene in the movie because this is the most surprising thing. Johnny Depp is maybe the best thing in this movie. Ooh. That's going to sound weird. And it's not Johnny Depp. It's the writing. It's the one thing J.K. Rowling writes well in this one is Grindelwald is an interesting character because he's not Voldemort. He is a... He is not like an... He is a terrorist, but he doesn't carry himself like he's out there to just blow shit up and be an anarchist. He is this like charismatic, fascistic leader who holds these rallies. And he's, he starts his like speech here at this rally with like, I don't hate muggles. I respect muggles. But they are... Look at all these things they've done. He like shows them imagery of like... Uh, of, a, of a prophecy he's seen of what's going to happen in World War II. That's a whole can of worms the movie doesn't really get into. But still, he's like, they're fucking stuff up. We are smarter. We are peaceful. Like, we have all these abilities. We should be on top. And he's like, that's what's interesting about him is he is not Voldemort. He is not just like my way or the highway. He is, I'm going to try to recruit people to my cause to do this thing. It feels very relevant for our present political moment. Mm -hmm. I think Johnny Depp plays him well. I think he plays that charismatic side well. The makeup is stupid because for this to work, I think Grindelwald should look like a normal person. Yes, yeah, like, he shouldn't look like a weird punk guy. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know why they did that because that makes him look like Voldemort and the whole point is that he's not Voldemort. He's like, they have similar ideologies but they express them in different ways and that's the only reason you would do this is to show the difference, right? Yeah. So I don't know why the makeup but Johnny Depp is kind of interesting. This scene at the rally is kind of interesting. There's a big fight. Things happen. People choose different sides. Lita gets killed. Credence goes off with um, Grindelwald because Grindelwald promises, no, I actually do know who your parents are, so come with me, um, Credence kid. And Credence goes with him, and Newt is in the background doing stuff, and nothing is really accomplished and nothing happens, and that's the end of the plot of the movie. Um, wow. Okay, one thing happens, which is that Newt is able to get off of Grindelwald this little silver vial that we learn is the reason Dumbledore couldn't move against Grindelwald is as children they had made a magical blood pact with this like and this vial is like the source of the spell and it means neither of them can ever attack each other. Okay, so they put it into other terms that I understand better. Grindelwald is Magneto, the vial is Magneto's helmet, and then Dumbledore is obviously Professor X. That makes sense, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um and like Magneto and Dumbledore they're supposed to be, you know, gay love gay lovers in this scenario. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. They don't really do it in this movie. I hope they actually J.K. Rowling has the courage of her convictions to actually show no, that will not happen. That will not happen. No. That will not happen. Um, anyway, <laughs> all right. So that is kind of the plot of this movie. Then we get a final scene with Grindelwald at his. Is this post credits? No, this okay. is like the last scene before the credits. It's the big cliffhanger for the next movie. Is he's he's back at his headquarters with all his allies who've come with him, including Credence. And he explains Credence's backstory. 
Credence is not a Lestrange. Credence is Dumbledore's missing brother. Fuck off. Aurelius Dumbledore. Who? Is, is there some sort of law that says that all the Dumbledores have to have dumb names? I guess so. But, uh, and they show this whole thing. And like, and why Grindelwald wants him, I guess, is he wants Credence Dumbledore, Aurelius, whatever his name is, to, because he can't attack Dumbledore. He wants this kid to kill Dumbledore for him. And he's trying to like, be like, see, Dumbledore didn't really love you. He didn't even come to find you, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's so stupid. It yeah. is ungodly stupid. It's all just wheel spinning because, again, we know where this has to go. This is laid down in the Harry Potter text that this ends with Dumbledore fighting Grindelwald. So this movie was all wheel spinning. They're setting up another movie that's going to be all wheel spinning of dealing with the Ezra Miller character so that they can do the next movie where they probably finally wrap this up and actually have the fucking fight. I still don't know how Newt's commander will play into any of this. Yeah, that was one of the things that surprised me the most is that it seems like this movie does not end with a, and this is how Newt will fit into nope. this. It ends with, oh, Newt has a like totally like superfluous role in the plot to get this MacGuffin that you didn't even know was a MacGuffin off of this character. Yes. Which is like, you know, important technically in the plot that they laid out, but from like a dramatic perspective seems like it's totally useless and didn't need to actually be there. Yes. And I will also note that as a longtime Harry Potter fan, Dumbledore having an extra brother that... Now, Dumbledore's going to find out about this kid, right? Yes, yeah. And Dumbledore apparently took that secret to the fucking grave and never told a goddamn person about it because it's not in the original books. And we thought we learned, like, Dumbledore's deepest, darkest secrets. And the problem with that for me is, like, Dumbledore is a somewhat manipulative character in the books. He likes to put people in positions to do things without them necessarily knowing why. And some of it is, I think, a character flaw that comes out. And some of it is just that he wants Harry to be the best person he can be. And so he doesn't just want to tell Harry what to do, right? Sure. Him doing it to Newt here plays much more sociopathic. Because he just literally leaves out key details that would help Newt do the mission, you know? And then this thing, like... Because it's also implied that Dumbledore knows what Credence is. And, like, this is all, like... It's just sociopathic. It's like, this is not the Dumbledore I know. Um... It's the dumbest story. It makes no sense. And it, again, it is all 100%. We had like one movie's worth of story in this thing from Deathly Hallows we're expanding. And J.K. Rowling is saying it's five movies now. I don't fucking know. Like, it, this movie is not performing particularly well by the standards of the series. So who knows? It's the first Harry Potter movie to have a negative Rotten Tomatoes score. That reminds me. It's like, there is a th certain thing that should be stressed. I don't know if you mentioned. Is that this is not something that's like, oh, J.K. Rowling handed this off nope. to the studio and they've just been running rampant with it. She's directly involved. She wrote the screenplay, right? She wrote the screenplay for this in the last one, yeah. It's yeah. just, this. the credit is written by J.K. Rowling. Yeah. My understanding is that on the first one she had significant assistance from Steve Cloves who wrote all the Harry Potter movie adaptations. Makes sense. They're friends and, and they work together on that. Um, I mean, this one, like, this bowls me over though because... Someday we might have to do a bigger topic on this, my complicated relationship with J.K. Rowling, because I love Harry Potter. Harry Potter is the thing that got me into reading, that got me into stories. It, it was like a constant companion through my childhood. Those books mean so much to me. Her writing style means so much to me, so much of what I do in writing. I feel like I learned from like the way she puts prose together. I think she's a, an amazing writer on the page. And just since those books have ended, I mean, especially with these new movies, she is constantly tone deaf on Twitter. 
Not like in an like I'm actively racist way, just like I'm rich and aloof and I don't know what I'm saying way. Yeah. The first movie was good but had some problems here and there, which again didn't bother me too much. First screenplay, whatever. But this one, like, it shows a fundamental lack of understanding for how to tell a story. And say what you will about the original Harry Potter books. The stories are very clear. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Harry Potter goes to Hogwarts. The Chamber of Secrets has been opened. People are being attacked by something from the Chamber of Secrets. Harry and friends want to find out what is in the Chamber of Secrets. They find out. They go into the Chamber of Secrets. They defeat the bad guy. The end. Right. Every Harry Potter book follows something like that. With a beginning, even when they get more serialized near the end. There is something like Goblet of Fire. There's a tournament being held at Hogwarts. Mysterious shit is going on with that tournament. The tournament happens. Turns out Voldemort was manipulating this so he could get Harry's blood to do the blood ritual. That whole thing, you know. A little more convoluted. It's an 800-page book. But there's a story. Beginning, middle, end. Harry is the main character and he is motivated. Voldemort murdered his parents. Voldemort is threatening his friends. He wants to kill Voldemort because of these things. Newt Scamander has fuck all to do with Grindelwald, Dumbledore, or anything else. Like, it's baffling that this got past the scripting stage. That Warner Brothers agreed to shoot this fucking thing. I mean, this feels so much more in line with like their DC movies than it does with their Harry Potter movies. It kind of sounds like it comes less from like the the Harry Potter main story, which I agree with you is like very clear in each of those books. Because I read the first three and like kind of got halfway through Goblet of Fire before I abandoned it because I just was not a fan of them. But like one of the things, one of the reasons why I did kind of abandon it is I think there. The larger lore of Harry Potter, I'm just was immediately so disinterested in because I'm not particularly bought into that world, and and this like you talking about that stuff like feels like it's like what if we took all like the random lore bits that are can be fine as like little drops along the way of this like very directed story, but when you pull all that shit and make that what your plot is, it's then nothing because you don't actually have a story underneath of that. You just have information. Yeah, I mean, it, this this script, quote-unquote, feels much more like J.K. Rowling just took a bunch of her notes for that Pottermore website that she didn't publish and is like, stapled them together and then gave them to David Yates and said, here, shoot something out of this. And poor David Yates and the extremely talented cast had to figure out what the hell they were going to do with this thing. It's so... Like, this is franchise-killing bad. This is Amazing Spider-Man 2, Batman v Superman, like... You do not have a franchise after this, levels of bad. Harry Potter has been around long enough and I think has enough goodwill, maybe they can write the ship. But like, this is... I, I, Warner Brothers is just intent on driving their goddamn franchises into the ground. That's all they do now, is they, they, they spin the wheel and they go, Batman today. What can we do to make sure we cannot... We have salted the earth for Batman for at least 10 years. Yeah. You know? We've, we've salted it so bad that that actor we just hired... Yeah, he doesn't really want to do it anymore. Yeah. Superman, same thing. Yeah. Everyone except Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman got spared from the wheel of salting the earth. Yeah. And who knows? One day, maybe. Yeah. Um, if you were only judging Wonder Woman based on the non-Wonder Woman movie, you'd be like, that earth is salted. Yeah. They unsalted it enough with the Patty Jenkins film. Um, so I don't know... It's just the whole thing is baffling. It it I don't get it. It makes me sad as a Harry Potter fan. We have also talked about this probably for too long. Yes. Although it is fascinating. It is. I you know, I, I enjoy as an outsider to to see the, the, the world of Harry Potter in this like strange state. It's it feels like 
it's very different than where I would have imagined Harry Potter would be. Like, if you had asked me right when that last movie came out, Deathly Hallows Part 2, like, oh, maybe Harry Potter's done for a while. Maybe we, like, get, like, a weird sequel movie series to it. I don't think I would have imagined it's like, oh, no, like, in the relatively near future, it, there's going to be, like, a, a pretty well-regarded prequel that is only tangentially involved with the, the series. And then this, like, really weird, like, jumbled-together mess of lore bullshit as the sequel, and that's going to drive Jonathan Lack, the probably the biggest Harry Potter fan I know. I know a lot of fucking big Harry Potter I know. fans, yeah, like crazy. Because I, you know, I'm in a, a program with other people around my age to get an English education secondary licensure, and a lot of those people fucking love Harry Potter. Everyone I've talked to in that program haven't seen this movie. Fucking hates this movie like you do. So interesting. It yeah. Is, yeah, it is not. I do not have a good impression of it from the outside looking in. The movie also just like. There was no hype for this. There was no excitement. It was just like a death march to get this movie out the door. Like, here, I mean, this is kind of the most damning thing I'll say about it. This is the first Harry Potter movie uh, I did not see on opening day or earlier. Right, yeah. And it's the first one since I've been writing movie reviews that I haven't written anything about. So take that as you will. Yeah. All right. Be uh, quickly, before we move on, I want to make one small correction to myself. Earlier, I said that the Lestranges were kind of like the Uchiha. Um, they are actually more like the Hyuga from Naruto. Now we may move on. Okay, good. I just didn't want anyone tweeting at me because it's very clear they're more like the Hyuga. All right. Let's move through a couple pieces of news, Sean. Um, first off, a sad piece of news. Um, Stan Lee is, I think, the big creative death in the industry we're talking about right now. But another... Um, Really influential person in Hollywood died this week, William Goldman, who was a novelist and a screenwriter. He died at the age of 87 this week, 1931 to 2018. Here are his four biggest credits. And it is crazy that any one person has all four of these movies on their rap sheet. The Princess Bride, All the President's Men, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and The Stepford Wives. Yeah. Those are the four biggest ones. There are others, definitely, and you should go look at his other work. He also, again, was a prolific novelist who had some very acclaimed novels. The Princess Bride was based on his novel version of that. He wrote the screenplay as well. Um, very weirdly, I watched the new Criterion Blu-ray of The Princess Bride just the other night, uh, like a day or two before he passed away. And I was watching that. I had not seen The Princess Bride since I was a kid. The new Criterion edition is awesome and gorgeous, and it's one of those sets they just had a lot of fun with. They made it look like a storybook and stuff. Uh, it's very cool. And it's an amazing movie. The Princess Bride is effectively a perfect movie. Yeah. Like, it is such a great script. It is so funny, and it gets funnier as it goes along, and you just kind of bathe in the movie's weird sense of tone and humor because it, it is kind of biting, but it also has, and, and like sardonic, but it has just this light touch on everything it does. It has this wonderful sense of artifice to the world, but also like it's very earnest and heartfelt in its characterization. Inigo Montoya is just one of the best characters ever. The scenes with the granddad and um, the, the, the grandson reading the story, I love all of that. I love the, the weird synth music score. It's so, it's a great movie, and at its core is just this great script. And, I mean, God, you want to study script writing. Princess Bride, All the President's Men, Butch Cassidy, and the Stepford Wives. 
Uh, the Stepford Wives not getting mentioned Butch enough. Butch Cassidy and the Stepford Wives is a very different movie. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I should say, people are usually mentioning the first three of those this week. Not enough people have seen the original Stepford Wives. Yeah. That's a brilliant movie and a brilliant script and people should see it. Um, but all of those. Like, those would be great first steps if you just want to be like, how do you write a great screenplay? Mm-hmm. Because those are, if nothing else, those are movies with great screenplays. Yeah, kind of like, I didn't watch the rewatch The Princess Bride right, right before this happened, but I was talking to someone about it that day... I think before I even had seen the news because they were asking me because they were putting together a unit of study on Frankenstein and they were wanting like they wanted to talk about the frame narrative in Frankenstein because it's an epistolary novel so the things like told through letters it's like what is an easy way to explain to someone a frame narrative and I thought for like two seconds it's like it's the Princess Bride yeah like that is the like you can show a five minute clip of the Princess Bride like transitioning between the grandfather story and then like the core main narrative with the Nego Montoya and all those characters and that's like the clearest like best use of a frame narrative I think I've seen in anything it's so good it like because it contextualizes the entire tone yeah. the entire world view the whole way the story is put together it's just this instant buy-in on and it means it's all working on two levels of emotionality these people in this storybook and this exchange between a grandfather and a grandson that brings them closer just by telling a story it's beautiful um it's also like the princess bride which is my favorite of these um that is one of the single most quotable movies ever Like, I feel like that, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and Ghostbusters, all released in about, like, ten years of each other, those have to be, like, the three most quotable movies, at least comedy-esque movies yeah. of all time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and The Princess Bride, for me, like, God, I mean, there's the, that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. That's one of those quotes I use, like, every other day. Yeah. You know? Or, you know, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Just one of the best lines ever. It's so great. Inconceivable! Oh, God, I love Wallace Shawn in that movie. Yeah. It's it's a hell of a thing. William Goldman, man, uh, what a fucking legacy. I just, I remember watching the movie the other night, and I'm like, man, is William Goldman still with us? This is, and I'm like, oh, he is. That's awesome. And then two days later, he died. And I'm like, that is, did I jinx it? This sucks. But, uh, you know, rest in peace, Mr. Goldman. That is... That's a fucking legacy right there. Yeah. All right. Um, moving on to something not sad, but completely weird. Mm-hmm. Detective Pikachu is a real movie, Sean. Yeah, I, I can no longer... I must step down from my hard platform of Detective Pikachu is not real. It cannot be real. I refuse to accept it. There's no fucking way. There's a movie, of like Hollywood movie being made that's live action, like CG hybrid based on the Detective Pikachu video game that just came out with Ryan motherfucking Reynolds playing Detective Pikachu. That I had a hardline stance that that is bullshit. It cannot happen. And I said very publicly that I would never accept it unless they showed a trailer. And they have not shown a trailer. And that is a real movie that is happening. And dude, I cannot ever, ever look at Pokemon the same way ever again. The Do not show me a Jigglypuff. I cannot take it. <laughs> the blend of emotions I felt watching that trailer was it was like oh you know this city I, I that looks kind of cool it's bill nye talking about pokemon that's kind of fun and yeah. then it, it's ken watanabe talking i like this i like i am i am game for ken watanabe talking about you will become a great pokemon yeah. trainer it's, you know i kind of it's like it's great i also kind of wish that if 
that Kanat Watanabe was not the only Japanese actor that can be in oh, the yeah. Hollywood movies yeah. when we base it on a Japanese property like in Godzilla. But I like Ken Watanabe uh, a lot, so I'll take him. Again, this is a can of worms we don't have time for today. Yeah, but it was just like, it just reminded me of like, right, fuck, we, yes. okay, yeah, right. Okay, yeah, Ken Watanabe, he's awesome, but holy shit, yeah. Hollywood, come on. Uh, yeah, no, uh, all fucked up. But Ken Watanabe's in there, he's talking about Pokemon, that's cool. The kid, played by, I think his name's Justice Smith, he looks neat, you know, looked nice. Justice. And then, and then Pikachu shows up, and he's got fur! What the fuck? It's not just fur, it's like, he's got fur! Like, like these, that's our hairy little mouse, man. He's a hairy little mouse. The I've seen a lot of people describing the Pokemon in this movie as photorealistic, and I would say photorealistic with the asterisk that their eyes are dead and plastic. Did you notice this? Yeah. It's... Like, Pikachu's eyes, it, like, I had a Pikachu plushed animal when I was a kid. It reminds me of that. Like, if you took my Pikachu plush, added a bunch of fur to it, but didn't take out the little plastic button eyes, it's creepy. Because it's like this moving, living, stuffed animal that looks like a real stuffed animal, but not a real thing. Yeah, it's this really weird... Like, middle ground between being, like, very faithful, like, they just look like Pokemon. Like, because it is the Pokemon designs. They're not, yes. It's not like the, the, the 90s Godzilla movie where they just completely fucked up Godzilla's design to the point where it wasn't even recognizable. Like, that's a fucking Pikachu. That's a fucking Psyduck. That's a Greninja or whatever. You know, those are those, are those Pokemon. I can clearly tell that. It is those designs. But they are just realistic-y looking enough that you're right. It's like they almost look like, like weird sort of like animated stuffed animals or something it's like this they're too hairy they're too something it's just it, it i don't like it what was the scariest pokemon in the trailer for I you i think it was was it was it a jigglypuff i think that was like on that table yeah. and looked it was like an angry jigglypuff that looked very realistic i'm like what the fuck what the fuck I just, what is that don't know because they're also they're like you know like the pokemon doesn't exist in like middle earth fantasy world but it doesn't exist exactly in earth world it's almost like kind of like how like dragon ball is on earth yes. and they're like cities and stuff but it's like just different enough it doesn't look like earth earth that's like what pokemon is but this looks like this is earth earth this looks like you know i like went to detroit or something and there was a pikachu walking down the sidewalk that's part of it to me is like it's an angry jigglypuff standing on like a diner table in like a rough like modern day like restaurant or something it's like no no they should be in weird happy pokemon world what's going on look i just i have a hard and fast principle in life that if something starts out animated and stylized like a pokemon you should never do a live action photorealistic version of it yeah ever it doesn't look right pikachu in 1998 was not drawn to go be at in a, a, a like CGI photorealistic creation in a Hollywood movie. He was drawn to be an anime character in a video game. Yeah. And in an anime. You know? It's it's like why have you seen those trailers for Alita Battle Angel? Oh yeah. That's that's like a different level of this, but yeah. yes. Yes, where they're like instead of just I don't know, casting a Japanese woman, they're like, we'll cast a non-Japanese woman, but we'll CGI her face to look like an anime character, and it's fucked up beyond belief. Yeah, and but she's the only CGI. I mean, obviously there are like CGI robot-looking things and stuff, but in terms of the human-looking characters, she's the only way the one that has a CGI face. Yes, it's like, what the who? 
why? Why would you ever do that? (laughs) Like, those Alita Battle Angel things and Detective Pikachu also both feel like movies that were made because somebody lost a bet. They do. Someone was like, we're going to, like, this, like, kind of more obscure 80s manga property Battle Angel, uh, Alita Battle Angel, based a movie on that, and it's like someone lost a bet that's like, you're going to have to do the whole movie, and Alita's going to have a CGI face with giant anime eyes on it. It's like fuck. We lost that bet. God, we guess we gotta make the movie. Say this like, oh, we're gonna make a Pikachu. We're gonna make a Pokemon movie, huh? Yeah. Well, guess what? You're gonna have to pay it based on fucking Detective Pikachu, and Deadpool's gonna be Pikachu. Like, what? Yeah. But it's like, because I, I guess I should have seen this coming, but I was kind of thinking it would just be people with like Pokemon in the world, you know, like like yeah. not like Pikachu wouldn't be furry. He'd just be Pikachu. Yeah. It's like he has fur, but like Pikachu has like coarse fur like like that's close to the body is what it always seemed like it wasn't yeah. like he's very fuzzy it's just like no they like you know like Mankey Mankey is a Pokemon that is very fuzzy looking yes this Pikachu's got Mankey fur and that's fucking weird yeah oh and you know we said who's the scariest Pokemon in this it's Mr. Mime yeah but Mr. Mime is the scariest yeah Pokemon, he's already so. scary so he doesn't count for me and also that I like because I should say, all the weird shit aside, it's a pretty good trailer. I actually agree. That's my point. Is yeah. that this is the like ride of emotions? Is that weird and scary? It's an interesting trailer. I actually don't mind the Ryan Reynolds thing. It wouldn't be my first choice of casting, but he's not doing Deadpool. That is what I yeah, appreciated. He's fine. He's fine. Yeah. Like it's you know I still I agree. Danny DeVito should be Pikachu. Look, I've seen all the trailers where they take the dialogue from It's Always Sunny and they put it in here and it's fucking amazing. Yeah. And God, I cannot wait for the full movie to be out and someone does a full take Danny DeVito's career and just put it into this two-hour Pokemon movie. That's going to be great. But it looks like an okay movie. Yeah, I... Mr. Mime was appropriately creepy and I thought that I was like, hey, this fucking trailer ended on an extended Mr. Mime joke where Mr. Mime is actually a mime and that's kind of fucking amazing. Like, look, I'll... I'll stake the claim right now. I would say there is an above 90% chance this will be the best live-action video game movie of all time. Fuck. I mean, there's not a lot of... What would be the competition? Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got the Super Mario Brothers movies. Pre-fucking-something. It just... This one looks like there's effort being put into it. Now, do I need all the effort put into every individual strand of Pikachu fur? Not necessarily. But this one, like... It, it looks like Hollywood actually tried this time. Yeah. Now, who knows? The movie could be shit. But it's okay. It's it's way better than a trailer like this has any right to be. Yeah. All scary Pokemon aside. I mean, I also, like, I appreciated that when Pikachu was doing the Pikachu voice, it was... Yeah, Yuki Otani. Yeah. It, it, was, it was fucking Pikachu going, that's all. Yes. Like, okay, that's Pikachu. So two Japanese actresses in the movie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there, right. there we go. Yeah. So I bet she's not even credited. Yeah, so... I yeah, She's probably credited. Um, the English language version, I'm not so sure. We'll see. We'll I, definitely see. I'm gonna bet that she has a contract on that okay. that's pretty ironclad. <laughs> After 20 know. years of being yeah. Pikachu. Uh, anyway, but we will see. Yeah, um... Also, oh oh, sorry, the Danny DeVito trailers are great. There was also one where someone cut this together with the theme song to True Detective Season 1. Oh yeah, I saw that, yeah. uh, True Detective Pikachu. That one's amazing. Uh, There's just been a lot of good mashups, and and you should just go have a day or an hour watching those. It's fun. Do you think that Ryan Reynolds only is in this role so that he can do a joke about it at Deadpool 3? Because that was immediately... As soon as I heard... Because I knew he was going to be in the movie. But as soon as I heard it, I was like, he... Is only doing this because he wants to make a fucking Pikachu joke in Deadpool 3. Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah. Right. Like, I wouldn't, I don't know if it's the only reason. I mean, I'm sure it's a good, it's a decent paycheck and maybe he likes Pokemon. And he has kids. He'd probably like to be able to watch one of his movies. But, but like, if you like (laughs) injected truth serum into Ryan Reynolds and asked him the question, why are, did you pick Pikachu in Detective Pikachu? It's like that fucking Deadpool joke writes itself, man. It really does. I'm very excited for it. Look, you know, I like the Deadpool movies. It's going to be fun when he gets there and and makes the Pikachu joke. We're all waiting for it. Yep. There's a whole extra level of meta that he knows we're all waiting for it. Exactly. So, yeah. um, I think they should just do a Deadpool short before Detective Pikachu. (laughs) Just, uh, do you think they're doing the Deadpool 2 PG-13 cut? So that, like, kids who like Detective Pikachu can go watch Deadpool? Yeah, it's like to onboard them into Deadpool so you know, yes. to, to get that fucking Deadpool 3 money. Alright, quick piece of Doctor Who news. Doctor Who is not doing a Christmas special this year. Sacrilege. Yeah. They're doing a New Year's Day special. I know it's only, like, six days apart, but that does break my heart just a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's a bummer. Like, I wish that it, like... Just if like the I wish the move they made was just like what if we just had a Doctor Who episode on Christmas and we just said it didn't have it to have anything to do with Christmas. I feel like that's the move that needed to be made because yeah. a lot of the I don't think this has ever been like specifically confirmed. Nobody has said this, but a lot of the conversation has been they wanted to move it because Chris Chibnall just didn't want to have to write an episode that had a bunch of Christmas shit in it. You know, maybe it would have forced him to be creative for the first goddamn time this season. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sympathetic, and I feel like the past handful of Christmas specials, you know, like Return of Dr. Mysterio or whatever, had, like, very little Christmassy stuff. It was, like, I think in a couple of shots. I think I think maybe the beginning of the episode was technically yes. during Christmas. But, you know, a lot of the, the past couple ones had basically nothing to do with Christmas. There was just shots with some snow in it, and that's basically all you needed. And you can fucking do that. Just have a shot with some snow But it, also, it. this is my point, is, like, it... I think Stephen Moffat had fun with it. Like, yes, yeah. like let's find like ultimately, does the husbands of River Song need to be set on Christmas? No. Is it fun that the Doctor comes out in a goddamn reindeer hat at the beginning of that episode and it's snowing? Yeah, yeah. And the the Christmas element of that one like informs so much about the tone of it, yes. which I think is often what he used as like you know like the last Christmas is like that's a, that's a really good episode and he uses Christmas in it, but it's like. Not like it's not critical or necessary for it, but it, it gets you like in the right mood and the right tone for that yeah. story, right? Yeah, and I guess just for me, it's been a th- I mean, this is there have been 13 Christmas specials, so like it's been over a decade of tradition that I really loved. It's just something I loved doing on Christmas Day and, and getting to watch that episode and doing it on New Year's is just I, we don't celebrate New Year's that way it's not the same kind of thing yeah. so it's fine it's like you know hopefully we're, yeah we're not losing an episode of Doctor no. Who we're getting a special which is nice but yeah it just I guess it feels to me like a lot of this season I feel like so much more thought was put into how can we make the surface of this thing look different than Doctor Who has been rather than how can we write Doctor Who effectively yeah. And so they've done a lot of cosmetic changes. And no, I do not mean changing the Doctor's gender before I get any notes on that. Right. I, I mean, like, we're going to do uh, our weird new title sequence. So we're going to have a new widescreen aspect ratio. And we're going to have a fucking weird-ass TARDIS that looks horrible. We're going to abandon the cold open because we're, gonna, we're monsters. We're going to abandon the composer of 15 yeah. years or whatever. You know, like all no of these... No credits th- face because they're monsters. No credits face. Like, uh, just a lot of these cosmetic things that don't really add up to much. But... I don't know. So who knows? We'll see. That's Doctor Who news. I frankly don't care a lot about Doctor Who right now because it's bad. So we'll get back to that. Uh, Bigger news, Sean. Sony 
The purveyors, oh, right. the, the purveyors of the PlayStation brand, you may have heard of it. So much happened this week, Jonathan. Holy shit. I know, I know. They are skipping E3 2019. Uh, that's a, they announced that this week, which is an early time to announce that. Yeah. Because this is November, E3 is in June, so this is over six months in advance. Um, but they will not be there next year. They will not be on the show floor. They will not have a show. It does not sound like they're going to do anything around E3. Like, I don't think they're even doing the Nintendo style, like, we're going to have a fun live stream. Yeah, at least they haven't said specifically they were. Yeah, but they are out. Uh, everyone else, like, reaffirmed their support. So this is not like E3 is dead next year. But Sony, the biggest player in the console market at the moment, will be gone. There's a lot of reasons this could be. I think the Occam's Razor explanation is... All the games they showed last year, minus Spider-Man, will not be out by next E3, and they would just have to yeah, show trailers for them all again. And all the reports are they're planning the PS5 for 2020, and they probably just want to wait until 2020 to do this kind of thing again. Still, it's a big move, especially and, and as a podcast that you might have noticed spends an inordinate amount of time covering E3 every year. Uh, I thought it was worth getting our two cents on this. Yeah, I, I'm like still processing this. Like it, it. It took me a while when I saw that news to like understand to like really understand what that means because Sony has been a major player at E3 since E3 was was ever a thing. Like when E3 was invented, Sony was there and they had shit there and like it it's you know and certainly for like the the length of our podcast covering E3, Sony has been always the press conference I'm the kind of the most excited for and the most looking forward to because they've had the most interesting the most eclectic strange presentations and often had the most interesting games to show um, because you know EA has been uh, just you know a disaster at E3 for a long time Microsoft has been so inconsistent and then Ubisoft is just like high and raving in a corner basically every E3 it looks like a dancing panda bear or whatever and like Sony is doing something that has always been doing something really interesting and they're like, again, it's important to stress, it's not just that they're not doing a press conference. Like, Nintendo hasn't done a press conference in, like, five-plus years, I think, at this point. But Nintendo is at E3. They, you know, they showed Breath of the Wild. They had, like, I remember, like, that year when they were showing Breath of the Wild at E3 when I was listening to um, video game podcasts. They would say, like, they had, like, the only thing they showed was just Breath of the Wild, and they had, like, 50 fucking Breath of the Wild kiosks at E3. So Nintendo, while they... they don't have a live press conference. They just do their Nintendo Direct thing. They are physically at E3 showing games to the press. A lot of stories come out of Nintendo at E3 because people are there playing the games, right? Yeah, and it's the same thing with EA two years ago, I think, stopped showing, stopped doing their press conference at E3. They technically had, like, their own EA Live event or whatever, like, in L.A. right by where the, the press, or the, uh, the, the area where E3 was being held. But even then, they were still showing games. It was just like half a block away from technically where E3 was. Then this year, or like E3 2018, um, Microsoft did the same thing. And they were not technically... I think they still had like booths at E3, but they also did their own show separate from E3, but at the same time. And so, and that's one of the reasons why the E3 schedule has gotten expanded, is that people have been kind of moving away from E3. But it's so huge for Sony to just say, nah, fuck it, fuck it. We're no, we're just like it's not. We're gonna do again, and there's a there's entirely a chance that they will have some live stream thing that they will announce something around that period. Who knows? That's that's still absolutely a chance, but they're not going to show games to people at E3. Like they're not going to be on that show floor in that space, one hundred percent for certain by that. And for them to just say that and to back out like one hundred percent 
from like from like nothing from being like we're all in we're one of the major players at e3 we're one of the main people that people come up and like show up for at e3 to see our shit we are the like titan of the industry at this point they have like almost 90 million ps4 sold it's ridiculous for them to go from there to just saying immediately fuck it we're backing out that feels like e3 is dying like that feels like i don't know if e3 is going to be able to main like manage to be relevant anymore because for the people that have been backing off sony just saying we don't need it at all we will do our own event that announces the ps5 stuff whenever the fuck we want and we don't need e3 to do that which is what this feels like to me that that's like well at some point if the if sony's not there why do ea and microsoft and ubisoft and nintendo and like you know fucking thq nordic and all like the smaller third-party publishers why do they all have to be at e3 like, why don't they just wait until, like, PAX comes around and show their shit at PAX if they want to? And then for the major people, have their own event that they have their own headlines and get to do their own shit. Yeah, I mean, I'll put it this way. It's either going to be the beginning of the end of E3, or Sony has made a terrible mistake and it's going to hurt Sony in some way. Yeah. Because, you know, if you have a building, and the building has, like, four giant support beams, and you think, I'm going to knock out the most important of those support beams... Either the place comes down, or the support beam wasn't as important as you thought it was. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because that's what I've been thinking of. Like, I think the Occam's Razor explanation I laid out is definitely part of it. I feel like there needs to be a little more to fully explain it, because, like, Nintendo have had years where they don't have a ton, but they find something. And also, Nintendo is absolutely the industry leader at setting their own conversation, right? Right, yeah. Like, whenever Nintendo wants to, they don't even have to rent space anywhere in the world. They don't have to show up at a show. They can just say, tomorrow at 9.30 a.m., we're doing a direct, and it will be the news for three days, right? Yeah. They can do that. Um, No one else has quite caught up to Nintendo at that. Nintendo still shows up at E3, and they show their stuff, and they get their stories, right? So they kind of have a best-of-both-world approach. Sony is totally pulling out. And that's either going to be, well, the biggest pillar, because Sony is the industry leader at the moment in the console space, just pulled out, and that's going to bring the building down. Or, next year, this is the year, and I don't know, the reports are more iffy on the Xbox when they're planning on launching again. But, you know, maybe in 2019, just hypothetically, Xbox announces the Xbox 2. They have a big push. Maybe Microsoft has something really impressive to show, which would make sense given all the work they've done behind the scenes over the last five, six years, what an impressive piece of tech the Xbox One X is, all of that. And they are announcing we're launching this fall in 2019, and we have all of these, and maybe we have some new games because we've been working on this behind the scenes. And we I haven't would be had very any... surprised if they yeah. have new games for 2019 for the Xbox One, let alone the Xbox yeah. Two. Well, yeah. we'll see. Halo Infinite is out there in the ether somewhere. Almost certainly not an Xbox One game. <laughs> so anyway but they announced this and because Sony is not there they are the only conversation happening that week at E3 that gives them you know um, motivation going into the fall and in the fall the Xbox 2 does really well and the PS4 suffers because maybe it has some good exclusives but they were not part of like the narrative in the mainstream consciousness that year and Xbox sees an upswing because Sony has kind of taken their ball and gone home now I don't think either of those extremes are probably the most likely scenarios. Like, E3 is not going to die next year, and I don't think Sony has shot themselves in the foot. I'm just saying that these are, like, tail possibilities on the, you know, on the graph that, like, I can see kind of these things going in either way. Because, again, like, if the Occam's Razor is Sony just doesn't have new games to show, I get that. Then you don't have to hold the press conference. It still doesn't make sense to not be on the show floor, right? Yeah, but I think it's like I think it's the the confluence of two things. I think it's one 
this console cycle is winding down and they are like i think this feels the most clearly like okay the ps5 is going to be 2020 like that's yeah that's where we are um which means that basically this slate of you know days gone we know is going to be february or whatever um I think it got pushed again. Yeah, I think it got pushed to, like, March or something. Whatever. Like, Days Gone has release date. It will come out spring or whatever of uh, 2019. Then Last of Us 2 is probably fall of 2019. Death Stranding, maybe 2019, maybe 2020. I don't fucking know. Death Stranding could be a PS6 game. Yeah, who knows with Death Stranding. Like, Ghost of Tsushima seems like that is going to be, like, the last PlayStation 4 exclusive from Sony. Like, that feels like that's... Which means, because I, I, I just think we have seen the last of the Sony first-party lineup for the PS4 already. Because like, there's that, and there's also Dreams, the Media Molecule game. That has spanned now the full life of the PS4, because that was announced at the announcement of the PS4, and is about to come out, uh, I think, early next year. They, they also have a release date for that, I think. Because um, they've shown it off at, like, TGS and stuff. So, so like, it makes sense then to be like, well, we're winding that stuff down. We've already announced all the, the games that are, would make sense to be exclusive for the PS4. I'm guessing Horizon Zero Dawn 2 is going to be the PS5 launch game because that timeline more or less uh, kind of like works because that's about three years or so since Horizon Zero Dawn 1 came out. Uh, if, that, if, if the PS5 is, is fall 2020. And so it makes sense if they don't have anything really new to show to be like, oh, we're not going we don't, we're, they wouldn't have a big presence at E3 either way because they're not going to announce the PS5 so early ahead of time because it would just cut into their PS4 sales. And so, and then so it's that combined with E3's relevance has been waning anyways. And that's why we have seen everybody has been backing away from E3. The only, now at this point, the only company that is full, like major video game company that is full in on E3 is Ubisoft. That's it. EA does not do their press conference at E3. It's around E3. Microsoft does not do their shit at E3. It is around E3. Like people have been like flawed, like, you know, E3 is like this, like light bulb that is slowly going out and the moths are kind of flooding around it now, but they're not banging into it constantly. Like it's like full force in their face. And, and E3 is like floundering in terms of like, oh, we, they have started like last year, I think was the first year they allowed um, like consumers to attend the show and was previously only press and and obviously like like um people in the industry were allowed to be there now they sell tickets for consumers and and that seems like that has been a like crazy you know fluctuating process it just seems like e3 is in this like really strange place as a show and so that those two things coming together feel like that is what makes sony go like well we don't really need e3 nobody really needs needs e3 anymore if we don't have a huge thing to show there why not just pull out not spend all the money on the like show floor and putting together the fucking press conference and hiring a fucking orchestra. Like we don't need to do all that shit. Let's just pull out and bide our time and build the show when we need the show. And then we get all the headlines. And that's just what it feels like to me. No, I agree. And yeah, we'll see where this goes. I, I think E3 could play a very different role when the next generation of consoles comes yeah. around. Um, you know, everyone is, it seems to be trying to build their own, kind of ecosystems here and there to try to do the Nintendo thing and be able to... Because, again, like Nintendo launched the Switch completely off of the E3 timetable. Because, yeah. remember, like, the E3 before the Switch launch, they were showing Zelda on the Wii U right, because yeah. they didn't show the Switch yet. They showed off the Switch in November with a video. The Switch was out in March. And the Switch is a huge success. So they just completely bypassed that entire train. Yeah, I think Sony could do it. 
Microsoft is like the last player to the table of making their own. Sh- like they just had one a couple weeks ago, and I feel like yeah, no their one... XO event or whatever yeah. that they like announced nothing other than they confirmed that they bought Obsidian, which we already knew. Yeah, and I think they showed some like Sea of Thieves DLC, DLC, and like a trailer for Crackdown Three. So there was a multiplayer trailer for Crackdown Three. Yes, so that game does actually technically still exist. Yeah, we'll see. But yeah, um, anyway. So, who knows where this is all going. The prospect of a new generation being uh, near terrifies me. I feel like, it's like, I just bought the PS4 Pro. Fuck you guys. No, I'm kidding. But it just is like, we're going to have to do this whole thing, song and dance again. We're going to have to do fucking prediction episodes and all that shit. But we'll get there when we I mean, remember, it's it's at the end of 2020. I know, it's it's two full years away. Yeah, Yeah. so it's like, it's further away than 2020 sounds, because at least it's at the end of 2020. Yes, It's, it's when we get to elect a new president, Sean. Right, yeah. yeah. It'll be a whole new era in a lot of ways. Hopefully. Maybe. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's Sony skipping E3. Anything else to say about that? I think it's like we, you know, it, it'll be a while till we find out what Sony's actual strategy is around this. Because they, I don't think they have, like, really spoken about it. No. At all. It came out from, and, like, Vulture Report. And, you know, they've also, they're not doing their PSX thing this year. Yeah, I guess what I feel like is the weirdest thing is is Sony just going radio silent for a while? Like, I mean, I know they they have their blog and they have their like they're not like pulling down their Twitter accounts or anything. Yeah, but it is going to be kind of weird if we go another like whole year without them doing any kind of significant show for the brand. That feels odd to me. Yeah, I think there will be some. Like, I think they will either like make a big thing at like a Paris Games Week or Gamescom or TGS or like something like that next year. They'll do something bigger there. And I think they will have their own of it in some way. Even if it is just because, you know, they are going to want to show off more of The Last of Us Part Two, Ghost of Tsushima, and Death Stranding. Like, like they're not big E3 games necessarily, but they are huge games that they will have more, like, concrete stuff to show at some point. Particularly for Tsushima that only had the Paris Games Week, like, cinematic trailer yeah. and that one E3 demo. I mean, so if, we will see more of that shit. Of course. I'm just wondering where. Because if Last of Us 2 is next fall's big game... It will be the biggest game of the fall. Oh, yes, yeah. And I'm just curious how they're going to... And I guess we saw, like, Red Dead 2 did almost no marketing. Yeah, Red Dead 2 never showed... I mean, Rockstar hasn't been at an E3 in longer than people have been pulling out of E3. Like, they stopped doing shit at E3, like, before Nintendo pulled out. Yes, and so, like, they barely needed anything, and the game sold nearly GTA Five levels of copies. And it's Rockstar, so it's different, but, you know, clearly, like, E3 does not have the influence I think people think it has... Or maybe our five-hour podcast suggested has, but uh, I am curious where they choose to like deploy their resources. Yeah. Is all. Either so, way, this E3 is going to be a really fucking interesting one for different reasons than I would have it, thought going in. It is, yes. All right, final piece of news this week is Criterion, the Criterion Collection. We love they they release all the best movies here in the yep. states. They have announced a new standalone Criterion Channel streaming service. It will launch spring 2019. It is roughly the same pricing plan that Filmstruck, which has been shuttered, it is ending at the end of this month, November, uh, had, which is like $10.99 a month for the Criterion channel. They said it will basically have all the same Filmstruck stuff. They want it to have the same curated structure. So the sky is not falling, Sean. Yes, exactly. That was just like, okay, yeah, of course they are. Like, it's a faster turnaround than I would have expected for them to announce this, but... I think we both said on the like when we did the Filmstruck yeah. podcast episode is like well there'll probably be something like either they will go back to Hulu Netflix will pick them up like they will go somewhere or they'll make their own thing and lo and behold here we are yeah I mean it's funny because like the day before this was announced I got so annoyed 
at the Twitter discourse on this, I did a little thread just just putting my two cents out there because, look, I love the passion, everyone. Yeah. I love the passion. I love that there's so much passion for a service where you went to watch, like, Rosalini movies. Yes. All right? That's cool. But a streaming channel... I don't care what the streaming channel is. A streaming channel going down is not the same as world history and culture being abandoned yeah. to the fires of time. Right. It just isn't. And I keep kept seeing these tweets going around of like, you know, if, if, a, if a company like Warner doesn't want to have a, a service like Filmstruck, where will we learn of our, of our cultural history? Libraries. It's like where schools. we did before. Yeah. Like streaming has only been around for like 10 years. Yeah. Or 10, maybe less than 10 years is a popular thing. And I, what the I, fuck? And I get it. Filmstruck is a lot cheaper than going out and buying all the Criterion Blu-rays. It was convenient. It had more stuff than they have on disc. It was great for educators. All of that is true. But there is something... Like, people have this weird fever about streaming that I just fundamentally don't get. Where they act like it is the only thing. And it annoys me. You know, I went to this academic conference in San Francisco a couple weeks ago that I told you guys about. And I was talking to someone there, a fellow PhD student, you know... Um, so working at the same academic level as I am, and I recommended a film, and they're like, do you think that's on Netflix? And I'm like, you know, I really no, don't know. probably not. Uh, no, probably not. Yeah, I was trying to be polite and be like, no, probably not. And she's like, ah, too bad, I really only watch stuff on Netflix. And I'm like, you cannot be a serious academic and only use streaming services. I want to make that on a shirt? Yeah. Like... I mean, especially not Netflix. Like, Netflix has not been... Has never been, like, a great platform for movies, but it's definitely not one now. No, especially not for, like... The movies you would use in any kind of research setting. Like, yeah. you know, and I get it. I I do research with film, like, I guess I can say for a living now. You know, because sure, this is, yeah, this yeah. is my both employment and I am a student. But so, like, I, I probably know the tools that are out there better. But, like, again, it's, it is not hard to go find uh, a DVD or... A, a library that might have it or a school if you live in a college town that means you probably have a college library and people don't know this but any citizen can use a college library if you're a tax-paying citizen they'll let you use it it's yeah. your goddamn tax dollars they'll let you go rent out a dvd um you can find these things get a fucking vpn and pirate that shit if you really yeah. can't find it anywhere else i'm totally fine with that like you know it, it is possible filmstruck is more convenient and i do get that but like it was just the hyperbole of it. And and people acting like this really was like that no one's ever going to do a classic film streaming service again. It's all done. We did it once. We're never going to do it again. Yeah. And because to my view, my view was always, and I said this the day before it happened, that like if Criterion could get this up and running away from a major conglomerate, they will be better off. And I think I'm right on that. Because they were tied to the mast of Warner Media. They were tied to Warner Brothers who got acquired by AT&T a conglomerate that big and transnational does not care about this niche thing. You yeah. know, they just don't. This is a company that cares about, you know, fucking Fantastic Beasts 2. Like, that's what they're trying to do. They're AT&T. They're trying to sell you phones. Filmstruck is not the kind of thing they're going to care about. And for the long-term health of a company like that, you just cannot be tied to the mast of a giant soulless conglomerate. Whatever Doctor Who told us this week. <laughs> we'll get back to that later. Um and, you know, now they are launching a standalone Criterion Channel streaming service. If that works, there is so much more upside for them on that. Because they are not beholden to AT and fucking T, you know? They can do their own thing. And I think it could work. I think the same number of subscribers as Filmstruck being on an independent one is probably just fine for Criterion. Yeah. So we will see. But the sky is not falling. It was never falling. It sucked and it was bad. 
But like, I just, I guess there was just this, and then this happened and people were like, oh my God. And I'm like, this was, again, this was like the probable outcome. This was the modal outcome, we might say, yeah. is that they launched, and, and also Warner is also on their own streaming service next year going to have all the Criterion movies also. So they'll be in two places. Like, again, this is a, this, this collection they have is the envy of the world. Every other country that studies film wish they had one centralized thing like the Criterion collection. We have it. Somebody was going to want it. Just because one of the world's biggest conglomerates didn't want it doesn't mean no one wants it. Yeah. It, it definitely was one of those things where it felt like being big Doctor Who fans, I feel like we're calibrated to like, you don't know what it's like to yes. not be able to have access to that shit because we literally do not have access to old Doctor Who shit and we can still kind of watch it because of how passionate and dedicated people can be about archiving this stuff and it's like even if those episodes don't exist we have the fucking audio we have fucking television stills and there are like a dozen plus versions of different reconstructions of all those episodes some of which that now with now animation and stuff like there are ways to find that stuff and and get access to it even when the like actual material has been destroyed in some ways and it's like like you said it's like if at the end of the day if you have to pirate it like you have to pirate it like it's not like that maybe it's like the dark dirty secret but that's not the end of the world that actually doesn't matter that much with something like that where even if you paid money for it it wouldn't be going to the people that made the fucking thing right it's so it's it's i'm with you that it was just strange to see people go into histrionics about that stuff and when it was like it, it would be like if all of a sudden kindle or something stopped existing and it was like well, how do we read books? What? How do you? How does it? It's like I just like you fucking buy a book. Like what do you? What do you mean? Go buy a fucking like critical Norton edition of Moby Dick, and you have a million times better book than whatever you had on your fucking Kindle. Like come on. Oh my God! Donald Trump just outlawed treadmills by executive order. What do we do to walk? Exactly. It's just a weird. There, there's like a learned helplessness or something to it of like you where like guys streaming has not been around that long like. We can do this. We can we can get over this. And and I have and my I, Zatoichi in my bunker, and I'm good. And I also just want to point out, as I have said before, the way these economic models work is unless you are Netflix and have the biggest audience in the world, a nine ninety nine a month streaming plan is not going to allow you to do the kind of work Criterion has been doing for decades now. Yeah. If you really want to support Criterion, buy some discs from them. You don't have to buy, build a collection like mine or like someone who has done all 900 releases or something like that. You know, God, no, you don't have to do that. But right now is November. The Barnes & Noble sale is going on all month. They're all 50% off. You know, that get pay $20, get one of their awesome editions, have it for your library. No one can ever take it from you. And you support them because the, the money, like if, if Criterion One Day is only doing streaming... They're not going to be able to do bonus features. They're not going to be able to do essays. They're not going to be able to do commentaries. They might not even be able to do restorations. The reason why film archival for public consumption is in the state it's in is because of the years from like 2000 to like, I don't know, 2012, 13, when home video was really, really big and we could afford to do those big special editions. Streaming does not afford you to do that. Digital yeah. releases don't afford you to do that. And... So I just, again, I would urge if it's, if it's really important to you and you have the means. I understand some people don't have the means, and that is totally understandable. Um, just buy a disc once in a while and feel good about it. Because that is, ultimately, at the end of the day, if Criterion was streaming only and didn't have the disc part of it, none of this would exist. Yeah. 
And so, if you have the means, get that fucking Zatoichi set. There you go. God damn it, man. Yeah. Fucking A. I'm, I'm having to buy some Dragon Ball Blu-rays this month, as you guys heard. So I'm not buying as much as I normally do for the November Criterion sale. But I did pick up that Princess Bride set. It's very cool. You should get yeah. that one. It's nice. I might also get uh, My Dinner with Andre, because I was watching that, and Wallace Shawn is in that. And I'm like, I've never seen My Dinner with Andre. Yeah, I either. like Wallace Shawn. That's a Criterion disc. Maybe I'll get that one. So who knows? Anyway, Criterion is cool. Glad they have a streaming service. That'll be coming next year, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more then. Yeah. All right. So, Sean, you want to talk about the biggest piece of news this week, our first topic today. Uh, we're 90 minutes in. Our first, our, our next topic today yeah. is the life of Stan Lee, 1922 to 2018, the man who is the figurehead of Marvel Comics, one of the dominant cultural figures of our times, a man whose legacy is too big for any obituary-esque thing to encompass, but we are going to say our piece. Um, this is one of those, when, it, when I saw the news alert, it was like, it both felt inevitable and like this was something that could never happen yeah. because he felt literally larger than life. But I'm going to defer to you here, Sean, because while I have certainly, everyone has been impacted by the work of Stan Lee, I have been through a lot of the movie and TV adaptations and games and things like that. You are one of the people who goes to the source, and you know his work very intimately from all the comics you read. Yeah. So, you want to say some things about Mr. Stan Lee? Stan the man? Yeah, smiling Stan Lee. I mean, man, there's, it's, like you said, it is impossible to, like, contain his legacy in anything. It's like, there have been a lot of really fascinating and, like, really well-researched and well-written obituaries all over the place that people should like you just like google something about stan lee and you will get dozens of them and i've been reading a lot of them over the past week or so and so many of them have been so good because and the thing that's really interesting and in, with stan lee is trying to grapple with that legacy and grapple with like the full scope of it and like the good and the bad um because there's a lot of stuff if you are not into the comic side of things there's a lot of this, uh, there's so much that people do not know about stan lee and like the nature of how marvel came to be how these characters came to be and why he was so important, like, but also like what he actually did at Marvel. And there's like, there's a couple of things that people should know about Stan Lee. One, Stan Lee was not a good storyteller. That's not, that was not his job. That's not what he did at Marvel. And I know that people think that he's the guy that wrote, like made those stories because he is the writer. But the way that comic books worked at Marvel, and one of the things that Stan Lee did is that it was an artist first model in terms of the creation. Not necessarily in terms of the crediting, and certainly not in terms of the money, but Stan Lee did not create that system. Um, but and we'll, I'll probably get into more of that later. But it was an artist first system in terms of how you created the comic book, in that and the artist, like Jack Kirby, the king, Jack Kirby, um, who you know basically made the Fantastic Four. He was the artist on like a bunch of that stuff, like Incredible Hulk. Um, he, no, he didn't do Daredevil, but he did a bunch of those stories. And the Fantastic Four, which was the flagship Marvel series, uh, that was him. And so it was his creative force. He's the one that drew the panels, who created basically the plotting. Like, it, it's argued, like, oh, like, how much did Stan Lee do the, like, create the overarching plot? How much did Jack Kirby create the plot? It probably fluctuated depending on the issue. Um, but, you know, he created the pace of the story. He created the flow of the story. He created how basically the story was told. And then Stan Lee put dialogue to it and, and put, like, dialogue into the word balloons. And that was his job in terms of creating individual issues. So if you read a bunch of those old comics and you, like, have read any of the first, like, 30 issues of Amazing Spider-Man and you love those stories, the person you have to credit most for that is Steve Ditko. If you read the first, however, like, like 
bunch like dozens and dozens of issues of Fantastic Four and you loved those and loved those stories, the person you have most to credit for that is Kirby. For Stan Lee, what Stan Lee did is he is basically the greatest showman of the 20th century and like the greatest like editorial force, I think, in the history of comic books. Because what he did was he was the steward for all of those series, for Fantastic Four, for Spider-Man, for Journey into Mystery slash Thor, for like Strange Tales or slash Iron Man, for fucking just everything. Like like all those characters he's credited with, like Doctor Strange, like he made those characters with the artist and the artist should be as equally recognized in that, if not more so. But he was writing the dialogue for and involved in the plotting for all of those different characters for like the first 10 years or something at Marvel. Like he, he was the, the writer for Spider-Man for the first hundred issues of Spider-Man, which is almost unheard of. It's like you never, even like back then, you never saw that. And so he, what he did in that is he created the voice of Marvel. And that is, that is what I think of when I think of Stanley. I think that's what most people think of, whether you've read his writing or you, you know, saw his cameo in, in every Marvel movie or saw interviews with him. He had that incredible voice, both in terms of like his actual tone of voice is so iconic and his pacing, but like the words he chose and how he, how he said it. And he just created this whole identity of Marvel Comics, which was set apart from what National Comics, which now we know as DC at the time, or any of their other competitors, when Timely turned into Marvel with Fantastic Four number one and Stanley took over as the, the primary editor, he decided to make a bunch of really critical shifts in terms of the style of the books, in terms of the style of the characters, um, and in terms of the voice of the whole project that was so much more youthful, so much more vibrant, so much more engaging, so much more sort of informed by more classical literature. Like Shakespeare was a big influence to him, which you see very clearly in his writing and in like how he structured characters and like approached different kinds of characters and made them more humanistic than, than any superhero characters you had seen before. And that quality is what made Marvel rise to the top. And it is, it was like the most fun part about rereading all of those Spider-Man comics in that format that I went into like great detail on, on that issue and why I wanted, or that, that, that issue of the podcast, that, that, that episode, episode of the podcast, podcast, why I went into such detail and why I wanted to find those versions of the comics is because that's where you see all the extra stuff. That's where you see Stanley's soapbox. That's where you see the Marvel bullpen page where they talk about what the upcoming issues are, where they talk about this brief flirtation with trying to call comic books pop art instead of comic books as like a vibe for like more mainstream acceptance, which lasted, I think, one issue. I think maybe it wasn't even a full issue. It was like, yeah, we kind of did this with half of our series. And then we're like, no, people didn't like that. They're just called comic books. And they're motherfucking comic books, goddammit. And it's, it's all that shit. It's the fucking advertisement for the rock reflections of a superhero that we talked about that has fucking Stan Lee's, like, portrait on it, like, talking about Spider-Man and, and this whole album. That voice and identity for Marvel, which ran through everything and also connected the different characters together into this unified, unified New York City where Spider-Man you know, would run into the human torch and they would like get into a big fight in the middle of a, a story like that stuff that unified it and gave this like unique total voice to Marvel is what Stan Lee, I think brought to those comics and, and made them so powerful. So that, that like just drew everybody together and brought the superhero comic book back to life because before the Fantastic Four, superhero comics were basically dead. And if you weren't Superman, you couldn't make one. And even if you're Superman, you had to make some weird, like, you know, Superman's pal 
comics or or Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. You had to like do all that kind of stuff. And he just, you know, he and Jack Kirby in particular just ignited this whole new life into comic books and making the Silver Age with Fantastic Four and then carrying that on with the other characters and the other artists like Steve Ditko and, and John Romita that worked there. That, that has created now the pop cultural moment we're in because the lesson that the movies learned that have made them work so well is to find that voice again and to find that, like, that, that very human heart uh, in the characters that Stan Lee always managed to find, to find that clarity of storytelling that his dialogue always exposed. Because, you know, I love Jack Kirby, but if you, and, and his new gods work that he did at DC after he left Marvel is amazing, but it is also not particularly accessible. And Stan Lee always found a way in the dialogue and the narrative captions to make very accessible, powerful, direct, affecting stories that really reached the viewer and, and, and would draw you in. And that's why I think they, they became so popular with, with Stan Lee's writing. And, and he, so the movies learned all of that and then they put Stan Lee into every goddamn movie because how could you not? Because as soon as you saw that dude, you have to, right? Because yeah. he is, again, he is the face of it. He's the voice of it. He is the greatest showman we have, you know, or had, I guess now. And and that's, it was just an incredible talent that, that made everybody love him. Everybody loved the work that he did and everybody loved this, like that strange world of Marvel that he helped create. You know, it's uh, love his work, love superheroes, don't like his work, hate superheroes, whatever you want to say. I don't think there's any denying that in the pop cultural moment we exist in right now and have for a while, we're in Stan Lee's world. Yeah. It's like firmly, you know, and it's not just because he has a cameo in all the Marvel movies. It's he has the cameo in all the Marvel movies because we're in his world, you know, yeah. and it's like it's his multiverse that we exist in the dominant form of the comic book movie, which is the dominant product pushed. And by world, I mean world, because these are giant transnational properties that are bigger than anybody at Marvel back in the day. You know, I mean, you've got your book of fantastic firsts in front of us of first issues. Nobody writing those could imagine. No. What this would become one day. No. Again, Spider-Man was created in Amazing Fantasy 15, which was the last issue in, in the Amazing Fantasy series that was not doing very well. And they're like, well, fuck it. We'll just make this character. And it just happened to be so popular. They're like, fuck it. We, I guess we have to make a Spider-Man book because people love this character. We kind of just threw in at the end of this weird anthology series that nobody was buying. Yeah. And, you know, 50 years later... Avengers Infinity War made $2 billion at the yeah. box office. And that's the kind of thing that if you went back and told that to Stan Lee or Steve Ditko, they'd probably faint on the spot, yeah. you know? Or maybe Stan Lee wouldn't, because clearly he had the vision and the force of will and personality to just make that a thing, you yeah. know? Uh, and yeah, it's... You don't... Because you know, I think a lot of people... I'm really glad you're able to bring that perspective here and we can have this conversation, because I think a lot of people... Well, for one, everybody knows who Stan Lee was. Yeah. You just, you say Stan Lee, like I, I, uh, we had a screening, um, in my, in the class I'm, I'm assistant teaching that night, the night he died, Monday night, and, um, before the screening, I opened it by, by just saying, I don't know if you guys heard, but Stan Lee died today, and it was just, universe, 100 kids, you know, the ones who hadn't heard yet, being like, oh my god, you know, like gasps and, and being sad because everyone knew who this guy was. I don't know if that many people could say what his actual role was right. in the creation of Marvel. And I think that says a lot of things in both directions, you know, that his role is not that easy to pin down. Although I think he did a very good job trying to succinctly summarize it for us. And yet his influence is, is so 
vast. You know, I, what, what I, and why I introduced it that way is it was just a weird coincidence where um, with the movie we were watching that night in the screening, this is an intro to film class, is the 1922 documentary, in air quotes, Nanook of the North by Robert Flaherty, famous historical film. And I just, I saw on the DVD box as I was setting the movie up for the kids, I, I saw 1922. And I'm like, that's the year Stan Lee was born. And I just said, you know, Stan Lee died today and, and he has nothing to do with the movie we're watching tonight, except he was born the same year. And, and I was saying to them, you know, and, and this is an old movie and it's going to feel old to you, but think about that. The guy who, like, you know, was the main force in inventing the, like, form of storytelling we all go to see at the movies multiple times a year now was born the same year as this movie we're about to watch about Eskimos. Yeah. You know, back when you could call them Eskimos. <laughs> right. And history is a lot more... What that teaches me is history is a lot more immediate than we think. Yeah. The but other also thing that, that like, teaches you is that Fantastic Four number one came out in 1960 motherfucking two. Yeah. He was 40 years old. He was 40 years old. And he lived another, you know, if my math is right, 55 years. Yeah. And, and... That is amazing. And he had this this kind of amazing career even before that, just as a guy working in the army and what he did with the Signal Corps and stuff and some of that stuff. Yeah. But like, um, one, achieving that level of success a little later in life, for one, makes us all feel a little better. Yes. It's um, like, okay, we still have time. We still have time. But also that, you know, man, he lived such a long life. And, and what an era to live through, 1922 to now, and all those changes. And to be prescient enough to be a person... Who born in 1922 and still actively shaping pop culture in 2018? Yeah. That is fucking insane. Yep. You know, I want to ask you something here. Okay. Um, you you very rarely tweet. Yes. You did send out a tweet. That's why I know you hated today's Doctor Who. Uh, I couldn't contain it. Yeah. Because you tweeted about today's Doctor Who. Um, I also I I knew you were going to tweet about Stan Lee, and you did. And uh, I guess you're looking it up right now, so yes. I'll let you read the tweet. But I want you to a- ask you to expand on the idea where, in this tweet, you basically said, and this is, you are not the only one to say this. I remember our high school English teacher told us this back in the day, that he was kind of the, sh- he is the Shakespeare of today. Yes. So read this and then expand on my, that. My tweet was, Stan Lee's legacy is too complicated to discuss here, but his cultural influence and personal influence on me is incalculably large. Some may scoff at this, and it is overly simple, but he was our Shakespeare. His voice changed us forever. All right, I, I, I like there's a lovely sentiment, and I just want to hear more about it. Yeah, so the, the comparison to Shakespeare is, again, not that I'm not saying that Stanley was as good a writer as Shakespeare. Fucking, of course I'm not. I'm not saying he was as good a storyteller as Shakespeare. Definitely, of course not, because again, he's, he was not a storyteller in that way. But it was more the, the, the characters that, that Shakespeare made characters um, in the 16th century and at the beginning of the 17th century that are still with us today, like Hamlet, like Falstaff, you know, like Macbeth, like all, all, the, all the ones that had their plays named after them, especially like King Lear. Like those are characters that are still with us, that are still referenced, that are still played, you know, in plays or in, in movies. Like they just did that fucking Amazon King Lear. That, that seems pretty good. That I watched some scenes of. Like those are like... Those characters still live with us, and in many ways, I think it's the characters that Shakespeare made that lives with us more than anything else, um, which makes sense because it was theater, and so it, it's like, it's the actor, it's the performance, and it's like those speeches and the life that those characters had, that's what like draws us to them still today, and that's so much of Stanley's legacy is really about the character, and it's so much about... Peter Parker and Tony Stark and Reed Richards and Ben Graham and Sue Storm and, and Johnny Storm. You know, it's it's about Daredevil 
it's about fucking i mean he didn't make wolverine i'm not looking at the, the thing i have next to me because there's so many characters it's actually hard to even remember all of them but it's fucking nick fury it's fucking hank pym ant-man it's thor it's the silver surfer if you have not read the first issue of silver surfer you should read the first issue of silver surfer because it's fucking crazy norrin rad is a cool fucking dude um it's you know it's dr strange it's all the the, the original x-men with you know professor x and then all the villains as well like dr doom and magneto Again, do not give him sole credit in any of those things. And, and I like, cannot stress enough like those, how much those artists like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby contributed to making Marvel what it was. And, and that people, it's a tragedy still today that, you know, you walk down the street and you say to any random, like, 20 people, like, do you know who Stan Lee is? And they will basically all say yes. If you ask those same random 20 people, do you know who Jack Kirby is? You will. I would be very shocked if anybody gave you any kind of answer to that question. Like, they they wouldn't even be able to identify they use from comic books, let alone specific things that he contributed. And that's, that is a tragedy that our culture will never be able to reckon with. But he still was a driving force in making those characters originally and then making the popularizing them and making them what they are, both in terms of that original comic book run and then how much he pushed for what is now our reality with the movies. Um, you know, Stanley was so instrumental in getting that project up off the ground because that's basically what he did since like the late 70s, I think, when he stopped taking over primary editorial uh, tasks at Marvel proper. And so those characters are so much of what makes me do the Shakespeare comparison, but then also the voice thing of that it is that language that is so infectious and that's that it's like he was both influenced by Shakespearean language in a lot of ways, but then also the nature of the comic book medium means you cannot do a soliloquy. You cannot just like break out like that. Like you have a very confined space in which to put this um, dialogue, especially back then when, you know, I did, because you, you read Amazing Fantasy 15 right, yeah. in preparation for this. I don't know if you noticed that every sentence either ends in an exclamation point, a question mark, or an ellipsis. I... Everyone does that. The, not because it, it had to from like, a, oh, we need to have everything be high energy. But because if you printed a single period, printer mistakes would mean that, that oftentimes that a single period would not show up in the edition. That's amazing. I mean, yeah. I, I, I didn't notice that specifically, but I, I noticed the effect of just, for one, amazing. I did not read the entire Amazing Fantasy 15. I read the Spider-Man Yes, version. yeah, that's yeah. the part that I wanted you to read. Yeah. That's only like 12 pages. It's amazing to me the story that is told in just fucking 12 pages and and that in though at least in the ones I read, I read that I read Fantastic Four number one I looked at some other random Spider Man issues every panel has to be an event because yeah. the, the like the space is so limited like I'm used to manga is what I know better and this, that's not the way manga works it's much more like fluid through the panels this is like you know we've got to draw your attention with every one of these things and and they've all got to tell a little story within themselves and the artwork and the words are both very good at that. But it's also like you real, and I, I was going to ask you about that. Like, what is? And I think the period thing is interesting. I'm sure there's lots of other things that would go into that. Um, but it's definitely just the the sense of like impact you get a lot. Yeah. So it's like those. It is. It's you know. I think it's the thing that you often see in in you know creative industries that the stuff that makes it the most interesting is the limitations. Yep. Because it is that stuff of like, well, fuck it. You only have so many words that you can possibly put into this bubble, and like they all have to be kind of big, and they all have to be capitalized. Because again, like. Printing accuracy meant that like it had to be kind of bold. You couldn't have little letters. You couldn't have little periods, or it, like they just you wouldn't know if they would actually show up in the issue or not. And so everything, like you said, had to be impactful, had to be meaningful. Every single fucking letter counted. And that's not how comic books are printed now. That's not how manga is printed now. Like because you know even the manga you read is from the eighties on, right? Yes. Like it's, you're not reading fucking Astro Boy from the sixties. And so it's like the 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 reality of the 
the technology they were working with at the time meant that there were so many restrictions. But I think that's part of the thing that like really punched up Stanley's voice. And, and now I guess now is maybe the time to start talking about read, instead of talking about the voice, reading, reading some of it itself, because he really just does have such a magic way with words. So I have my fantastic first in front of me, which is a, if you're interested, it's a reprinting of um, the first issue or like first appearance of a character in the Marvel comics um, for a lot of the major characters like Fantastic Four number one, obviously Basic Fantasy 15, Incredible Hulk number one. There are some good other ones here too. Like they have, I think it's Fantastic Four number four, which is the first appearance of Namor the Submariner in like modern Marvel comics. And if you don't know who Namor is because he's not been in any of the Marvel movies, you should fucking read Fantastic Four number four because it's fucking awesome. I'm going to find this book because yeah. you've been showing me this. It's a cool book. It's a cool book and it just has, you know, and it even goes into some more um, modern stuff near the end where it has like, I think Origins number one which tells Wolverine's origin story and it's got some good stuff like that. So it's, yeah. And it's Does it got, have that Silver Surfer issue? Yes, it has okay. Silver Surfer number one. It's one of the later ones. It's fucking awesome. Silver Surfer number one is fucking awesome. It's got Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. number one. It's just got a bunch of cool shit. Um, so if you're interested, I recommend picking up this Fantastic First if you like that kind of stuff. But, you know, the, the most famous thing about Spider-Man outside of Spider-Man and maybe some of his villains is definitely the with great power comes great responsibility line. But I think if you haven't actually read the issue, there's so much of like the culture has kind of like, I would say misinterpreted that in some ways. And that one uncle Ben never at any point in the original story tells Peter with great power comes great responsibility. That is something that gets added on later in the comics that obviously the movie really heavily popularized, but it's also the specific phrase people get wrong a bit because it, you know, the with great power comes great responsibility is a really good, like, yeah, that's that, that works well, especially in a movie. But the, how it is actually introduced in the comic is it's in the final panel of Amazing Fantasy 15. Um, and so this is after Uncle Ben is dead. Peter has gone and encountered the, the burglar and found out that that face, it's, oh no, it can't be. It's the fugitive who ran past me. The one I didn't stop when I had the chance. Very direct to the point dialogue. And so then after that, um, you have, in a short distance away, Peter says, my fault, all my fault. If only I had stopped him when I could have, but I didn't. And now Uncle Ben is dead. And then the next panel is a, a small panel in the corner of the page with Spider-Man st standing silently with two like like large you know sequences of buildings to either side of him in the moon right above him, the full moon. And then Stan Lee's text just says, And a lean, silent figure slowly fades into the gathering darkness, aware at last that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And so a legend is born and a new name is added to the roster of those who make the world of fantasy the most exciting of all. It's so good. Um, I have my version of the comic on Marvel Unlimited here. Uh, and I just want to go through one scene. You know, I was very interested. To I had never read Amazing Fantasy 15. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the Spider-Man origin story we're all familiar with. It, primarily because Sam Raimi did a great job with it yeah. in the movie. And... Uh, as you've said before, the Sam Raimi film sticks to it r remarkably closely. Like, it's one of the closer adaptations comic, like, issue to screen we've ever seen. Yeah, it's that, like, first 30 minutes or something. Yeah, yeah it just kind of does the, all those beats. Um, but there are some differences. Like, there is the wrestling match, but that's not where the robbery takes place, the guy he lets go free. That's later, and this is something oh, that's right, not yeah. in the movie or any adaptation I, I've seen where Spider-Man, when he starts being Spider-Man, it's to go, like, make a quick buck as almost like a carny or a sideshow on, like, TV and stuff. And so he's doing all these TV appearances. And just 
this line just struck me so much where like Peter, they really focus on how kicked around Peter is by the world, you know, in this issue. And so um, there's no reason for this. There's, there's a guy who comes and robs the TV studio where Spider-Man was doing an appearance and Spider-Man just lets the robber go by. And it's not because someone screwed him over. It's just because Peter is arrogant. It's less, it's less obviously motivated than in the movie, but what it leads to is this line. So the cop says to him, What's with you, mister? All you had to do was trip him or hold him up for just a minute. And Spider-Man goes, Sorry, pal. That's your job. I'm through being pushed around by anyone. From now on, I just look out for number one. That means me. And I was kind of shocked to see that come out of Spider-Man's mouth. And it adds a lot to the impact of the end of the issue. Because when Uncle Ben dies, it's, it is fully his fault. Yeah. Like, it, even more so than in the movie. Where it is definitely his ego and problems. But, like, they give him this small out of, like, Peter was just screwed over and he's angry. This is, Peter's been kicked around by the world and he's like, I'm going to kick it back. Yeah, Amazing Fantasy 15 is, like, just a great modern fable. And, and that's, yeah. like, the, the quality of it. It being only in those 12... Uh, pages basically it being part of an anthology series that was never intended to be an ongoing series um and again it's 12 pages yeah. it's one of the most amazingly compact bits of myth making i've ever seen yeah and so it just needs to deliver the story in such a like powerful to the point fashion and it just hits every single beat it needs to hit in the way that like you know a, a, like a bedtime story kind of fable does and it, and it teaches you this lesson about if you have great power you also have a responsibility to exercise that power responsibly and and peter learns that lesson the hard way and it's yeah it's it's the reason why that story like if you have not read that section of amazing fantasy 15 people really should seek it out because it's so good it's it just it encapsulates so much about what makes can make that kind of like superhero comic book incredibly enduring because it is 100 percent of its time and it's you know it's you get, a, I think, a little bit of a culture shock if you're not used to reading that kind of those kinds of comics and being like, fuck, this is what those comic books were. Wow. But then it also, I think, by the time you get to the end of it, even if you haven't noticed it, the power of that story has worked its magic on you and, and you walk away from it feeling like you have learned something. You've had an experience really reading that story. Yeah. I mean, it is... You totally understand how this was the, the, the comic that launched a thousand ships, you yes. know? Yeah. Uh, to borrow a phrase, but yes, you also had me read Fantastic Four number one. Yeah, that was for like for people who don't know, because you know, if you only know like the movie stuff that well, they're obviously the Fantastic Four have never been successful in the movies. But Fantastic Four is the the comic actually in the um, little like introductory bit that Tom DeFalco, who was another editor, uh, later editor at Marvel, he wrote a little thing that says that Fantastic Four is the one of the three most important comics in the world. The first one is Funnies on Parade, which is the first comic ever published in like America um, that established that format. Action Comics number one in 1938, which was the first appearance of Superman, and then Fantastic Four number one uh, in 1961. Sorry, I thought it was 62. 61. So you're, it's okay. You were close. This is a horrible mistake. I can't believe I said that. Is the next that that's that's when Marvel became Marvel, and that's when you know that's when Stan Lee sort of took over that position, and he hired Jack Kirby, and was like, "This is the kind of thing we're going to do." And and I think Fantastic Four number one is nowhere near as good or elegant a story as Amazing Fantasy fifteen is, but especially once it starts getting into the Mole Man stuff, it's like, okay, this is like sort of run of the mill superhero adventure. But the setting up of it, like the introduction of the four members that, of Fantastic Four, because it starts in Medius Res with uh, Mr. Fantastic, who you don't know is Mr. Fantastic yet, 
fires a smoke signal that just says the Fantastic Four. And then there's a sequence of events where each of the members, Invisible Girl, the Thing, and Human Torch come together and, and we're like, oh, that's the signal we must assemble. And Reed Richards has a great line. <laughs> you all heeded my summons. Good. There is a task that awaits us. A fearful task. I I loved the first like ten pages of this comic or twelve or whatever it is like yeah. part one before it as you say gets into the mole man stuff like the and again like it is so economic in in how few pages and panels they have to work with how few words but it does it's it's four superheroes to introduce a team it's their origin story it's all of it and it does it with this really I I thought pretty like mature you know complicated. In Medius Rest time scheme where it's like in Medius Rest there's a smoke signal we see all four of them going about their day and then jumping into action then it jumps back and it does the thing about them going into space and the what is it the astro wave the, the cosmic rays the cosmic rays because again this was before it went to the moon this is like the whole st- like the story is like the, I think at one point Sue just straight up says Ben we've got to take that chance unless we want the commies to beat us to it I, I never thought that you would be a coward it was yeah. like Sea Storm has some weird dialogue yes. in the early pages. But it's great. And you know what? It, it uh, I had two thoughts. One is that, I mean, Marvel is going to have all the Fox properties now. Yeah. And, you know, the Disney Fox merger is its own fucking can of worms. But I am very excited about the prospect of Marvel finally getting a proper Fantastic Four movie out there into the world. And I'm sure Kevin Feige is over the moon about that. And if their Fantastic Four movie does not start with just like a fucking panel for panel recreation of Fantastic Four number one, they're doing something wrong. Because that is the perfect introduction to a movie. And this leads to my second thought. You know how I know that? It's the beginning of The Incredibles. The beginning of The Incredibles is a direct homage to that. Like not quite, like it's not the same thing where like we have a mission, but it is Mr. Incredible out on his day. While he's out on his day, you get to see like doing his uh, like superheroics. You get to see his powers. You get to see Elastigirl. You get to see Frozone. You see them all like jump into action. You get a little bit of personality. It's one kind of running adventure. And then it ends with this like character beat. And um, I lo- that's probably my favorite thing Brad Bird has ever directed. And I love Brad Bird is like those 10 minutes of The Incredibles. And it's Fantastic Four number one. And I guess I'd never realized what a direct like influence. I, I knew Fantastic Four was an influence on The Incredibles. It's kind of obvious. Yes, yeah. But, <laughs> which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's like, it, uh, it's just, it's because it's a great, like, you don't even have to read the whole issue. Just those first like yeah. 10, 15 pages. They're really cool. Yeah, it's just like, I just love the, the, the language that Stan Lee uses. Like, in fact, who are all four of these strange and astonishing humans? How did they become what they are? What mystic quirk of fate brought them together to form the awe-inspiring group known as the Fantastic Four? It's great. And, and I also realized, like, reading a couple of these comics on the Marvel Unlimited app... I just heard Stanley's voice yeah. the whole time. Because you realize that the way he talked for the rest of his life, he's the Marvel guy. He just, that's his voice. Like, you can just, you don't need an audio dramatization of this. You can just hear Stanley's voice reading all of that. Um, and it's, it's great. It's, it's really, as you say, you know, what a voice he lent to the company. And I think if you think of anything associated with Marvel, it is voice and characters. There's something, like, this is why... The DC movies have failed where the Marvel movies have succeeded is the DC movies never have found a voice. Yeah. The Marvel movies, again, love them or hate them, you know what a Marvel movie is. Yeah. And you know it because, like, they have found a way to, like, make there be, there can be different expressions of that voice as there are in Marvel comics, but there's a Marvel voice. And that's cool and that's different and that's 
that's what makes it Shakespearean in in your analogy there. So yeah, yeah. I'm glad I got I, I made myself read some of these, and I'm totally getting that book. So it's a cool it's, book. It's a cool fucking book. It's like now I want to read through reread through them all again because it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, and knowing nothing about comic books, it feels like a good place to start. Yes, yeah. It's a lot of really good firsts. Yeah. And again, man, you got to read the fucking... Uh, uh, you got to read Silver Surfer number one. Yeah. It's so good. All right. And Namor the Submariner. Both of those are... are The other two gems in this for me are those. And actually, Incredible Hulk number one is fucking great. Awesome. So, Stanley, there's so many other ways we could go with this. I do... Um, because it is just such a weirdly big part of his legacy in the pop culture right now, the cameos in the movies. Right, yeah. They're so wonderful. I assume we have a few left. I mean, Infinity War 2 shot like two years ago. Yeah. I assume he's going to be in that. I assume they'd filmed whatever he's going to do for Captain Marvel. Um, he's probably in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That'll be fun. Oh, right, yeah. You know? I, um, I, he probably is also in Spider-Man 2. Like, because they have, I know they have been filming that. They've so. been filming it. They tended to, to film his cameos like when everything else was done. Mm-hmm. So I'm just... I, he could be. We yeah. just don't know. Um it just means that there's going to be a day pretty soon when we're going to go see a Marvel movie and he's not going to be in it. And that's going to be so fucking sad. I can't yeah. believe it. That was one of the most delightful things about the Spider-Man game was he has oh, that God, just a... wonderful little cameo in the middle yes. of it. Yeah. And he was always game for it. I uh-huh. mean, like Stan Lee was the world's greatest publicity whore. <laughs> you know? I mean, yes, like yes. 100%. And he would proudly say that. Yes, like that's that... That's so much of, like, that's what I mean when I say he's a showman. It's like he was 100% game every single time to, to, to be there. And, and it's the thing that, like, you know, that there is a certain, like, spotted nature to that legacy as well because it means that he has so much more of the credit that is not necessarily rightfully his for, for the stuff that Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and the other artists did and other people at Marvel. But that was not always entirely his fault. Like, he didn't entirely discourage it, but... You know, it was like the culture, American culture has always been so much about like the writer over the artist in comic books, like well before Marvel came around. That it Well, was... we also have such a bias towards the like central genius narrative. Yeah. That, like, you know, I, I think Stanley is somewhat analogous in the tech world to like a Steve Jobs. Yes. Who yes. like Steve Jobs, there's no denying that there would be no Apple without Steve Jobs. There's no denying Apple would have no brand identity if it weren't for Steve Jobs. Right. Yeah. But he didn't invent the Mac. He didn't invent the computers. That was Wozniak. And that was a lot of other engineers. But he was the guy who made the voice and the presentation and got that out there. That's Jobs' role. And that's why we... That's why we... If That's why everyone knows who Steve Jobs is. Most people could not tell you what Wozniak did. Yeah. Right? Um, and that's not fair. Steve Jobs did not necessarily encourage that. But he also didn't necessarily discourage that. It is, it is somewhat analogous to that. Um... But it is like, so it's, it's both the person, but also just, the, you know, the culture we live in, this happens. This is not like an isolated incident. Yeah. Um, but Stanley, the cameos in the movies, um, do you have a favorite? Oh, man, I don't know. Like, they're I just do. all so good. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's just. My yeah. two favorite Stanley cameos are in two of Marvel movies that one people don't like and one no one remembers. So I'll go with these. The one people don't like is Spider-Man 3. Which oh, you and yes, I had yeah, a yeah. complicated conversation about in that we don't like it necessarily, but we don't hate it. Um, I enjoyed watching that movie tremendously. Absolutely. And his, his cameo there is Spider, or Peter Parker is standing on the sidewalk and he sees the news that Spider-Man's going to get the key to the city. And Stanley comes up to him and says, you know, one person really can make a difference. Enough said. Yeah. And he walks off and Tobey Maguire just has this wonderfully befuddled look on his face. 
I, that cameo warms my heart. Yeah. I love yeah, it. I agree. My other favorite, no one remembers this movie. This movie's better than people give it credit for. It's Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. Yep. Where Reed and Sue are getting married. And did I get the names right? Yes. <laughs> I got really scared. Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Girl. Ooh, that okay. makes it easier for you. Yes. Are getting married. And in a direct homage to a comic panel that is, or a, a comic page that I saw passed around on Twitter that is delightful, where Stanley and Jack Kirby drew themselves getting kicked out of the wedding. Yeah. Stanley comes up and says, I'm on the guest list, and they can't find him. And he's like, I'm Stanley, and they kick him out. And I loved that. It is just, I actually think the original Fantastic Four movies, they're not great. But they really, like, I think they tried to do the MCU thing, like, a couple years earlier and without quite as much skill. But I think they had their heart in the right place. Yeah. I think Rise of the Silver Surfer definitely did. It's got some really good stuff in it. And that moment is so perfect where they just break the fourth wall. He is Stan Lee. He is the creator of these characters. And he gets kicked out and he doesn't know why. I love that one. And I actually, sometimes I wish... They broke the fourth wall a little more with Stan Lee. Like, I also love the one in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 where they just contextualize it as he is like an omnidimensional being and he's just telling the other people stories of yeah, his different cameos. Right, he's in like an astronaut suit in all the Watchers. That actually is maybe my favorite one. I had forgotten about it, yes. But like Uatu and the other Watchers are like standing there and he's telling the story. And I like to imagine it is him literally telling the story of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, I love that one. Uh, Fantastic Four 1 has him as the mailman. Yes, yeah, that's a good one. That one's great. Uh, I I loved it when they would bring him in a little more directly into the action like that. In uh, Captain America Civil War, he brings the mail and says, are you Tony Stank? And and uh, um, Rhodes has the line of like, that's, you're it forever, you're Tony Stank. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're, yeah, they're all great. I love in Iron Man 1 and 2, they have the ongoing joke of him being uh, confused for, it's Hugh Hefner, yeah. and then it's, oh, who is it in the second one? It's, um, it's the newscaster, Larry... Larry King. Larry King, yeah. yeah. That one's funny. Um, there's a lot of, they're, they're all so fun. Yeah, there's not a bad Stanley cameo. No, there are there there were less substantial ones. Like if you go back, like I think in the first X Men movie, he's just like in a crowd, and in Spider Man one, he just pulls a woman out of the way. When they finally like let him talk and like just be Stanley for thirty yeah. seconds, those were always the best. You know what my favorite Stanley cameo is? He was the voice um, of like the narrator in the Spider Man game on the. PlayStation 1 and Nintendo 64. I'm not sure if that counts as a cameo, but it was a great... I think it counts as a cameo for me, because it is my first experience with the Stanley cameo. Yeah. And he just has, like, a whole... Like, he has a whole long speech he says while, like, the camera zooms through. I think it's the second level when you're going to go swing and, like, fight the Scorpion, I want to say, is the one he's where he says it. And and he just says, like, oh, true believers in Excelsior and all the Stanley stuff. It's, it's great. It's great. Uh, and, you know, by all accounts, he was a good guy. Like... Yeah. That's people did not have a bad word to say about him. They could talk about the problematic parts of his legacy, and we said, like, you know, maybe the the attention whoring was both his superpower and also his weakness in some yeah. ways. But like, I think for the people who worked with him, like, apparently he was just incredibly gracious and creatively open and encouraging towards younger people getting into the business, and was always giving of his his time with fans, and of course. Everyone's posting pictures of themselves with Stan Lee because that's what he would want. He loved taking those pictures and being with the fans and encouraging that. And that's the good side of fandom. You know, like I think the best parts of comic book and comic book movie fandom as we see it today are also the best parts of Stan Lee. 
you know, you can't separate those two. And that's... It's the, like, optimism that Stan Lee always yeah. had. And that's, like, part of what made his voice so iconic in Marvel is that it had this energy and this optimism to it that even when it was a, like, darker storyline, he always came out of it yeah. brighter, right? And And the world felt brighter because of that. And there's some things that, like... You know, like of talking about the the legacy and the crediting stuff of that, I think there have been like a lot of really good, again, like good obituaries and and, and interesting things written about it. Um, but I do think there have been some things that have been missed in that. There's an important context because some of them I have seen have been I felt like too harsh on Stan Lee and like the Stan Lee Jack Kirby split. That it's, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but there's there's a big split that happened I think in the early 70s when Jack Kirby left Marvel. He went to DC. He did the New Gods stuff or the Fourth World stuff, um, and it, it's you know really interesting. Anyways, but you know obviously there was like a really can, can like contentious split between the two of them at that point that they did reconcile later in life. Um, and there's a really good radio clip where Stanley calls into a radio show while Jack Kirby was being interviewed. And it's probably the last conversation they had before Jack Kirby died in the nineties. Um, but one thing that I think is important to understand about that stuff and why, and Jack Kirby being angry and like the crediting stuff and not crediting him enough is there's a lot of context there of one comic books before the sixties never credited fucking anybody ever um and and you know it's actually like a big academic issue at some point of going back and, and people not knowing who wrote and like drew these issues like what like when you're going especially when you're going back to golden age comics where it's not necessarily publicized and the history of comic books is fraught with so much bullshit like like bob kane giving credit over uh, batman like everything doing with seal and schuster over superman in the constant lawsuits and then not being given royalties not being given proper crediting and so while Stan Lee did not necessarily fix all of those problems, he was certainly not the one who created those norms in the comic book industry, but he did do work to help fix it. And it's something that I think is frustrating that people have not pointed out and don't give him enough credit for is that as the editorial force, the primary editorial force at Marvel, he started to make a really important change where one in Fantastic Four number one, uh, it does say, or maybe it's not even, in, and I think it's maybe on the first page, not on the cover, where they say Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. And then they definitely say it in Amazing Fantasy 15. And then eventually, by the time you get a couple of years into Marvel, they developed an entire credits page that Stan Lee basically helped create that has a, that little, starts with a little panel that just says, story by Stan Lee, art Jack Kirby, they, they credit the inkers in the letters, you know, good art Simek, who do ink like fucking every comic book back then, it feels like. Um, you have and Sam, him and Sam Rosen did a lot of that stuff. And so you had that crediting. And then eventually he created like this whole cult of personality at Marvel about stuff of where that's where you would get stuff like Stan the Man Lee, Jack King Kirby, you know, King Kirby. Um, you had Jazzy Johnny Romita was probably my favorite of all the epithets. And he, while again, like there's a lot of like messy stuff with the credits and people should, you know, read about that stuff and come up with their own opinions about it. He did a lot of stuff to create a like normalized structure that did credit the writer and the artist and the letterer and we, the inker. At a time when you've been explaining where every drop of ink counted, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's it's literally hard to get that in there. Yeah, and so he made a point of putting that into the books once he had full control over it, and that's so important. And I think it's just things that people don't generally know is not really common knowledge, even among people that know a lot of comic book stuff and so like when we say it's a really complicated legacy 
it like we mean that like it's so complicated to dig into the nature of that crediting stuff so if you're reading a lot of those obituaries that are extremely negative about stanley i think keep in mind that like it's a really complicated story that there's a lot of context involved with that stuff and then also at the same time read some jack kirby comics please and yeah read some steve dicko stuff and, and read up about those people like jack kirby is one of the most interesting people in the world like he served in world war ii yeah he, he just was amazing and his outspoken nature against fascism is something we need a lot right now um both him and stanley were very outspoken against i, fascism. I want to say a thing about the world war ii thing really quick stanley is not one of the guys i mean he did serve in the u.s army signal corps um, which means he did a lot of different things. He worked on communications equipment, but also the training film division, where you were doing manuals and films and slogans. He did a little bit of cartooning there. He is not one of those people where there's a bunch of significant work that came out of that that like we still read like or watch, like Frank Capra and um, Dr. Seuss was in the U.S. Army Signal Corps. Um, but he is, to my knowledge, maybe the last... Like famous artists to have survived from the Signal Corps. And the Signal Corps was hugely important yeah. in the development of a lot of artists in all these different industries um, who did a lot of really amazing work. And it, you know, it was propaganda work, but a lot of it is like really interesting to go back and look at uh, during the war. And a lot of those people came out on the other side and then went and transformed other industries. Like, you know, Dr. Seuss is a great example of yeah. worked in the Signal Corps and then transformed the entire nature of children's literature forever. Um, and and you know, but a lot of them, as you say, like Jack Kirby was the '90s. Dr. Seuss was, I think, '80s or '90s. You know, yeah. like um, obviously people like Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Stewart was in the the Navy, um, but you know, have been gone for a much longer time. They were older to begin with. Stan Lee was much younger, but you know, they both served their country in very significant ways. Um, but this was also this kind of we haven't had a thing like that since. Um, it's a it's a unique moment in American history. And one that's really worth reading up on and looking at. And Stanley was a figure there. And again, it, it feels like kind of a moment has passed because maybe there's someone I, I, I'm forgetting about or don't know about. But again, 95 is a, an old age, and he was yeah. he was young for the group. So mm-hmm. like, it's it's the other end of the spectrum, and it's it, it's you know that that generation is mostly gone, and that's 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 too bad. That's I mean, it's the way of the world. And 95 is a god a ripe old age. Yeah, but it's. It's a bummer, you know. It's uh, Stanley felt kind of like he was just going to be around forever, doing his cameos and, yeah. and saying Excelsior on Twitter and just doing his thing. Uh, and he is somewhere out there, you know. He, he's telling the story of us all to the Watchers yes. on some strange, unknown world, you know. While Galactus feels like it looms on the horizon for us all <laughs> right now. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up this discussion. You want to move on, Sean? Let's move on. Love you, Stanley. All right, so Sean, you want to talk some video games? Let's talk about video games, Jonathan. All right, we don't have a ton to say about any of these because other than Red Dead 2, these are all new games or new to us, and we've only had a little bit of time with them, but we want to give you some quick updates. So on the docket, we have Red Dead 2, which you're going to say like 10 words on. We have Pokemon Let's Go, which I've been playing, Hitman 2, which you've been playing and I've played a little of, and uh, just for giggles, Super Mario Party, which is about a month old now, but I did pick it up so my brother and I could play it while we're here together on break, because we've always loved playing the Mario Party games, and there hasn't been a good, proper new Mario Party in 
a long time. Right. So this is this is this is fun. So we'll talk about all of these. Sean, why don't you hit us with a little bit of Red Dead Two just to start to give us an update on your progress there? You all know I've finished it. I have no more thoughts. Yes, I am so close to being done with Chapter Four. I'm so close. I would have been done with it today if this episode of Doctor Who was not so fucking terrible and basically forced me to have to go watch The Sunmakers, a much better, a Robert Holmes episode of the story of Doctor Who with the Fourth Doctor that deals with capitalism stuff. So those like two hours or so that I was going to spend finishing probably like the last one or two story missions in Chapter 4 actually got spent watching The Sunmakers. But either way, Red Dead 2 is a very good game. Let's move on. Little tip. When you, when you are ready to finish Chapter 4, block off a little bit of time. Okay. Because the way it transitions into Chapter 5 and then what Chapter 5 is, it's it's not the same kind of break as in the other chapters. Yeah. So, I'll just spoiler-free tip for you there. All right. Uh, so, let's see. Which one should we hit first, Sean? Um, let's do Hitman 2 last, because I okay. feel like that's the most substantial we have to say. I'll just do them in order on here. Super Mario Party, I just have a couple things to say about. Um, it's really fun. I, it seems good. My main recommendation is that if you like Mario Party and you own a Switch, totally feel confident going and buying this game. Uh, it, is, it is what you have wanted from Mario Party. You know, as a bre- If you do not follow Mario Party, as a brief recap... The original N64 games are great. They're yes, classics. One, two, and three. One, two, and three. They're really... Mario Party 2 is the best one, and yeah. it still is, but uh, those are all really fun. Um, you know, they had this great balance of, like, this silly board game with these silly mini games. You get four people together. Like, I think people forget those games just as much as Smash Bros. defined, like, the multiplayer feeling of the N64 that was so great. Uh, and those were really fun. Then on the GameCube, they did a bunch. GameCube had four, five, six, and seven. So they did four in a row on GameCube. And, you know, if you do four iterations of a game that is not much of a video game to begin with, yeah. it's going to get dull. And so there are, I think, five is the best of those. Um, I owned all of them. Like, my brother and I I think were. I got, I, I owned Mario Party 1, 2, we skipped 3, got 4 on the GameCube, and I was like, I'm good on Mario Party. Yeah, 4 is a little boring. 5 had some fun stuff. But they also, like, they started, it was this kind of series where, because they had to make a new game every year, they would just change shit that didn't need to be changed. Right. Like, at, I think it's in 5 or 6, they took out items and gave you capsules. Yes, And the capsules sucked. They were just, like, they were weird to get. They weren't that powerful. They didn't do much to the game. Because one of the things is you, like, threw them on the board and changed, like, the piece into, like, the bank or, like, fucking whatever. I think I played that once at someone's house. Yeah, so that was not fun. The mini games could still be fun. Uh, Six, I think, introduced the microphone attachment for the GameCube that you had to do mic games. It was, it got bad. Then on the Wii, it slowed down, where in the first year of the Wii, we got Mario Part 8, Mario Party 8, which in some ways went back to basics. It had better boards and stuff, but it also, it was just a GameCube game that they pulled from the GameCube because they, they, didn't, they wanted to save it for the Wii. They put it out on the Wii. It is, to my knowledge, the only first-party Wii game that does not run in widescreen. If you play it in widescreen, it just adds blue borders to the sides. Because they just made it for the GameCube. They didn't make a 16.9 version of it. And that's not the kind of game where you can just easily like open up the, right. the, the viewing ratio, right? So, and then all the games that like would use Wii mechanics were just like really tacked on at the last minute. So it was a lot of like make the jerk-off motion with the Wiimote and be really... And as a teenager, you just giggle about it, right? Yeah. And that's mostly Mario Party 8. And then a few years later, they did 9... Which is where they just put all the characters in a car together and had you move around the board together and it was not competitive and it sucked. 
And then they did Mario Party 10 on the Wii U, which was just Mario Party 9, but worse. And on the Wii U. So, and on the yeah, Wii U. There you go. And so everyone was very... It had been a long time since anyone cared about Mario Party. And then, lo and behold, this summer at E3, Nintendo, Nintendo giveth, Nintendo taketh away, they gave us Super Mario Party, which... No more capsules. We're back to items. No more car. You're all competing. It's, it's, it is classic Mario Party with some genuine iterations that are not just we're going to change items into capsules. We're going to have some fun new stuff. So my brother and I have been playing it for a couple days now. We've played uh, a full Mario Party game on... There are four game boards in it, which sounds a little sparse, but there's a lot of other content. And they've said they're adding to it for free. So we'll get more later. Um... But we've played on three of those four, and then we've done most of the other modes, except the, I think it's like a, there's a co-op mode where it's two-on-two two or something, um, but we haven't done that one yet. But it is so fun. It, it looks gorgeous. It's a very nice-looking Switch game. It's got a huge roster of characters, because, like, man, I'm like, last time I played Mario Party, there were, like, eight characters. Now it's like there's... Ten heroes and all the villains are in it now. Yeah, like they're like Goombas and shit in it now, right? You can play as Goomba, Hammerbro, uh, the, the Koopa Troopa, Bowser, which Bowser was never playable. He was a, a villain on the board. They've put Donkey Kong back in after cruelly in Mario Party 5 was where Donkey Kong was taken out of the roster and gave given his own space. Which was weird, so you couldn't play as Donkey Kong. And they have Donkey Kong and Diddy in there now, so all of that, which is cool. Um, so you've got all of those bells and whistles. And then when you go to play a main Mario Party, the boards are smaller than they were in old games. But that's because they're denser, there's a little more going on, there's more strategic things going on. And the biggest thing, and I think this is a genius move and how it interacts with all the other game systems, is that each character has their own special dice block. Yeah. And there's, uh, you can use a regular dice block if you want. Um, and I should also say they've, um, I don't know what the opposite of inflation is. They've deflated, I guess, right. all it's the a, numbers. It's, it's an actual dice block now. So it's six spaces instead of the magic ten space yes. block that couldn't yeah. possibly exist so in Mario it's, Party before. Yep, it's one to six. You need fewer coins for things, so they give you fewer coins. Like, all the numbers are just reduced, which I actually think makes a lot of sense. It makes yeah. makes the game, again, smaller but denser. So you have a 1 to 6 dice block. I mean, one thing that that does is it makes dice rolls far more predictable if it is 1 to 6 instead of 1 to 10. Yes. Because the probability of you rant landing on a specific number is much higher when you only have 6 possibilities than 10. Well, absolutely. Uh, and then you have your own dice block, and each character is different, but they have different kinds of effects. So, like... Uh, Mario's um, is like the most balanced one so it's like you've got a couple of ones but you've also got a couple of sixes and then in the middle you've got a couple of fours so it's like a probabilistic trade-off like higher chance of getting a six higher chance of getting a one um, Bowser has a great one, which is he can roll up to an eight, nine, or ten but he also has a couple that will move you no spaces and you'll lose three coins you know? Yeah. Um, and some characters have a version of that that doesn't go as high, and maybe you won't move, but you'll get a coin or two. Or Daisy has a really interesting one that is, it's all threes and fours, so it's a limited range, but if you need to get somewhere close, or just like you need to, I need to get at least three spaces this turn, it's guaranteed. And so all of these are really strategic. It's added a whole new layer of strategy to Mario Party that Mario Party... I guess technically had in some ways, but well, was maybe yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because I will say, I have not played any Super Mario Party, but back when it launched, the Japanese Nintendo YouTube channel, which is far better than the American Nintendo YouTube channel, uh, did a video series with the Yoiko comedians and some other people that they do these like kind of comedy, like kind of let's play videos, basically. And I watched those. They're only in Japanese, so if you don't understand Japanese, 
don't go watch them. But if you do, go watch them because they're fucking hilarious. And and I was watching it and I'm like, oh my god, they, it, it looks like what if Nintendo developed a Mario Party game? Because all the other Mario Party games, they were developed by Hudson. Yes. And it was just like, this. it's like, you know, they, they felt like they were developed by Sadus. It was just like, here's like this chaos, just uh, of, of mini games and random warp block bullshit that is only designed in a very Monopoly-esque fashion to get all the people playing the, the like video game to yell and scream at like random turns of like fate. And there was no real game there. And this is like, oh my god. Like, it, there's still a lot of chance, which is you want there to be some chance, but there are, like, things you can manipulate the probability in predictable ways to, like, actually make choices about the video game. Like, it's like Nintendo developed a Mario Party game. Oh, my God. It is, and it's got, like, that Nintendo polish on yes. it, too. Um, and, no, totally, like, it's a weird sensation for me, but, like, we were playing it this morning, and I was running in my head a probabilistic scenario of, like, if, okay, I need to get a three or higher... Or I need to get a four or higher. So that is a one in two chance. So a coin flip on this dice block. But on this dice block, it's two in three. You know, like I'm yeah. running that. And it's like, and I had to stop myself. I'm like, what am I doing? This is Mario Party. This is awesome. Yeah, so I'm doing like math and strategy playing Mario Party. I'm not just like landing on some random block and getting a star for some bullshit. It's like, oh my god, I can play this video game. It's really great. So they've done things like that. Of course, the main setup is the same where you have a full turn, four people, and then uh, at the end of that turn is a mini game. There are 80 new mini games in this, and they're great. Obviously, I think any Mario Party lives and dies by its mini games. These are really good. And weirdly, because Mario Party never really had a proper Wii game which kind of is weird because you think Mario Party would flourish on the Wii and yeah. Wii U but they never had a proper one it feels like okay finally we got a fun like Wii style Mario Party because if there's any game you want to have dumb motion controls on it's Mario Party yeah. you want to have these because I think those kind of motion control and tilt thing kind of gimmicks work great in this like limited like 30 to 60 second game scenario so you know I've played a couple where the motion controls don't make sense and are annoying but there's 80 you're going to have a couple of those largely I think they're really creative they use the Joy-Cons different features in a lot of really cool interesting ways um, you know you play the whole game on a single Joy-Con and it totally works for that like this is not a game so demanding that that's annoying it's just like no that makes sense and the way it uses the, the motion controls and all that it's it's very fun. The, the, the mini games are great. There's a little quality of life thing they've done that is like, again, this feels like Nintendo made this one, which is that on the mini games in all the games before this one, there would, it would, you would load in and there would be a screen giving you the instructions and they would be kind of dense and you would have to yeah. go through the pages and you could choose to go into a practice mode to do a practice run of it, go back to the menu, then do the actual run. Now when you load into the screen for the minigame, there's a box on screen that is automatically running a practice. And yeah, just... so instead of it playing a demo video, which is what it did before, you are just playing the minigame with the instructions at the bottom, and so you can just like be yep. like, okay, so yeah, that's jump, okay, that makes sense, and then you can just go, instead of loading, practice, playing the practice one, and then playing the actual one, yep. because when I played Mario Party with my friends, there's always that one fucking friend that's like, no, we have to do practice on every video, or on game, minigame, or it's not fair, it's like, this is so long, for the love of God, the fucking minigame is just pulling a rope, and it being a one in four chance that you win, it's not even a fucking game, motherfucker, can we just play? Yes, and there's, there's things like that throughout the game, where they've just kind of sped it up or condensed it or just made it more again like 
dense and deep, and it's it's very good, very fun to play. A 10-turn game is like a tight 20 to 30 minutes, which is perfect. And you can do longer games, and that's, I'm sure, very fun. We haven't. I'd, I'd like to do one at some point. We've just been trying to play through different modes. Um, so the main Mario Party, great. To- total thumbs up. Like, as Mario Party goes, this is like A-grade material. This is what you want. But then there's all these other cool modes. Like, there's one called... Uh, like rhythm mode, where you play through a series of mini games specific to this mode that use different kinds of motion control tied to rhythm of like the vibration and the music, and you're competing, but you're also kind of co-oping it. It's weird, um, but it's very fun. It's these like it's kind of like WarioWare mm-hmm. uh, in some ways. Then there's one called River Rafting Mode, and this this is a trip. This is where you're all in. Our, it, it honestly, it feels like someone at Nintendo saw the shitty. Stuff in Mario Party 9 and 10 where you're all in a car together and said, we're going to make the good version of this and just show them all. Show those Hudson motherfuckers. And yeah. that's what they did. So you're all in a raft and you have to like steer the raft with your Joy-Con like you're steering a paddle. Which means like if you want to go left, the person on the right has to do it. If you want to go right, you know, the person on the left. Those sorts of things. Um, it would be really fun with four people. It's just been me and my brother. So the computers have been having to help. And as you go down the, the river, you have a time limit. And you extend the time limit by hitting balloons, and when you hit the balloon, you get to go do a co-op minigame. And they're all co-op. All four people have to work together. And they're really fun, they're creative, they're high stakes like and fast, so they're really good. And then you go back to the river, and it's a branching path. And I guess you unlock stuff the more branching paths you do. Um, but like you can go and you'll see the path, like do you want to do one with like cheap cheeps as hazards, or with a bunch of jumps you have to do? And you get to make that choice and steer over there. And it's just, it's the perfect party thing. Like, my brother and I were just yelling and laughing through this whole thing. And Thomas, like, at some point decided he was the captain. He's like, right, right, right. Stop, stop, stop. I steer, I steer. You steer, you steer, you steer. And it was just, that's what you want out yeah. of this. It's, it's exactly what you want. And uh, it's, it's, it's so much fun. It definitely feels like, you know, in other Mario Party games, you were either playing the Mario Party board games or you were doing mini games. You can do that in this one, and then there's all this other stuff. And I really like that. Um, I think it feels very feature-rich for this kind of game. Um, I hadn't even thought of that, Sean, but you're so right. This is if Nintendo, act, not a third party, but if Nintendo brought it in-house and said, what's our Mario Party in 2018? This is it. It's a great showcase for the Switch's hardware. Uh, I feel like it, it... I don't want to say it fell under the radar, because definitely, like, Let's Players have been having a ball with this yeah. thing on YouTube. But uh, I don't know if it's been getting the full slate of attention, given, like, Red Dead 2 and stuff. Um, if you have a Switch and you have other people to play it with, you know, this, is, this is a no-brainer. This is a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, so... I'm glad that Mario Party can be good... Maybe for the first time ever, or at least since Mario Party 2. It's hard yes. to tell. I, no. I, I was so young. I know. I was I, so foolish back I then. I really like this. Um, I'm very curious what they call the series going forward. Do they just start doing like Super Mario Party 2, 3? Yeah. And then at some point, do they go back and do Mario Party 11 as a throwback, and we're all in the car again, and it just frustrates everyone? I think it was smart of them to say, Mario Party 11 sounds like a fucking nightmare. Like, there's, there's just, like... There's like, Mario Party 11 is what the senior citizens play at the home, right? Like, it's like... <laughs> you, you cannot market Mario Party 11 to, like, 12-year-olds. It's no. just impossible. No, this is... This, I, I think, like the Switch itself, Super Mario Party is a just very effective, skillful rebranding of something old. Yep. Yes. All right. The other Switch game I've been playing is Pokemon Let's Go, the new 
slash old Pokemon game for the Nintendo Switch. The Switch debut, in some ways the home console debut of Pokemon, at least the mainline RPG yeah. series. Um, and I got Pokemon Let's Go Eevee. The hipster choice. I did the right one. The hipster, I think it's the right choice. Uh, because uh, you and I actually... T- I don't know if... I think this was off the air. You I'm were, pretty sure it was off the air, yeah. Yeah, you asked me which one I was getting, and I said, well, I've got Pikachu pre-ordered. Because honestly, I had not put much thought into it. It was like the Pikachu one is first on the page. You know, I pre-ordered right. that one. Um, but I thought about it some more, especially because once the, re- the reviews hit like a week early for this, and there was a lot of video footage, and I'm like... Eevee is so fucking cool. Eevee's adorable. And I love Pikachu. Nothing against Pikachu. But I've played like 5 billion Pikachu games at this point in my life. I've never played an Eevee game. There's never been one. I mean, there's Eevee's been in games. But he's yes. never had his own game. And so I thought, you know, I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the Eevee game. And Eevee is 100% the right choice for a couple of reasons. One, Eevee is just fucking adorable. And it sh- shakes things up because it's not a Pikachu game. And two, if you want Pikachu, you can have a Pikachu on your party in 30 minutes in this game. Right, because you just go to the forest. And, Viridian Forest. Yeah. I, I was kind of surprised because I thought for sure they would have moved Pikachu out of Viridian Forest for this. But no, you go to Viridian Forest, he's right where he's always been. And because of the new catching mechanics, you can get him in a snap. And then I was, and I just, I, I had this tweet. It was, I, because I, um, the way I got this game is I... Got the game on my way out of town for getting out of Des Moines or uh, Iowa City so I could come here to Colorado. I picked the game up at Best Buy, put it in my backpack, went to the airport, sat at the airport, played Pokemon for an hour, and then got on a plane. And my last tweet before getting on the plane was like, look, haha, Nintendo, I broke your system. I already have Pikachu and Eevee. And my understanding is if you get Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu, Eevee is much harder to get. Well, I imagine it's if it, if it is just the same way as before, like you can only get one Eevee, right? I think because that's correct. The, the Eevee was one of their like bullshit. You need to trade to get all the Pokemon things because you have to have an Eevee, you have to have like a Flameon, a Jolteon, and whatever the fucking water one was. Vaporeon. Vaporeon, yeah, because you have to Aquion or whatever sounds weird. So Vaporeon, yeah. there we go. So you had to basically trade for three of those because yeah. you could only get one of them in your own game. So Pikachu or Pokemon Let's Go Eevee is the best of both worlds because I've yeah. just got my Pikachu. Uh, which is awesome So there you go uh, And then yeah As I said Eevee is just very Like Because that's the other thing Is Pikachu is Pikachu There's not a lot new To do with Pikachu At this point Other than making him a detective And giving him a voice yeah. um, But with Eevee Like Eevee's never been In a starring role Eevee's never had a voice Technically Because Eevee just has a cry yeah. So they had to like Cast an actor for Eevee And do you know who they cast? Who? I don't remember the voice actor's name But it's the person who plays uh, Who's the sad robot In Nier Automata? The uh, Pascal. Oh, Pascal? It's oh, my God. Pascal and Automata is oh, Eevee. God. Yes, I know. Yeah, and she's also um, Futaba in Persona 5 if you play yeah. Japanese Persona 5. Yeah. So they, same as with like Ike Otani. What's her name? Ike? Uh, Yuki Otani. Yuki, okay. I, did it. I had it backwards. Um, but yes, it's the same. They got a, a high profile, like, you know, Seiyu yeah. to do Eevee. And Eevee has an adorable voice. And Eevee is just like all the animations and stuff. Because again, you've seen Pikachu run around and be cute a million times. Eevee having all these cool custom animations is great. You can put a little hat on him. You can uh, Eevee just rides on your head, which is great. I don't know if you've seen the animations yeah. of that. It's really funny. And I was really impressed at this because my only drawback to this is like your main Eevee cannot evolve in the game, which makes sense. That's they would have to do the branching custom animations that would happen from that would right. be pretty vast. And Pikachu does not evolve in Let's Go Pikachu or Pokemon Yellow. Um, but, and, and my thought on that was, well, but Eevee's a normal Pokemon. Will Eevee get, like, good moves? 
This Eevee does get some better moves, and you can get, pretty early on in the game, you can talk to this guy in a Pokemon Center who offers you custom, like, basically TMs for Eevee, and they are, like, fire, water, and grass moves, oh, wow. and you can just put those onto Eevee, and they're really powerful. So Eevee actually, Eevee's a fucking powerhouse in my game so far, because I've had him for everything, my Eevee's already level 20, I've gotten two badges, and my Eevee can kill just about anything in one hit. Nice. That's, so, that's the Pokemon way. You only ever use your starter Pokemon and just make your starter Pokemon like the fucking manifestation of death to other Pokemon. Yes. You just can't even... I don't care what the fucking types work out to in this battle. You fucking look at my Pokemon and you vaporize. That's how powerful I am compared to you. Yes. So, let's go Eevee. I think is the right choice here. If you are, uh, you know, Pikachu ride or die, I get it. Go with God. But, uh, let's go Eevee. I also think has better cover art. I really like the illustration of Eevee on the box. Uh, that's neither here nor there, but there you go. The game itself, I really like. I was looking forward to this. I think I was looking forward to this back when everyone else was like, "Fuck this game! It's a let's it's a Pokemon Go game. I don't want that." Because I, I, what I looked and saw was like, "Hey, they're doing something different with Pokemon." <laughs> you know, that's kind of cool. yeah, the first time um, in a long time. Yeah, um, and uh, so it just it looked interesting to me. I, you and I, obviously are big fans of the original Red and Blue and Yellow yeah. and and the Kanto region, uh, and it's. I think this was a cool choice to do as their first HD Pokemon game, you know, um, to go back to Kanto and see it. It's Again, this is not like the most graphically developed game on the Switch. It basically looks to me like a much nicer version of the engine they've been using for like um, Sun and Moon, like for yeah. 3DS. Uh, it's a little more developed like that. Like people are a little bigger. Pokemon are a little bigger, more fleshed out. There's a little more detail in the world. But it's roughly that level of, of detail and color work and that sort of thing. And I think it looks really good. It's fun. It is, it's, it's a constant blast of nostalgia. And guilt-free nostalgia. Like it's a right. good just like let's have fun in this world. Um, and I think it'll be good for new players as well. Obviously, the big change is that it's called Let's Go. It is inspired by the phenomenon that is, was... I think it's... People are still playing it. Pokemon Go. Um, And so, in this game, you do not fight wild Pokemon. Uh, Wild Pokemon also are not random encounters. They're just on the map, in the grass. Like, if you see an... Ekans is kind of scary, because you literally see a snake, like, going through the grass. And you're just like, I'm going to walk up to this fucking snake. Like, go, go snake. Yeah. Dumb snake, you don't even know that your name is just snake backwards, stupid snake. <laughs> so anyway, you go up to your Ekans or whatever it is, and it's the basically... I, I say this as someone who never played Pokemon Go, but I believe this is how Pokemon Go worked, is there's a circle on the Pokemon, yep. and they kind of move around. You, uh, We'll talk about the controls later, they're kind of weird, but you basically move your controller to where you want to throw the ball, you pick your Pokeball, you throw it, if you get a really good throw... You're more likely to catch them, and experience points also are on this kind of spectrum, where if you get just a normal kind of catch, but it wasn't that great, you'll get some experience. If you get an excellent throw, and you do it on one try, you get a couple of multipliers. If you catch, like, seven Geodudes in a row, you get a, a, um, a multiplier that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, they can just, like, encourage you just, like, fucking just farm those Geodudes once you get to that cave, man. Yes. you're going to see a lot of them, I'm guessing. Oh, I did seven. I literally, I said Geodude because I did, just I wanted to test out that system. And I'm like, there are plenty of Geodudes here, yeah. so let's go for it. Uh, so, yes, that is the new kind of way you catch Pokemon in this game. And I like it. It's interesting. It's, it's definitely weird. If you are someone who has been playing Pokemon for, like, 20 years now... It's odd to go out into the world and not have battles in those spots. And just be like, well, I'm going to wake up today, I'm going to catch 50 Geodudes, because it's going to make me really powerful. But it's also different. It's a very different pace. There is way more strategy to it than I think people who have not played it realize in 
how you do that experience, those experience systems, how you stack these multipliers, how you throw the Pokeball and what you do with that, how you use berries. It's, it's a really fun system going on there. Um, that Pokemon are on the overworld map and it's not random encounters also changes things up a lot. Mount Moon feels decidedly less frustrating now uh, because you don't have to see a million Zubats if you don't want to. You get to see exactly as many Zubats as you would like to see. And so that's kind of interesting. And I think the way it does experience where the Pokemon in your party just get equal experience for catches and if you want to do some grinding then there are very effective ways to get more experience faster based on how you are catching Pokemon. Uh, I think all of that is really interesting and I like that. Uh, they've rebalanced the experience system, so you actually need much more experience to level up in this game hmm. because you can get so much experience through farming those Pokemon, which I think is smart. So they, they luckily they did, um, you know, um, address that. So that is in the game, and battles are in the game, and that is the biggest difference from Pokemon Go. Is once you've caught all these Pokemon, there is something to do with them. So you can go. Uh, obviously, there are all the same trainers there as before. I could be wrong, but it feels like in some places they've added more trainers than were there in Red and Blue, so you have a few more to fight. Um, weirdly, Pokemon trainers are not the... Now they are the worst way to get experience. They used to be the best way. Right, yeah. Now, because this is my... If I have one big flop problem with this game, I do think it's too easy. Pokemon games are easy. As a, as a baseline, right? Yeah. But, like, I think this one just goes a little too far because, like, most of the trainers so far, and I believe this is accurate to red and blue, but it just feels a little off to me, only have, like, one Pokemon or maybe two. And I, I don't know if I even want this to be the base game, but I wish there was, like, a hard mode where I could just say every trainer has double the amount of Pokemon they had in the main game. Because... As this bug catcher, he has... Like, the one Kakuna that has no moves, I want to have seven Kakunas. Yes. So but I just throw them at me and fucking harden for days, motherfucker. But because the only time you use the battle mechanics is with the trainers, the trainer battles feel a little more special. And they've done stuff in the animation and music to make it feel more special. But when they only have one Pokemon, and the levels are not accounted for very well, like they're really low level, even though if you're catching even a moderate number of Pokemon, you're going to get... There's a steady level curve here. It just feels a little too light. And maybe that'll change. I only have two badges. I haven't gone that far with it, you know. Um, but I guess that's my one little complaint. But there's plenty of trainers. It does not feel... The pace feels very good to me so far. I think it's fun to be able to just, like, cut free and go catch every Pokemon you want. Because you don't have to run in a circle for three hours, you know, hitting a million Zubat encounters to find the one you want. You can just go around and you're like, oh, you know what? There's a special Zubat going around with like a color. That means I get more experience. That's something I can do. And then, oh, a rarer like Onyx has come out. Onyx you don't see as much. So now I'm going to go get my Onyx. Or earlier I was running around in this field and I got some new Pokemon. I got like a Venonat and a Meowth. And then Psyduck came out of nowhere. I'm like, oh, good. I get to do my Psyduck. And I'm catch that. Psyduck. Yeah. And uh, they've done things like you do not have to go to a PC anymore. Your PC is on your person. You just open your Pokemon box and all your Pokemon are right there and you can assign anyone to your party at any time. All these fucking Pokemon trainers are always staring at their goddamn smartphone. Exactly. Uh, your Eevee is with you at all times, but you can also have another Pokemon just following along behind you, like in Heart Gold and Soul Silver, And that's fun. So I've had like... I, I learned Butterfree is huge because I had my Butterfree behind me and Butterfree is like the size of a person. Yeah, that, that I think that kind of checks out with the anime, but yeah. you, you don't you usually see Butterfree like a certain distance away from people. Yep. 
Pidgeotto looks fucking badass flying yes. behind you. That's great. I got an Alolan Rattata, and have you seen Alolan Rattata? I think so, yeah. He is just the coolest fucking dude, because he's, he's all black with like this little like snidely whiplash mustache, and I love him. And if you have Rattata running behind you, he really runs around like a little rat. They're really creative animations. So, like, I mean, that's the number one thing. This game just oozes charm out of every fucking orifice. It is just the... This game is the embodiment of charming, and it's really fun in that sense. Um... And there are some other strategies with catching all these Pokemon, because any Pokemon you don't want, you send to Professor Oak. Professor Oak will send you a candy in return, and candies are how you get different stats up. You can raise your CP, which is a carryover from Pokemon Go, but means a lot more here, as far as I can tell, because it is a, is a ranking of overall battle power. So you can kind of customize, like, I want this Pokemon to be really good on defense. You can use your candies for that. So there's a lot of cool systems going on there. How do you think he, where do you think he gets those candies from? Just, there's something just kind of suspect about you here's, sending this motherfucker a well, Pokemon like a day later. He's like, I got some candy for you, kid. Here's, here's the thing. I was playing this game and Thomas was watching me the other day, my brother, and he has just finished playing Persona 5 again. And he asked, he saw me catching a bunch of like Zubats or something. And he's like, do you do anything with those? He says, C -c is it like Persona 5? Can you like kill them all and like give them to another Pokemon? <laughs> like you do with Personas in Persona 5? And I said... No, you turn them into candy. And he's like, what? Because he's like, I was joking. What do you mean? And I'm like, well, technically you send them to Professor Oak and he sends you candy back. But I don't know what happens with in the intervening time. What if Professor Oak is just Majin Buu? Like, what if this is the, what if this is the <laughs> world we live in now? It'd be pretty good. Um, Professor Oak, no, was it Professor Oak or the narrator? One of them was the voice of Mr. Satan on Dragon Ball Super. Sadly, he died a few months ago. Oh, which bugs me out. We've, we've gone through two Mr. Satans, which sucks. Anyway, um, but yes, so those are all the different mechanics. The game is so charming. It's, it's added in because now it can fully represent it, all the anime stuff. So Brock is just Brock from the anime. Misty is just Misty. Uh, Jesse and James from Team Rocket are Jesse and James, and they say we're blasting off again. Those are fun nostalgia hits. I do kind of wish they had gotten like the actors from the original dub to do some lines for that because I just heard Eric Vale as Brock in yeah. my head saying the lines, and I wanted to... I mean, they don't do the voices anymore, so I don't think that would be possible, but it would be is, fun. Is Gary in the game? Yes. Does he uh, say called, smell you later? He's called Blue. Okay, so they're doing that version. Okay. But he does, yes. He's not your rival, but he does, he comes up to you, this is kind of a spoiler, I guess, but in Pewter City, after you get the first badge, he comes up and it plays the music, and he's walking along, and he's got the hair, and he says, hey, I'm Blue. I'm Professor Oak's grandson. He gave me my first Pokemon a few years ago. So it's like, a, it's like this is a few years after Red and Blue. Um, he doesn't, that, that's just one scene. I assume he comes back later. I've only played two gyms. Um, but is he, is, he like, hey, I, I have the fucking Eevee, buddy. Like, that's, that's my thing from the anime. I have the fucking Eevee. Yeah. Fuck off. He does not, but uh, yeah, your main rival in this game is a nice rival, which, you know, I'm a little bored of that, but... I just, I, you know, ever since fucking Blue slash Gary in, in Pokemon Red said smell you later, I just, I need that. I need just this aggressive motherfucker to just randomly show up with a Pokemon yes. that I want to beat the shit out of. But I'm very excited to, like, see all the scenes I remember from Red and Blue done in this game because they they have a lot of flair to them they incorporate these things from the anime it's a lot of fun um i think i'll leave it there because we're running long but pokemon let's go i definitely approve of it so far i've been having a blast i've probably put four hours into it again two two gyms it's a lot of fun i'm excited i'm about to go meet uh bill in the in the scene where bill has turned himself into a pokemon 
And they have, I will not spoil it, they've added on to the lead-up to that a very funny scene hinting at where that's going that made me laugh out loud. So, I wonder what they do with, if everyone just has their fucking smartphone now, what is Bill's PC? I have no idea, because yeah, there's no PC to go like open, either. It's, it's not like... like... What's the point of Bill if I'm not fucking hacking into his PC server? Maybe he is the, you know, the, the Steve Jobs of this universe, and we're all using the Bill phone. <laughs> it's a much nicer universe. Yeah. All right. OS. <clears throat> okay, so that's Pokemon Let's Go. You want to talk some Hitman 2? So, yeah. So, Hitman 2, I don't know what I'm going to do for Game of the Year stuff this year, Jonathan, because Hitman 2 is probably the best game that came out this year, if I'm being <laughs> totally honest with myself, because it's so fucking good, Jonathan. Holy shit. It's Hitman. It's more Hitman. Hitman's back, buddy. Okay. Oh my god. So let's set a ground. Uh, where are we right now? So you, how much have you played of Hitman 2? Um, I, I have only played the first... Well, I, so I played the intro stuff, obviously. Outside of that, I have only played the first level of Hitman 2, but I've done all the mission stories. And I think I did it one more time past doing all the mission stories. So I played the Miami level a lot. Okay. Because I've just been like... I've been trying to play it and Red Dead 2 at the same time. So I've kind of like done one or two plays of Hitman 2 since I got it a day. I think I skipped one day, but that's been my general rule. I play a little bit of Hitman 2 and then I play Red Dead. Awesome. So I do not own Hitman 2 yet because it came out on Tuesday and then I was flying out on Friday away from my PS4. So I said, it's probably a bad idea. There might be a Black Friday sale, if not on it, then on a gift card or something. Um, So I'm just going to wait to pick it up. But my brother got it on PC and he has like... You've seen his crazy PC, I think. It's, yes, it's, yeah. uh, you know, And so he's running it at like 4K, 60 FPS. And uh, so I got to play it on his PC, and I played the same stuff you have. Not as much. I've, I've done one big run-through of Miami, although I played it pretty slow and, and tried a lot of different things and, and failed a lot, which is what Hitman's good for. Yes. Um, you, you experiment around. Uh, so I've definitely got a flavor for it. I've seen all the menus and stuff. I've seen my brother play a little bit more. And my reaction to it so far is, one, good God, I want to play more of this. Two, mm. this, is, this is Hitman 1 with a lot of new stuff and a nice coat of paint. Like, they've spit-polished it. It's Hitman Season 2. Yes, like it is. It's, it's, that is, like, was my main takeaway almost immediately was, this was so clearly originally designed to be Hitman Season 2, and then when they went to Warner Brothers as the publisher, it feels like Warner Brothers probably said, no, we want this to be just one big release. Because, like, to the point where... The maps are individual downloads. Like, you can only buy the game in one big package, but you download each map. So, you download like Miami and all I the didn't other ones know individually. That. That, I don't know if that's true on PC, but yeah. like when I went, because I had it preloaded on, on uh, my PS4, and when the game unlocked, it was like five or six notifications that came up. It was just like Hitman Miami, Hitman blah, 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 blah. Like, all those came up like, oh, my, holy shit, oh my god, okay. Yeah. I didn't realize that's how this was downloading. That's awesome. Yeah, and it even, it even does the thing where you can import all your Hitman 1 content yeah. into the game and play it that way. So, yeah, it's it's definitely... And I'm not saying any of this as a negative. Like, nope. I wanted Hitman Season 2. It honestly has a few more iterations than I was even expecting in some of the things they've added, like, uh, to quote Pokemon, Tall Grass, and yes. uh, just some of the little quality of life things. I think all the new UI stuff is really good. Yeah, um, I'm I really think... glad that they changed up the, like weapon or item selection menu so that it's at the bottom of the screen so while you're changing your item you can still see what's happening whereas before it like took up the whole screen yep. and you're blinded yeah I like that um, 
I think they've calibrated the difficulty a little better on yes. this one. Yeah, where that's the, huge. the default difficulty is because uh, they made it too easy at the end of Hitman Season One with the updates. Yeah. I mean, so what what they did with that was they, they they there are now three difficulties. And Hitman 2016, the original Hitman for the, this first season, of Hitman, whatever you fucking call it, um, this originally started with one difficulty, which was probably calibrated too hard because that was one of the things that kept you from getting into the game was that it was too punishing yeah. for your play style because you like you're a fucking maniac, um, and so like if you didn't want to be more stealthy, it was very punishing. And then later they updated it so that it was the default difficulty was a lot easier. Like as you say, I think it became kind of too easy. But they added in the professional difficulty, which was like really a hardcore mode. And so there was like this. It, it was like the default difficulty was too easy, but the the hard difficulty was too hardcore if you just wanted to do a normal thing at Hitman because that was the kind of thing where it's like you could only do one save if you do a violent kill against someone you can't can't take their outfit. It had like all these restrictions on it, which was cool for that mode, but didn't sort of answer what you wanted. Now Hitman Two has three difficulties. One is is like more or less where Hitman Two Thousand Sixteen was in terms of it's like you can take a lot more bullets you can kind of run around and be crazy and it's like that difficulty is there if you just want to go nuts there's a middle difficulty which i think now they call professional which is more around where hitman 2016 was i think you can take a couple more hits but you take a lot longer to heal which i think is like a good change and so that's the default difficulty i think that's a really good spot to be and then they have what is basically the hardcore mode on top of it and i think that's one of like the a really big like small change that is really big to me it makes it more fun it's, it allows you enough latitude to experiment a little if you want to go a little crazy but it also doesn't make it so easy that that it still it still incentivizes you to play it stealthy and strategic which i i like especially by like a, you know i played hitman 2016 you know, a couple weeks ago, because I yeah. would pop that game in every once in a while and just go back to it, and I realized, like, I have no real... Like, I can just get out a shotgun and just mow down motherfuckers, and there's kind of no incentive for me to play the other ways, and it would get a little boring for me. This feels like just the right spot. Yeah. And if yeah. I want to go back and do the crazy run, I can just notch the difficulty down. Yeah, and for people who haven't played Hitman before, I think that, that difficulty is a lot more accessible and I also really like the language they use so because when you go to the difficulty there's like a solid paragraph that kind of describes the like the vibe they're going for with the difficulty and so for the easier difficulty it doesn't say like you know it doesn't do like the doom or wolfenstein thing like this is the difficulty for babies if you're a loser baby like casual this is the casual difficulty for casuals it doesn't do that it says if you want to experiment and and it kind of says it's like if you want to experiment and kind of just like go do your thing this is the difficulty for you and then it has bullet points that like lay out this is like all the specifics of like we've changed this like more items are or like fewer items are restricted blah 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 blah, blah. and it does that for all three difficulties and i really like that a lot yeah very cool all right um do we want to talk about these specific levels a little bit um yeah yeah uh so there's they do an interesting thing where there's a tutorial mission that is kind of like the hitman 2 tutorial mission which is you on that beach like going to that beach house which is basically like the first thing that happens when you load up the game and that's a really cool little bottle Hitman mission, especially if you haven't played it in a while. That's like, yeah, Hitman. I liked it. It's also it is a great John Wick homage because it is totally an homage to the scene in John Wick where he's in his cool glass house and he kills all the people who come to kill him. Yes, yeah, it, that's great. And I just love the target because it's like the target is this lady who is clearly like in a romantic relationship with her bodyguard. And there's something really fun about like 
Like they like they straight up go and like you know there's no nudity, but they like you know take the, it's like nude for like they do when you take their outfit that their underwear on and they're like in the shower and I'm like skulking in this little like box in their fucking bedroom with like a fucking battle axe or whatever the fuck I had. I think no, I think it was like an oar. They have like these like big like ceremonial like maybe Hawaiian oars or something on the wall that like took one and it's like I think there's like waiting for them to turn their back so I could pop out and knock them out. That's yeah. So, so that mission's great, and yeah, it's like if you if you liked the the tutorial missions from Man One, there's another one of those in here. But one thing I wasn't expecting is there are the tutorial missions from Hitman One. So if you you do that fresh save and you like load up the game after you beat that beach house mission, it then says, oh, do you want to go do the ICA training? And you can either skip it or not. And I was just like, because I, I kind of knew that it was probably going to be the Hitman One stuff. I was framed. I was like, I just want to see what it is. And they straight up will take you through the Hitman 1 tutorial stuff. So if you have not played Hitman 1 at all, and you just buy Hitman 2, like, the, the tutorializing is really strong. And they even change up the tutorial missions, the, the Hitman 1 tutorial missions, a little bit to make them less strict. Because that the second tutorial mission in Hitman 1 is honestly one of the hardest things in Hitman 1. Yes. Like, it's particularly at the beginning, because you have no shortcuts you can take. Like, infiltrating that base is really, like, weirdly difficult. And they made that a lot smoother. And so, you know, even if you haven't, you know, you played Hitman 1, but you haven't played it in a while, it might be worthwhile to just go through those tutorial missions again. Because I just blew through those in, like, ten minutes. I just, like, bu- 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 like just fucking murdered people so fast because I-, I knew them so well. Um, but that's, like, cool and it's interesting. And that's one of the things that makes this feel so integrated with Hitman 1 and, and like, a direct continuation and if you did have, if you did buy Hitman One and you have Hitman Two, the way you unlock the maps because this took me a little bit to figure out is you have to go into Hitman One and like there's like a download in the Hitman One menu that unlocks that for Hitman Two. So you have to do it. You can't do it in the PSN store, which is where I was looking at it for it uh, at first. You have to actually go into Hitman and activate those, and then that just populates in the area of like locations in Hitman Two. So, anyways, after all the tutorial stuff is done. That's when you get into the, the, the meat of the game, which is the, the first of the five locations, um, which is Miami, which is the one that they've shown at E3 and a couple of other places. That's like a like kind of like a NASCAR rally. And it's interesting because one half of the map is like this NASCAR rally. And then the other half of the map is this big building with all these scientific facilities. And so you have one of your targets is this lady who's racing. And then the other target is her dad, who's like this business crime lord guy who's, who's like selling militarized androids and all this shit and and so it's a really interesting structure for the map because it's it, it kind of feels like you're playing two hitman maps in parallel and it's fucking awesome like there's i just it, it was very daunting to me at first because it's huge like it's bigger than any of the hitman maps in hitman one but once you get used to how like the schedule that the race is on and like the different ways you can move from one side of the map to the other and sometimes kind of affect what's going on between the two it's really cool yeah, I because I've only played done a full playthrough once, and again, I spent like probably 45, 50 minutes yeah. on it, I still feel like I barely know that map, more yeah. so than probably any map in the game since Sapienza or Mumbai. Like, just, just like, this one feels like really big. Like, I know there's just a ton I didn't see. And like, the specific ways I killed the targets, I know I could do utterly completely different ways. Like, not just like slightly different, but like... I could see an entirely different side of the map, but the way I did it, like, was very satisfying. The story opportunity things were just perfect. Like, yes. I was doing a chef's kiss there. Yeah. I'm sorry. It was just there's one with a uh, the robot gun, and you pull a picture out of a magazine, and it's just like when I realized what it was doing, I was just like, 
this is like the beating heart in yeah. the. Uh, in it, the it's Hitman Ohio. does RoboCop, and it's the best fucking thing. It's so good. It's so good. And uh, the way I killed the the woman, I I did the I'll just say the medic one just, again, just yeah, chef's kiss. That was great. That there's, was so great. there's I think my favorite one on that map is the one you do no no spoilers, but it's the one you have to do while you're in the flamingo costume, and it's the fucking just it's so good. It's it's one of those like I love when the story uh, opportunities or whatever are. They feel like you're playing a like a hitman movie, and that is like the most I've ever felt for one of those. Is like it's just so great, yeah. It's yeah. So and again, like it's all the stuff you loved in Hitman One, a little tighter, a little more polished, looks a little nicer, uh, but with all the same creativity and and just this. It's a beautiful murder flower, as you have said before. Yeah, and it's it's that thing where. I'm so excited to go in and replay all the Hitman 1 stuff also. Oh, yeah. Because it's one of the things that at first I was a little bit disappointed that they did this. But then after I played through the Miami map once, I realized like the advantage of this is um, when you, you input that, import that Hitman stuff, you, you don't have any of the mastery or unlocks that you had on the Hitman 1 level. So if you, like me, played that game to fucking death... You don't have the shurikens. You don't have the like, you know, the fucking duck, or you know, you don't have all the the, the ICA remote explosive phone and yeah. all the cool random bullshit you got, or the Krugermeyer pistol that I played every Hitman level with after I unlocked it. Um, you don't have all of that when you you bring it in, but you can get them. Like, but you have to get the mastery unlocks like you did in Hitman One, and they've even added a couple of new ones in to the. the I think with like, there's a new level twenty lock, unlock. I want to say for each of the Hitman One maps, or at least there definitely are in a couple of them. When I was looking through the unlocks, um, so there's something that's really cool about like. At first, I was bummed out because I wanted to just be able to jump into Hitman Two with my Krugermeyer and my like normal loadout. But then one, it forced me to play the Miami map totally fresh, which I have not done for a Hitman map since I played Paris for the first time fucking forever ago. I know, like and it's so ago. fun. Yeah, it's so fun to just be like, I've got nothing. Like, I don't have jack... I don't even got jack shit, and I have to kill this dude. Like, I like the only... You, you have... The only things you carry over in terms of unlocks are, like, entirely cosmetic unlocks. Like, I have the winter suit uh, costume I unlocked by doing the silent assassin on a certain number of elusive targets. So if you did some of those special ones, you have those special ones. But any like material unlock, like those are things you have to get again. But the thing I'm so excited about now is I want to. I'm not going to touch any of the Hitman One stuff in Hitman Two until I finish Hitman Two, and then I'll have all the Hitman Two unlocks. And I'm so excited about going into all the Hitman One levels. And start fresh with all my Hitman Two shit. That sounds so crazy that sounds and like ridiculous. Good yeah, like because they double up on some of the so like you know you unlock a different version of the lock pick in Hitman in the Hitman Two levels. Like because I kind of looked at what the unlocks were. It looks like you unlock like a different version of like poison pills or something. So there's some of those that are the same that you want to get there like cosmetically different that serve the same functions. But then there are some that are like like there's one that I really want to get that looks like you. You know how there are some of those um, assassinations you can do where there's like a puddle of water and you can get like exposed wires in there? They basically have an unlock where you can do that and like create an electric shock without having to expose any wires and you just put like a thing there and act, remote activate it. Yeah. That sounds like a fucking game changer for some shit you could do in Hitman 1. And it's so exciting to me. And, and it's, it's just, yeah, it, it's having this whole pile of new Hitman to have and then realizing that it changes the context of all the old old Hitman shit and knowing that, like, you know, some of the different mechanical changes they've made and all, like, the, the sort of, like, spit and polish changes they've made will obviously carry over to going back to those Hitman 1 maps. 
is is just like intoxicating like it's so it's so much to have and and to be have to hold back from it because i'm still playing red dead 2 it's a lot i wish this game came out like a couple of weeks later so i could just deep dive into it and be, I, that might be the only thing i'm playing i yeah i wish it was i don't know what time of the year but uh you know smash bros is december 7th uh, we've got a busy time of school year for me, yeah, yeah, me and I'm like, but luckily Hitman 2 is good in small doses, Yes, which I'm excited for. But yes, I will be buying this game as soon as I'm back at my PS4, but I will be probably making my brother let me continue to play it on his. Yeah, the Sean Bean elusive target starts on Tuesday, um, although but I think it goes for like two weeks, so you oh, have good, a lot okay. of time to prepare for it. I'm, I, I told Thomas, I said, when you play this, just let me be in the room. I'm not gonna make I'm not gonna make you like let me play it. I just want to watch it. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I uh, I'm excited for that. So I'm glad they I'm glad they did like a nice long stretch for the first elusive target. Yeah. But yes, I uh, I'm so psyched to play more of this. Yes. So there will definitely be a lot more Hitman to come in the future when we've played a lot more of it. But yeah. Just it, like the little taste, it's so good. Yeah. So if you if you if you played Hitman one, I don't know how you would not get Hitman two. But if you did not play Hitman one, fucking get Hitman one on like super cheap on sale and get Hitman two. It's import that shit over and start from the beginning and play it all the way through. That's my recommendation. It's more Hitman. It's it's more Hitman, which is one of the best video games ever made in my opinion. So. Awesome. All right. Let's finish with something that was not so awesome. Doctor Who, Series 11, Episode 7, Kerblam. You also tweeted about this, Sean. <sighs> yeah, do I? Want... Maybe, maybe you can read those for us because they yeah. just made me laugh. Uh, and I will say, we are, this podcast, as you can tell, is running long, longer than we've gone in a while. I think that's fine. It's fun, you know. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. We were back together in the same room yep. for the first time in a while. But I think we should just probably cut to the chase on this episode because here's the way Kerblam went for me, Sean, was for most of the episode I said, this is okay. This feels pretty Doctor Who-y to me in that, you know, we're on a weird planet and they're doing some kind of social satire stuff and there's a mystery. It's not great. It's not particularly good, but it's fine. And then you realize this is a Reaganomics wet dream come to life in a Doctor Who episode and no, just no. So we'll just get to that. But first, I, because they made me laugh, why don't you just read what you Yes. Uh, so my, my tweets, because I, I had to make... I think this is maybe the first time, other than when I've posted like screenshots for Hatsune Miku or Spider-Man, this is the first time I've had like text-based tweets that I had to do two, because I was so fucking angry. I don't tweet almost ever. I, the last time I tweeted was Stan Lee. Before that, I think it was Spider-Man screenshots for our podcast discussion. Before that, was Steve Ditko. It's like very rarely ever tweet... I was so fucking furious at the end of this this podcast that I had to say, it's really appropriate that the title for this episode of Doctor Who, Kerblam, sounds like they're censoring something because this episode was a real steaming sack of horse kerblam. They had something going and just kerblammed it all up at the end there. Mother kerblammer. In a season full of odd, contradictory moral positions taken by the Doctor, this one is right at the kerblamming top. I never, in my kerblamming life, Thought I would see the doctor actively defend capitalist labor exploitation. Jesus, kerblamming, Christ, what were they thinking? What the fuck, Jonathan? No, we don't need to do kerblam on this podcast. It's fucking explicit language, motherfucker. What the fuck were they thinking, Jonathan? They weren't thinking. That's the answer. There is, I have, like, here's the thing. I'm 
I didn't like this episode. I have no passion about it. And I'm mostly going to just defer to you because I am dead inside. I am dead inside from this season of Doctor Who because it is abundantly clear to me that for all the effort Jodie Whittaker is going into and Bradley Walsh is going into and the other actors and I think like the production designer and the directors and some are going into, in the writer's room, Chris Chibnall is going into the exact polar opposite amount of effort, which is to say no effort on coming up with anything resembling a coherent, interesting, or deep characterization of the Doctor or anybody else on screen. If you need any more evidence that the writing on this season of Doctor Who is abhorrently terrible, look at the fact that Ryan Sinclair has had exactly one character trait, that he has this dysphagia thing. Yeah, dyspraxia. Dyspraxia. That that exactly one character trait has only been shown to us once with the bike thing. That that exactly one character trait is brought up when they want us to rem- want to remind us that he has exactly one character trait, and that it has never impacted his characterization or or act role in the plot ever once at all. And that is what they do. And with the Doctor, they have no idea. All the Doctor is to them is a person who goes around, is friendly, makes speeches sometimes, and name drops like a motherfucker. That's all the Doctor does. And I am just at this point actively sad that there are people writing Doctor Who who do not give a shit about writing anything resembling interesting Doctor Who. It sucks. I'm dead inside. Sean, your turn. Yeah, the the thing that is the most infuriating about this episode to me is that I think for the first half or so, it is one of the best episodes of Doctor Who from this season. Like yeah. it, And it's the most Doctor Who episode from this season. It was the most... It felt like this could be a fourth Doctor story or a seventh Doctor story in a way I have not gotten a sense from anything else in this season. A little bit of like the historicals felt like kind of evoking a little bit of first Doctor, second Doctor vibe, but still not quite because those eras are so different. But there were, there were like moments in here like the beginning, which was like I thought was a lovely opening to the episode with the package arriving in the TARDIS. It was like, I mean, it's the first, it's fucking amazing to me that this is what the seventh episode of the season. This is the first episode that like properly started in the TARDIS. And it was like, Hey, we like have a little TARDIS moment at the beginning and the doctor also, has the fez. I'm like, that's, this is a good solid opening. Also the first time they've done anything to directly reference anything from the doctor's past. Yeah. And make it feel like this character is connected to the 12 that came before. Yeah. So yes. It's just like a really solid opening that felt like, that part felt like, oh, this could be, this is how you open an episode of Doctor Who. This is how we've opened episodes of Doctor Who for the past like 13 jo- years or whatever jo- in modern Doctor Who. I will come out of my death state to say Jodie Whittaker and Fez was absolutely delightful. Yeah. yeah. That like that part was great. And then then they like arrive at the planet and, and it's just like, oh my God. Like there's just a feeling that like, it's like, oh my God, they're like doing Doctor Who. Because the only good episodes for the season is are like the historicals. Like Rosa has its own problems, but at least that episode has like some life to it. Everything else is like just so dead and mediocre. And like obviously, Demons of the Pujab is totally different. Um, it's the one from the alternate universe where the people writing the show gave up goddamn shit. Yeah, but it's also one that's like if you took all the Doctor Who stuff out of it, it would still be great. Yes. It, and so this is like, a, oh my god, like this is a Doctor Who story. And then you kind of start getting into it. I'm like, yeah, this is still our. It's like. It starts very clearly having some pacing issues early on, and it very quickly felt to me like this was something that needs to be a two-parter to, like, you know, ignore it. Like, again, this is at the beginning. I don't know where the story's going yet. So at the beginning, I was like, as they're going through this stuff, it's like, they really need to make this a two-parter to really, like, stretch out some of, like, the character stuff because there's so much of talking to these different people and talking to the the Lee Mack character. I like Lee Mack's a good British comedian. He's like the working class dude who works in the shipping area with Yaz. And I'm like, oh yeah, Lee Mack is here. I kind of like him. He's not that great in this episode, but 
yeah, I like Lee Mack. Like, cool. Um, and there's just a little bit of stuff like that. There's, it's kind of like working with me. I've, you know, worked shit retail jobs. And it's like, this is like kind of evoking something to me. And, and it's, it's walking a little, or it's talking a little bit of the talk if it's not fully walking the walk yet. There's one really good line that then this episode later like totally betrays. But it's like, a, it's a good fourth Doctorish line from the 13th Doctor where um, the, the, I think it's like the evil-ish like weird manager dude's like, do you want me to give you like a slip for like disobedience or something? She's like, yes, I could add it to my collection. She's like, that's such a Tom Baker moment. Again, when you throw the right lines at Jodie Whittaker, she fucking shines. Yeah, and it's like there's little moments like that sprinkled throughout and again it's like it's it's for the first half or so of the episode it's talking the talk about the like social satire and like the message about capitalism and and automation of the of the labor force which is what like this you know is such a thinly veiled like amazon thing going on here with this company in the Kerplam that is like the biggest retailer retailer in the galaxy and there's some interesting stuff about they say you know that 10% of the labor force has to be operated by humans and I really like the lady that works for like the HR or whatever I think she like that first scene with her is really good there's just some really good setup stuff and then about halfway through the episode there's something where it's like in my stomach I was starting to feel very uncomfortable and I couldn't quite identify it and it was only after the episode was down, done and I was thinking about it that I think I realized I was starting to perceive with, in like my instincts or something in my gut before my brain caught up where like the narrative thrust was going because it started to become clear that like, well, it feels like the system, like it, it became very clear about a third through the episode that the system is the thing that sent the help me message. Like they, they drop a line that like very clearly sets that up before they like establish it for the characters, for the characters realizing it. I was like, okay, that could be an interesting twist, I guess. And then it's like, and then there's that like manager guy who's very clearly kind of evil and like bad, but he's so a red, obviously a red herring because there would be no substance to anything like, even just, like, there, let alone narrative, like, the thematic meaning substance, there'd be no dramatic substance to him being revealed to be bad because of how obviously asshole-ish he is. And so he's a red herring. And if you've ever watched an episode of Doctor Who, li- literally throw a dart at any of the 800-plus episodes of Doctor Who, you would know that, right? Yes, exactly. So it's like, just in my guts, I knew it's like, well, he's not the thing. And so it's just like, there's something where, like, my gut was understanding where they were going before you get to the last ten minutes where in the fucking, at the fucking end of this fucking episode they reveal that that actually the the it's not been the system is not wrong um it is the the janitor guy who's been with us the whole time who's the fucking janitor who is actually a labor rights activist who has been turned into a straw man figure for this this script who who is his plan is to murder millions of people with evil bubble wrap, which is like that's a like the evil bubble wrap Let's, that kills people is like a Doctor Who-ish enough thing that I can accept that. Oh, can I just? Uh, you're being too nice. Okay. The take out all the thematic, socio-political stuff for just a second. Okay. You shouldn't, but for just a second, the end of this episode, the plot of this episode, as it wraps up and all the stuff with the bubble wrap, that is. Fucking stupid and lame, even by the standards of this stupid and lame season. I like I was rolling my eyes at every inch of that. I think there's a way you could do it and make it fun. This is just it, it is limp as limp could be. Yeah, it doesn't even make sense if you interrogate it for no. half of a second. But it was just like it's power of three levels of like yeah. evil bubble wrap. I'm like uh, I will accept this enough. Like like I don't know if it should be accepted, but I was like. Okay. Okay. Bring all the other stuff back yes. in. Yes, but to bring the other stuff back in, um, 
yeah, so he he reveals that his plan is to use this bubble wrap that's going to ship to everybody, and when you pop the bubbles, it's going to kill whoever is right there. It's again, you know, bubbles would have gotten popped before that point. Not everybody is a fucking five year old and pops their bubble wrap. Like I get it's Doctor Who, but also no. Like I have to admit, I'm old enough at this point. I don't pop bubble wrap. That's just not a thing I do. Like I'm seriously, no, seriously, people. Um, like I'm fine with it with the doctor having that character trait, and I think that's funny that the doctor 100% would, like to the point where I thought they had missed a beat in that opening scene where with where I think if they they now you in hindsight you realize it's to set up this whole dumb bubble wrap bubble wrap bullshit. But Ryan takes out the, the bubble wrap for the package, even like oh they even send you bubble wrap, and and I thought there there's such a good line, such a good Doctor Who line there. Of where the doctor just says, no, that's just another part of my order. And it's just the doctor ordered fucking bubble wrap because that's 100% what she would do. But anyways, they couldn't do that because that, that the whole thing was that apparently that, this fucking retailer sends everything in bubble wrap. Also, that would require a level of understanding of the character of the doctor that they clearly do not have. Yes, exactly. But anyways, so so they have the straw man villain who who is the custodian who is going to murder millions of people to try to draw attention to the fact that the system has, you know, automated labor in this way and is destroying some stuff and bad and murder and ah, and then he dies a, a brutally violent death that it feels like the doctor could have one hundred percent saved him from because she has a fucking teleporter. It's like just teleport over there and grab him, and then teleport back. Like I don't understand why you can't just save this dude before the bubble wrap bubble wrap goes but that would cause you to have to reckon with anything about the moral structure of this episode and the fact that you're you know fighting against the labor rights activist is the villain of this episode um even if they you know they made him monstrous in like the weird millie killing millions of people thing which is a ridiculous plan that does not need to go to those lengths to draw attention to any of this shit or try to fix any of these problems so it's just dumb plotting but the doctor doesn't have to reckon with any of that shit. And so that guy blows himself up and she just teleports away. And then you have a scene that's, that makes everything better because um, we find out that the laborers who are working in these horrible conditions um, and then the rest of society that has like 50% unemployment or something in this galaxy that is surely falling utterly to ruin as a result of all this shit. Well, at least these workers get two weeks paid leave, Jonathan, and get a free vacation to their home. You know, because we found out that that Lee Mack character, um, he w- works to the bone as this fucking guy working in the shipping bullshit just so he can pay for his daughter's education. And he can only make so little money that he can only with his own, like the personal money he doesn't put aside for ed- education, visit her twice a year. Well, at least they're getting two weeks fucking paid leave. And they also, get one free trip home, Jonathan. Everything's fucking fine, Jonathan. Also remember that Kerblam in this scenario is like the Trade Federation in Star Wars, and it is its own sovereign state where the people yes. live and under the laws of Kerblam. So, yes. And yeah, the Doctor Kerblam, does... the society, yeah, it, it is a company unto itself that has no oversight by any governing body whatsoever. Yes, that is yes. an important point. And the Doctor has no problem with this at any point in the episode. You're missing, the, you're missing the worst part, Sean. Oh, we're going to get to the worst part. Yes, but go ahead. You say it. Okay, I mean, you say it. You say it. The doctor utters the line. Hmm. The systems aren't the problem. How people use and exploit the system, that's the problem. To which I say, no showrunner of Doctor Who, who is even vaguely borderline on the fringes of competency, would ever let that line escape the doctor's mouth, saying, 
The system of capitalism is, is A-OK, I love it. It's just that you, who's trying to fix it, are the problem. What is going on? Is the doctor going to be in a guns don't kill people, people kill people shirt next time, Sean? Because we're, we're, we're not even a step away from that. We are up against it. It's fucking... So I was watching this episode with my dad. And so I didn't want to just go into histrionics like I would have if I was watching it on my own or watching it with you. But it was when she said, the systems aren't the problem, how people use and exploit the system, that's the problem. Then she says, people like you, pointing at the fucking labor rights activist who's a fucking custodian and who's wearing his fucking custodial gear. In that moment, it's the working class fuckers like you that are the problem, sir. When the doctor said that, I just wanted to stand the fuck up and scream, what the fuck are you saying? What? And earlier, she has a line that just blows my fucking mind when she says Kerblam's system does have a conscience. And that in, in the moment, that line is supposed to more mean it has sapience and it's fighting against the labor rights activist. But, when, but the, the word conscience doesn't just mean sapience. It also means morals, and it means having a moral conscience and an understanding of right and wrong, and it's fucking Amazon, and it's fucking capitalism. Like, what the fucking fuck are you saying? This is the doctor. We, last season, we had oxygen. We had oxygen where the, the doctor says this speech Beautiful fucking episode, amazing speech where he says, they're not your rescuers, they are your replacements. The end point of capitalism, a bottom line where you, where human life has no value at all. We're fighting an algorithm, a spreadsheet, like every worker everywhere, we're fighting the suits. How do you go in one season from that, from fucking, we're fighting an algorithm, a spreadsheet, like every worker everywhere fighting the suits. How do you go from that to the systems are the problem, how people use and exploit the system, that's the problem people like you. How the fuck does that happen? Where are we, Jonathan? We're, we're at a point where this show desperately needs to be taken away from the people writing it, like, pronto, like a baby being abused from its parents. Like, it, we are in, we are in Doctor Who is on, this is worse than, like, the John Nathan Turner, like, we are in crisis mode creatively with this show because what you need to do at this point for this show to creatively have a future is directly in the text address why the doctor would say that you like cannot write this off this has to be like the season of community where someone else wrote it and so the next season they all joked that it was the gas leak season you have to do that you have to have jody whitaker on screen saying man those post-regeneration effects lasted way longer than they ever have before and i spent an entire year goddamn crazy that that is the zone you have to be in because Again, it, it like, and it's not just two last season. This is like a core principle of the doctor. Not necessarily anti-capitalism, but maybe not standing up for the big business. <laughs> yes, can no, we say that? It's because the doctor is a rebel. Like, yes. that's, that's her character. She's this supposed is... to be a rebel who flew away from Gallifrey because... Because the Gallifreyan society and the Time Lords were so stayed and stuck in this like moral quagmire of they have all this power but they don't use it to do any good. And, and she felt like that can't be my life. I have to go out there and, and have adventures and do the right thing and, and be active and present in the universe. And when, you know, she has that whole speech, or like this version of the Doctor has this speech in the first episode of this season where she talks about, you know, whenever there's help, like I always answer. It's like, 
Well, the fucking people of the society need you to do something about this Kerblam situation because the full first half of this fucking episode is laying out step by step how horrible the society is and and how you know they they have found this strange way of where they have managed to get technologically to the point where they no longer need people to do menial labor um to produce value in society but they are so st- stuck by the old structures of capitalism that they cannot find a way to see people as being valuable unless they produce labor, even though we don't need them to anymore. It is this frightening, like, endpoint vision of capitalism, which is a very real possibility. And that's the world they live in. The doctor should not encountering the society that is forcing people into menial labor for, like, wages that are not obviously livable. If, if fucking the Lee Mack character can only see his daughter twice a fucking year, that's not appropriate. That's not a decent way to live society. Like to, to structure any sort of society, the doctor does not encounter that society and see this this massive like retail chain that is a government unto itself that has no oversight whatsoever and is that abusing these people. And the only reason that you know any people seem to have any jobs at all is that there has been some legislation by something that has has mandated some amount of human labor force, which isn't even fixing any of the real problems. Because if that wasn't the case. It seems like the entire society would completely fall apart because nobody would have access to money, which is the only means in this capitalist system that they would be able to have the means to live in the first place. So this society is completely fucking falling apart and oppressing all the human characters we encounter. And the Doctor encounters this society and ultimately decides, well, this one guy has this weird evil plan that is fucking ridiculous and I'm going to stop him. Um, and, and also, by the way, the system has murdered multiple characters because the system is the one that murders the Lee Mack character and the system is the one that murders that lady that the guy likes. And so it's like the fucking robots are, are, are murdering people. The robots are murdering people. The system is literally killing people in this episode and the doctor does nothing to address that at all. Um, not even like a, like a, like wag the finger, like bad robots. You really should, even if this guy's doing something bad and you did against you, you shouldn't murder other people. Also, I don't know why the system didn't just murder this guy, which it clearly was very easily capable of doing, but you wouldn't have a plot because you would have to think of something to fucking do this. Um, and so, the, but the doctor encounters this society, all those issues, all these problems, and then she just fucking leaves. It's like, oh, this is fine. Yeah, okay. Oh, you're giving them two weeks paid leave. That's great. That's all they need. That fixes all this. I guess I'm out. The- Bye. It's even worse. Because what this episode says from beginning to end is that Kerblam is good, the chink in the system was one of the oppressed workers, and by making minor, non-structural, but minor cosmetic improvements, which actually makes sense with Chris Chibnall's whole view of this show right now, but by making minor cosmic Im- cosmetic improvements, Kerblam is good, and it is better than it was before. Uh, my tweet in response to this episode was, well, if you ever wondered what it would look like if a Reaganomics wet dream attained sentience and became an episode of Doctor Who, Kerblam is the episode for you, I guess. And that's it. And that's the thing is that because I had read your tweet, which you didn't spoil it, but you pointed out that there was going to be something weird about it. uh, I went into this episode with that in my head because I watched it after you had said that. And it's there the whole episode. Yeah. Because the doctor is super excited about Kerblam from the very beginning. Because I actually disagree about the scene on the TARDIS. I like the Fez component. And I think it's a fun scene overall. Except... I do not see any world where the Doctor is this excited about, like, 
corporate advertising. Yeah, like I don't think I had fully processed the, at that point in the scene yes. that that's really what was going on. Yeah, yeah, but she's like, I love the Kerblam dude. Kerblam is awesome. Oh, they're the biggest retailer in the galaxy. And I hear her saying that with like vigor and I hear every other doctor in my head going, they're the biggest retailer in the galaxy, those motherfuckers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like Tom Baker wouldn't do that. Tom Baker would be like, uh, Sarah Jane, they're the biggest retailers in the galaxy. I hate them. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. what he would be doing, right? A bad impression aside, sorry, Mr. Baker. But like, it's so out of character. When she gets there, like, she just loves everything. She's excited to get a job. When Kira, the woman on the line, is like talking about the human rights act, she's like, oh, why do you need people at all? Why don't you use robots for everything? And the doctor's like, and the doctor is like surprised by this, and it's like one oxygen was just last year and did the same thing better, um, but two doctor like why do you not intuitively get this? Like mm-hmm. this would be one hundred percent in your wheelhouse to understand this struggle. She never understands the struggle. She never attempts to understand the struggle. She only wants to stop this isolated incident. In the end, she stops the isolated incident, does literally nothing, does fuck all to address the systemic problems here. And what is worst about it is that this is not an isolated episode. This is a chain of episodes on Doctor Who this year. Take out Demons of the Punjab, where the Doctor isn't even an important character. It's a chain of episodes, six of these episodes now, where the Doctor encounters some isolated issue the isolated issue leads to a much broader systemic issue going on she does nothing to address the systemic issue going on like i don't know in rosa maybe go find where those space racists are coming from sure, something yeah. like that there's a lot of other good examples too like the arachnids in the uk is a really good one yeah and, or yeah and she doesn't do both in arachnids in the uk and in the ghost monument she does nothing against like the actual villain of the episode right. versus the ghost monument is a dude holding this immoral race in arachnids in the uk it's the chris noth bad trump character yeah. and she does nothing against any of them yeah and she's she, the doctor here in season 11 is a pro status quo character yeah because she never attempts to alter the status quo. She tries to stop things that would stop the status quo, but she is all she is a like corporatist, like like system is good, I trust the system, you know, um respect your ape overlords, like or ant I'm quoting something stupid that I don't even it's a Nickelodeon, right? I don't, I, know, I don't remember. Okay, anyway, someone some millennial will know what I was trying to quote there. Um and that's who she has become this year and this is the ultimate expression of that and I'll ask you right now, Sean. This mm-hmm. is a big question. It's not, I don't think it's a hard question. It's a big question. Has the Doctor ever done anything this no, out of character no, 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 in no, the no. history of Doctor Who? No. Like, I like because at least the Sixth Doctor choking out Perry White right when he regenerated is excused by he had just regenerated. Like, it's still not a great scene in terms of how it's executed. But at least, like, the Sixth Doctor doesn't go around fucking choking people out every episode, <laughs> right? It's that one instance. And then, and then like, the whole rest of that... His character arc for the rest of that story is him being like... I need. I can't believe I did that. I need to go find, like, become a hermit on some mountain and meditate for a hundred years to repent for what I just did to you. Like, that's his whole fucking thing in that story. So it's like they, they get it. They, they got it. Then, even if the, the twin dilemma is fucking terrible, the doctor isn't terrible in it. Like, the doctor is the doctor still. This is, and this was like, this maybe is too hot of a reaction. I don't know, but my immediate reaction coming out of the Land was this is the worst episode of Doctor I've seen. Not for the production values or the acting or, like, the dramatic structure of the scripting. Like, Twin Dilemma as a piece of, like, television writing divorced from, like, theme and those things is worse than this. Like, fucking Time Flight is worse than this. Time in the Ronnie, worse than this. Like, those are fucking awful pieces of, like, dramatic 
storytelling just bar none but this in terms of like the ethos presented in the just the the moral like dimension of this episode is so backwards and like rotted from the fucking core and so so misunderstands and misinterprets the nature of the character of the doctor and the nature of the show of doctor who to the fucking core to such an extent i've never before seen it in in all all of this show to just like be flabbergasted and, and only be able to assign this as probably the worst episode of the doctor who i've ever seen because at least rosa was dealing with like really complicated stuff that's really hard to do and like you know a lot of the way that dealt with the race stuff wasn't amazing but it wasn't the most horrible thing I've ever seen. Like, I've seen other biopics that did that shit way worse. Rosa is not a racist episode. Rosa yeah. has problems in how it presents racism. Yeah, and Rosa's themes. so well-meaning in what it's trying yes. to do, right? This episode is, I don't know you call racist towards the, the working class, but it is that. It is, it is actively like, fuck these people, corporations are good, all of that. And, you know, this is what I mean by, like, this needs to be taken out of Chris Chibnall's hands because... He did not write this episode, and I don't really care who did, because this should not get past a showrunner. A competent showrunner would look at that and say, no, that's not the Doctor. And you would say, and, and again, we are not, and I hope people who are maybe just listening to us uh, have come on the show recently don't think that we have this like really narrow view of what the Doctor is or what Doctor Who is. Doctor Who can be many, many wonderful things. The Doctor can be old, grumpy William Hartnell, he can be young, crazy Matt Smith. He can be a she. He can be Jodie Whittaker. Yeah. He can, like the Doctor, Doctor Who can be a historical biopic. It can be an epic space adventure. It can be a small tragedy. It can be a horror movie. It can be a horror movie. It can be a comedy. It can be anything. Yes. It can be a parable. It can be a satire. It can be fucking anything. What it what it can't be is this. It cannot be something that. But here's the thing. I don't think anyone involved in this episode, and I could be wrong. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit. I don't think anyone involved in this episode sat down, put a picture of Ronald Reagan on their desk, and said, we need to write well, an episode. Well, for them, it would be Thatcher. Okay. Put a picture of Margaret Thatcher on their desk and said, um, you know, dear Iron Lady, we are going to write the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate episode for your business philosophy, and, and we are going to make all the Doctor Who fans see that corporations are their best friend, and those two weeks of paid leave absolve them of all sins. I don't think anyone sat down to do that. I think they didn't care. And I actually don't know which one is worse. I yeah. honestly don't know which one is worse. Because the not caring one means that you are... And I think it is the not caring one. Because if you look at all the other episodes, what it shows is that the only thing they've cared about in these episodes so far is getting flashy production values out there, getting a couple of zingers, making sure the Doctor just name drops like a motherfucker all over the place because it's the only character trait the 13th Doctor has is she name drops a lot. And just to get the episodes out there, to shit them out, it is the most production line awful TV I've seen in years. Like, this is a bad season of television by any metric. You don't have to be a Doctor Who fan. Like, good God critics are giving this season the the most severe of passes I've ever seen for yeah. anything. Just because it is Doctor Who. This is awful television. But this episode, it just, they don't care. It's, it's, it's... It doesn't matter what the Doctor stands for. It doesn't matter what the Doctor is. It doesn't matter what we want this show to communicate to people. We just have to get through 45 minutes of storytelling and then we're done. Yeah. And it really doesn't matter what we do along the way. And, and honestly, I, I could respect it more if it came from the Margaret Thatcher place. Because I'm like, alright, at least that's it's fucking toxic. 
But at least it's an ideology that you actually believe in and put some work into the effort. I just think they don't care. Yeah, because it definitely has that feeling of like if you if you wrote a scene where you know like at the end of this episode, there's that little moment where Yaz is like, let's take Lee Mac's necklace to to her to his daughter and and tell her how much that he loved her. Is like if you actually showed that scene. And trying to show anything about the society outside of what is happening in Kerblam. I don't think it would be possible for this episode to have gone the way it did. If you, like, thought for two seconds. Because it would be like if you, you know, rewind fucking two years to the beginning of when we were recording this podcast. And I was talking about Black 47. A, a revenge movie about an Irishman going and taking revenge for the horrors. The just utter horrors visited upon the Irish people by the British. If this episode is like if that fucking movie ended with the Hugo Weaving or like the British lieutenant who's like this pompous fucking piece of shit, like persuading the Irish student being like, oh no, like, oh, you guys aren't so bad. Oh, you're going to give us like a little bit of money and like a little bit more food. Okay, great. That's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. This is fine. And that's how that movie ended. It's like, like the equivalent of we are giving you Two weeks paid leave. Two weeks paid leave. Oh, great saviors. Thank you, Kerblam, for visiting upon us two weeks of paid fucking leave. When you murdered seven fucking people. Like, this, the system literally murdered people. Thanks for giving us two weeks paid leave, motherfuckers. And the like, mo- how do you not think outside the little tiny strange stage that you've constructed in this episode to not think about anything about the implications of what you're fucking invoking. The episode also is completely sociopolitically illiterate about what automation is in yes, the economics exactly. of modern life. Because the, the, the conversation around automation, it's partially an unemployment conversation. It is also a conversation about what the future of employment is, yeah. right? Because like the United States of America actually has very low unemployment right now. And we have a lot of automation. And those two things can go hand in hand. But part of it is that we are going to have to confront at one point, at some point, that the nature of work is going to change. If a lot of the tasks we have generally left to people are no longer for people, what does that mean? There is a dignity to work. There is a human desire, I think, to go out into the world and do something productive with your time. That does not mean, and this is like, this is a significant issue right now because like this is the promise of like, Trumpism is that well, we're just going to get you your factory jobs back. Well, maybe people don't want the factory jobs back. Maybe they want something different, differently fulfilling. And I'm not saying a factory job can't be fulfilling, but an abusive one certainly can't be. And that's what they're presenting here is a very abusive one. And the, the conversation is about like, well, what do we do to actually change the, the nature of, of work? How do we change our understanding of how we spend our days? All these different things, right? Yeah. And not only does the doctor not even try to have that conversation but at the end by giving Kerblam the thumbs up and being like you guys are great now two weeks of paid leave because the other part of that scene is they're going to be employing more people is she is directly okaying and thumb giving the thumbs up to a society putting more people to work in the salt mines yeah and going back to that and being regressive like automation is an opportunity for humanity in a lot of ways it's going to be a tough one it has been a tough one people have suffered uh, and and there are a lot of ideas on on both sides of the aisle to figure out what the hell we do about this because it's a significant challenge. But if it's a challenge that if met could might like make life better for people, not worse, the answer I think every economist on earth and a lot, and most people with a soul would say is not put everyone back in the factory. Yeah, it's not you know put everyone back in the salt mines. It's 
it's not do all that and give them slightly better working conditions. It's well, let's find let's let's do retraining and let's find new jobs and let's you know maybe people are thought about universal basic income and all these other like that's how you address it. Not no more factories, less robots. It's it's so sociopolitically illiterate. I don't even know where to start. It, it is as illiterate about sociopolitics as Rosa was about American history, and it's actually worse than that. Oh, it's definitely worse than that. It's you know because they got some basic facts about. Rosa Parks, like Rosa, um, did sit on the bus. That yes, is true. Exactly. Yeah, it's like she was a civil rights activist. Yes, good. Yeah. You got that right. This one is. It's like so fucking. Just feels like it's chained to some sort of like intensive capitalist ideology in a way that's like, like not only do you not encounter on Doctor Who because especially because like Doctor Who is so leftist and it's so like the character of the Doctor again is a radical. He's a revolutionary. Like that's. He, she, like, that's the fucking character. It's been like that for a long time. Like, not necessarily, the like, an unearthly child, but once the Doctor started being solidified, certainly in Patrick Troughton, no doubt by the time you get to Tom Baker, like, that dude's a fucking, like, punk going around inciting armed revolutions across the universe. It's maybe not as overt an unearthly child, but the inciting incident of Doctor Who is him kidnapping two that's teachers. True. He's, so he's got a fucking edge to him. That's, that's fairly sure. radical. Yeah, and, and, but, yeah, so, but anyways, the Doctor is, like, the least capitalist fucking dude in the, in the universe or lady in the universe hopefully so far the lady part has not proved true unfortunately um but like but not only do you not ever see this on doctor who you just don't see this like it's so mind-boggling to see a piece of fiction that's like yay the system like like I, there's definitely stuff that is like pro status quo but in this you know in the way that like superhero fiction is usually pro status quo because it's very difficult for it to like exist in a serialized fashion without it kind of supporting the status quo on some level but it's never like spider-man's not swinging around being like boy i sure do love the nature of our capitalist system and like you know the way and like privatized prisons or something like he doesn't like visit some sort of like privatized prison facility and see how horrible it is and is like Oh well, you guys are are being a little bit harsh here. They're like, we'll we'll dial this back five percent. Great guys, that's awesome. Time to go fight a real villain. I just, I am at my lowest point on Doctor Who right now, because there is no Doctor on Doctor Who. There's Jodie Whittaker, and she is, god damn, she's trying yeah. so hard, and and she makes a meal out of everything they throw at her. And that is an accomplishment given how little they've thrown at her so far. Yeah. But there is no character I can recognizably look at on this show right now and say that's the Doctor. I think there are sparks where she brings it out through sheer force of performance. But in the writing and understanding... And this is, I think, the doomsday scenario that we never even thought about. Yeah. Because there are periods where Doctor Who has bad stories, where it has bad production values, where it goes a little off the rails. There are not periods of Doctor Who where they just didn't have the character. Where they had no, where they had a, a main character who had no interiority, no consistency, no clear moral philosophy, no clear goal out there. Like the, every doctor has had those things. Yeah. Every time, there's none of that. And I honestly take this away from just the doctor. Protagonists have those things. Yeah. Characters who carry fiction have those things. This character of the thirteenth doctor has none of those things. It is an abject failure of writing. It is it is an it, it is a desertion of duty of the writer to just not even attempt to give her those things. 
And, 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 and the person most at blame is Chibnall because he's the person who should be laying down that vision for these other writers yes. that are writing their own scripts to follow. It's like, you know, I don't necessarily blame the writer of Demons of the Punjab for not having a particularly interesting version of the Doctor in that episode because it's not that person's fucking job to do that. No, it's, it's yes, that is like maybe the biggest job of the script editor, of the showrunner, whatever era, is that consistency of like, what is the heart of what we're going for? You know, I think Stephen Moffat and Robert Holmes are, are maybe the, and maybe, you know, Terrence Dix slash, um, who was the other third Doctor guy? Uh, Barry Letts. Barry Letts. Like, those are probably the three highest points of, like, someone who really had a clear vision, stuck to that vision. Every writer did something to further that vision. But, like, you know, go for slightly more erratic periods, like a um, like a Russell T. Davies. It's still there. The Doctor oh, yes, is the Doctor. Yeah. The, the ideas are the ideas. You know, you get weird things like the fucking blowjob slab in season two. But at least in the blowjob slab episode, it does not end with, like, the Doctor going about giving speeches about how great concrete makers are and how we need to you need to work harder for them for less money. I like it's it's fucking crazy. It's it's insane to me that this has gotten on the air. It is insane to me that this has made it this far. And it is in, it is especially insane to me the dereliction of duty that like I have seen from mainstream critics of just like yeah. rubber stamping episodes like it had bright lights. It it oh my god it's, the it, pictures it, moved. Did you see it's it's not sixteen nine it's in a wider format. This is kind of what it feels like. It's like it's so much more cinematic, right, Jonathan? No, it's horrible. It's it's like, and this is this is something to be the rebel for a second. Demand yeah. more from your fiction. Demand more, right? Yes. This is we have this is a theme we've come to sometimes. You know, like people who. We railed against this like Batman v Superman, where people were like, eh, "But I wanted to see Batman v Superman, or I wanted to see them fight, and they did fight in the movie, so I'm okay." Demand more from your fiction. Yes, there are if all... much better action movies. Like I don't know how you can watch John Wick and then you can watch Batman v Superman and say like Batman v Superman is passable. Fucking no, it is not. Yeah, same here. Like just because it is called Doctor Who and technically has a character named the Doctor in it, does not mean it's doing the job. Yeah. You know, we're fine with up and down erratic seasons. We're fine with a bad episode here or there. We'll dig into those. This is unbearable for Doctor Who. This is like, we have had conversations off the air about do we keep doing these segments? I mean, it's something where, like, we we podcasted through season seven. Season seven was a rough fucking season for Doctor Who. Season seven fucking is, is... Miles above this, like like this season this makes is the season worst seven season. seems like fucking the first season of Tom Baker. This is the worst season of Doctor Who. This is there, there's no even competition for that title. Like this is not Doctor Who. This has nothing to do with it. Like and and I just it's they they I don't know. I feel like again I think BBC needs to do something. Like they need because this is not sustainable. This is not going to grow an audience. This is not going to make people excited about this thing. And I also don't want the, the Jodie Whittaker era to be a failure. I yes, don't want yeah. that character to go down that road. And, and part of it is because, like, and I hate to say this, but like, if, if the first time they do a female doctor is viewed as just this failure where they completely derelicted their duty to be creative with it, like, that's going to affect things. Yeah. That's, and it sucks that there are higher stakes on that. But sadly, that's the world we live in. And, and it can't be fumbling around in the dark this hard. Yeah. Like, there are people who can write Doctor Who. Find them. This is... There awful. were lots of them. We just had them. Again, We've had last them for... season, Jamie Matheson wrote fucking Oxygen. And now we're here. Yeah, this is... We've had it for 55 years, Sean, actually. Yeah. Because this show has been ongoing for that entire time. It, it, 
this is insane. This is this is probably I don't know worst whatever. It definitely like it was the most out of body moment I've ever had watching Doctor Who. Just being yeah. like this is not Doctor Who. Because I want to just like because we went very broad. I want to go get back specific before we end this totally. Because I just want to go back to that line. The systems aren't the problem. How people use and exploit the system, that's the problem. People like you. And just like be very explicit about why that is so bad. Because that is... I, I have been reading for a class um, a lot of 19th century American literature. And I just finished reading Harriet Jacobs' autobiography of her life as a slave. And and, and along with that, and like Frederick Douglass's narrative, which is probably the most famous slave narrative... Um, which is a whole genre in the 19th century, like trying to sort of stoke the flames of abolitionist movements in America. And, and one of the like constant things that pops up in all of those is that there was this certain logic among slavers and, and, or the, either the people who owned slaves or the people who, who abided slavery and allowed it to exist, which was this. And it was this argument of like, well, it's not the system of slavery isn't the problem. It's the people who use and exploit the system of slavery in the sense of like, it's the bad slave masters. But slavery itself is fine. The system's not the problem. It's the, it's the bad slave masters. And we just have to make sure that they're not like whipping and raping their fucking slaves. We just need to make sure that, you know, they're forcing their slaves to do incredible menial like labor, grueling menial labor for them for no compensation whatsoever. As long as that system of slavery is intact, that's fine. It's only the extremes we need to take care of. And so many of the slave narratives had to deal with this because the nature of how a slave narrative could even come to be meant that that specific slave's life was not the most extreme because they had access to enough education to be able to write their own story. And so they constantly have to put in Harriet Jacobs, like, reinforces this multiple times over her, her own narrative that's, like, even if this, like, her narrative is fucking bad, like, her, because she was a fucking slave, so of course it was. But, like, she had to stress, like, even if you think that, like, oh, if we fix a couple of these things, it would be fine. Like, one, the vast majority of people that are in slavery are in far worse condition than I am. And two, it doesn't even matter. Even if the specific, like, sort of, like, sexual assault thing that happened between her and her master was not the case and it was a more, quote-unquote, ideal version of slavery for her, it doesn't fucking matter because the system of slavery itself is the problem. The history of slavery, it's, the system of slavery itself is degrading and deleterious to the human condition at its fucking core. And it's like that, obviously slavery is the most extreme example you can kind of come up with for this. But it's one that so clearly lays out how backwards and insane this, this standpoint is. That the system isn't the problem, it's the people that are the problem. Because it's like, no, the point is we need, that the system is the problem. That we, that we need to work to make the system fucking better because that's what you do, doctor. That's what you did in The Sunmakers, the Robert Holmes episode I watched after this one, where the, where the doctor, by the end of that story, encounters a society very similar to this. And the doctor says to the villain, the villain who says lines like, grinding oppression of the masses is the only policy that pays dividends. So very, like, Robert Holmes is upfront about it. The doctor says, you blood-sucking leech, you won't sleep until you own the entire galaxy will you don't you think commercial imperialism is as bad as military conquest that's a fucking episode where the episodes ends with the doctor leading an armed revolution that overthrows this horrible capitalistic nightmare that has spawned on pluto and and the fucking the fucking like overseer is thrown from the fucking rooftops by the people and the doctor shakes hands with all of them and is like awesome guys great 
the time for me to bounce. That's how that episode ends. That's how this episode should have fucking ended. Not with people getting two weeks, two weeks of paid leave. It should have ended with the, the fucking revolution that set Kerblam of flames because that's what Doctor Who is. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna cut a short second here because we are not hitting four hours. Um, it's my it's my new rule. Mother for the last year. But this episode sucked. Maybe the worst episode of Doctor Who. We'll come back to that. Uh, next week on the show, we will probably not be talking about Doctor Who, actually, because I think we're going to be pre-recording something. Yes. Um, but we'll talk about that. Uh, so we'll probably be back on Doctor Who in a couple weeks, and I don't know. Maybe we'll just... We're probably not going to cut bait, but I kind of wish we could. <laughs> no, we have to see... We have, we have to see this through to the end. We'll see this I'm through. fucking committed. I know, I know. Uh, maybe we'll... When we're done, we'll balance this out with... Maybe we'll just watch the Sunmakers and talk about that. Yes. Um, we've got that coming up. So we'll have a fun pre-recorded one next week. We'll see what that is. I've got a couple ideas. We got, you know, we've got Dragon Ball movies coming up. We got Smash Bros. coming up. We're going to play some more Hitman. Eventually, I'm going to fin- finish Red Dead Redemption 2. We've got to do an episode on that. We're going to have a very busy sprint to the end of this year, Sean. Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, so we'll see you guys later. Any last words? This isn't fucking Doctor Who, man. It's just not. Come on. <laughs> <laughs>